Good morning. Welcome to the January 26th, uh, 2023 session of the Planning Board. It's a bright and beautiful day in Wheaton, as it always is. Uh, I have a note from uh, Historic Preservation that on January 26, 1960, Harriet Baker served as the first, uh, served her first day as principal of Western Junior High School. A native of Baltimore, uh, Baker attended Goucher College and, and Columbia University. She taught in the Maryland school system for 30 years and worked at Richard Montgomery High School in 1940. The Washington Post reported that uh, Baker was the first woman principal of a secondary school in the county, 1960. Just, just the other day. Um, I, I'd also like to say that the uh, planning board was inspired by the presentation of the park system at its last meeting with regard to the Mary Wells Hartley uh, Summer uh, Day Camp Scholarship Fund. And the board as a group ha is contributing uh, $2,300 to that fund. So uh, I hope uh, we can inspire others to uh, help kids go to summer camp. Uh, I think it's a very worthwhile uh, thing to do. All right, we have preliminary matters. We have the adoption of uh, resolutions. Um, uh, do we need to take these one at a time? No? Everybody okay? Oh, oh by the way, uh, do we have uh, Commissioner? Yes, but Commissioner Presley is. I should announce all commissioners are, are present uh, for this yes. meeting. Um, all right, we have uh, adoption of two resolutions. One is uh, Falkland North Preliminary Plan Number 1, uh, 2007 056B um, and uh, 21-115 East Jefferson Street Sketch Plan uh, Number 3, 2022-0110. Uh, do I have a motion Mr. to Chair, approve I move the resolution? A, yes. I move approval on both. Yes. Thank you. Can I have a second? A second. second. <laughs> uh, two seconds. Okay. Um, all those in favor say aye. 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 Okay. Uh, we have a, approval of minutes of uh, January 5th and, and January 12th. Um, anybody have any comments on the minutes? No. I had one on the 5th on where I'm speaking on item 6, on item 8. Um, the, the sentence reads, uh, Chair Zions further stated that the guns can be given to State Highway and Public Utility Commissions to designate a road as rustic with minimal improvements unless stated by state law. Uh, I think it's uh, unless governed by state law. Rather than say, so with, with that change, can I have a motion to move approval? Uh, move to approve the minutes. Second. Chair. I have a, a motion and a second to approve the, the minutes from those two dates. All those in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. 
Okay, we have uh, the uh, great Seneca uh, Carter uh, reappointment of the Implementation Advisory Committee. Staff recommends uh, a approval of the reappointment. Uh, any discussion on this item? Seeing none, uh, I'll entertain a motion to approve. So moved. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right. Unanimous so far. This is a good day. Um, okay. Now we have regulatory items for extensions. We have uh, two extensions. We'll take these one at a time, as I understand. There may be some comments. Um, the, the first is uh, BF Gilbert Subdivision of Tacoma Park Administrative Subdivision Number 62021. Uh, one zero six zero. Um, any discussion? You, you don't. Not, not on this not one. On this one? Um, okay. Uh, do I have a motion to approve? So moved. So moved, Chairman. Okay. I, I will take uh, Vice Chair Presley as a second on that, if that's okay. Uh, all those in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? There's nobody left to be opposed, so we're good. Um, all right, we have one more uh, extension. Uh, that is Sandy Spring Missing Middle Pilot Project, preliminary plan number 120-22-0050 and site plan 820 I think Commissioner Hill has something to say on this one. Well, no, actually, I'm a little confused, Mr. Chair. I have three extensions on the agenda that I received, and two of them don't seem to be here. For Kingsview Station and Bradley Farms. Does that happen last week? Excuse me, I don't, I don't have that. That's all right. Okay. Let's proceed. I, I don't really have any comment on uh, on yeah, Sandy, Spring. Sandy Spring. No. I, I don't. Do we have others on the? I don't see it on my agenda for other extensions. Say again. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm confused. Then I'm, I I regret so that. There are but, no um, there are no additional applications for extension, but I will note that for the Sandy Spring uh, missing middle applications, there are additional extensions requested for um, preliminary plan number one uh, 19821080A um, and a site plan 81982. Now we're all seeing that I can't read numbers when, right. <laughs> when I, faced with it. I understand how I'm, difficult it is I'm, now. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm 092A. So um, there are, I believe, that is four uh, different applications seeking extension as part of there's a Sandy Spring uh, Missing Middle pilot project as well as Sandy Spring Meadow. And I wanted to ensure those are all on the record. Well, thank you for that. You should know that I'm reading from a different piece of paper sometimes. and. The wife gets confused. And everybody should know the secret of numbers in our system. The first, the first number tells you the process. So like a one is a preliminary plan and eight, eight is a site plan, okay? The next four digits are the year in which it was first applied. 
okay? And the digits after that are somewhat sequential. That's the secret. Uh, so if you take those four numbers as a date, these numbers are a little bit easier. In any event, uh, we have this uh, silver missing middle extension before us. Um, uh, I'll entertain a motion to approve. So move, Mr. Chair. Second. Second. Okay, all those in favor say aye. 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 Ayes have it. Nobody's left to oppose, so we can go on. Um, I don't know what extensions you were. I, I pulled these down from the agenda on the 20th, and or the website, and I got a Kingview Station and Bradley Farm document, and I don't, they're not on the agenda, so let's proceed. Okay. Uh, makes sense to me. All right, uh, we are on item four of our agenda and uh, a report from the planning director. Good morning, Commissioners. Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, for the record. Uh, we do have our presentation um, that we will uh, bring up. Um, but uh, in the meantime, I will um, maybe go ahead and get started. So uh, last week, uh, we attended a really great project. Uh, next slide. A groundbreaking for a really great project, uh, 4010 Randolph Road. Uh, this is a new 195-unit affordable housing project at the former uh, Department of Recreation uh, Administrative Office building site uh, near Veras Mill Road. Um, it is a uh, represents a partnership between the county government, AHC, um, and Habitat for Humanity to provide deeply affordable uh, homes uh, for a family-oriented community. Uh, it includes uh, both rental and home ownership opportunities at various incomes, um, in, including um, uh, deeply affordable units at 30%, 40%, and 50% AMI, which is really outstanding, and um, as, as well as family-sized units, those bigger, bigger units, three- and four-bedroom units. So um, our department, uh, uh, several of us were there. Uh, I was there, uh, along with several of our staff from Mid-County um, and others. Uh, from throughout uh, that community and the county, and uh, quite a number of council members, the county executive was there as well. Uh, you see a photo of myself with Alan Goldstein from AHC, as well as council member Kate Stewart. Uh, again, this was a really um, outstanding project that our department is very uh, happy to have played our part in supporting. And um, I'm actually going to turn it over to Carrie Sanders uh, from Mid County uh, to talk a bit about a bit more about how we've supported this project. Thank you, Director Stern, uh, Carrie Sanders, for the record. Um, I do feel like this is a great opportunity to highlight our master plan process. Um, this was a master plan, uh, the Veers Mill Road um, corridor master plan that was adopted in 2019. And um, this master plan had a special focus um, on providing a diversity of housing types at this site. Uh, so we actually worked um, with the community as well as with the Department of General Services through the master plan process um, to create zoning on the site that uh, Director Stern was, was mentioning um, that allowed uh, construction of medium density residential uses. Uh, the site was previously zoned R60 um, and through the master plan process um, it was rezoned commercial residential neighborhood zone. Uh, so the plan specifically mentioned um, or had in its recommendations uh, diverse housing types on the site. 
Um, it is close to a future bus rapid transit station on Beers Mill Road. Um, and it is also surrounded by residential communities. So it really provided an opportunity um, to transition from single family, which is bordering the site and the approval single family homes, to sort of uh, mid-rise uh, apartments and then to um, higher density um, as it borders uh, Randolph Road. So um, in, in terms of uh, the um, regulatory project um, itself that followed the adoption of the master plan, um, we always like to look back and see how long the duration of the review was. Um, we're always aiming to track that information for the public um, so that they can see um, you know, how long the reviews are taking um, and also for the board to have that information. And so we're, you know, we're excited that this project, which was led by Amy Lindsay um, with support from Natasha Fahim, Atul Sharma, and Paul Mortensen, and the rest of the Mid-County team, um, it took about six months um, in terms of review. Um, and we had two different review periods because it had a mandatory referral and then it had a combined uh, preliminary and site plan. Um, I also wanted to um, compliment Jessica McVeary, who's here in the audience, uh, who led the master plan. Um, and uh, she worked closely with Luis Estrada um, Sapera, who also uh, was our urban designer on the master plan. So with that, uh, wraps up my presentation, but I'm happy to take any questions and, and thank you uh, for the opportunity to discuss the project. It's a great project. I congratulate everybody involved and I'm only disappointed they decided to do the opening on a Thursday, but uh, so be it. Yes, so Go that's ahead. why I was not here <laughs> during the first half of the planning board meeting last week. Um, if you can go back, go to the next slide again. Would you like the final? The final one. Okay, thank yes. you. Yeah. Thanks. Just wanted to uh, wrap up uh, by noting uh, our department, um, along with Chair Zions, uh, were at the uh, County Council on Tuesday to give a briefing on the county's demographics. Uh, uh, our uh, Research and Strategic Projects Division, led by Carrie McCarthy, uh, produced uh, these analyses and these uh, great data and charts uh, that we presented to the council. Uh, the data is broken down by uh, not only countywide but by district, uh, representing the, the new seven uh, council districts. And uh, this is just a small snapshot of the data that we presented. It was a quite in-depth uh, presentation with a lot of data looking at uh, different indicators such as race and ethnicity, home ownership, income, educational attainment, um, age, and uh, we got really great feedback uh, from the county council. Uh, they're very interested in digging deeper into this data uh, because obviously it will help us to better understand the communities that we serve and also to highlight some of the particular issues, um, uh, particularly on the, the district level uh, that may be a, a, a focus for, for other programs and policies. Um, and so again, we actually have uh, a lot of this data on our website as well. Uh, so it is available at montgomeryplanning.org uh, if anyone from the community is interested in taking a look at this. Uh, so with that, that is my uh, director's report for this week and happy to answer any other questions. Thank you. I'll note for everybody that the presentation at the council ended in council applause. 
uh, a rare event yes. <laughs> among 11 members. And, and it's much louder with 11 members rather than nine members. So. Wow. It's great to see. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's great to see the county council applauding and smiling. <laughs> well, let's hope they do the same when we get our budget. <laughs> Any other questions? No, seeing none. Okay. Are we ready? Do we have to wait? Yes, we have to wait. Okay. Thank you very much for the presentation. Yeah, a terrific project. Good morning. It's it's still January 26th uh, in the morning in Wheaton. We're on item five, Rock Spring Center preliminary plan number one, uh, 1998, 092C, and site plan amendments for 8-2023-03-6C, 
2024-017C and 8-2009-003A. This is a public hearing, although there are no speakers. We'll hear from uh, staff first. We'll then hear from the applicant. And this is a somewhat complicated one if we could wait for the presentations for our questions. So if that's okay, I'll turn it over to staff from here. Good morning, commissioners. For the record, my name is Emily Tattlebaum with the Mid-County Division here to present a project known as Rock Spring Center. Um, preliminary plan amendment number 1998092C, site plan amendment 8203036C, site plan amendment 8204017C, and site plan amendment 8209003A. Um, there are four applications before you today, um, and they're all amendments to prior approvals. So staff is recommending approval of all of these applications um, with conditions shown in the staff report and as will be amended in this presentation. Um, these amendments all update the Rock Spring Center project to align with current market conditions and the um, uh, Rock Spring sector plan that was adopted by the County Council in 2017. Um, this project will serve as a gateway into the Rock Spring area that is currently transitioning from an office park into a conveniently located mixed-use community. We're seeing a lot of changes in this area right now. Um, and as the chair noted, this is a rather complex set of applications. I'm sure you noticed that in the staff report too. And I'm gonna do my best in this presentation to guide you through the highlights and um, make it as straightforward as, as I can. So here's the property we're looking at in, outlined in red. Um, as I mentioned, it's within the 2017 Rock Spring cent, uh, sector plan area. It abuts two major highways, um, 270 and Old Georgetown Road, and the surrounding area contains a variety of different uses. To the north and east of the property are single-family residential neighborhoods across the major highways. To the south are commercial retail uses and Walter Johnson High School, which is directly across the street from the property across Rock Spring Drive. Um, the Georgetown Square Shopping Center is also directly across the street from the property. Um, to the west are suburban-style office parks that, um, as I mentioned, are slowly transitioning into um, different types of uses. So here is a, a closer up aerial view of the property. It's approximately 53 acres and uh, located within the CR zone. Um, this aerial map shows the property as it's currently subdivided. These orange lines um, show you the current property lines within the property. Um, and uh, as it's currently subdivided, it's consistent with the prior preliminary plan approval. So an apartment complex on the north part of the property um, is uh, already constructed with 386 units, um, and the rest of the property is largely undeveloped except for an aging surface parking lot on the west side of the property and an estate house that has largely fallen into disrepair that is uh, right here on the eastern side of the property close to Old Georgetown Road. Uh, the center of the property 
is occupied by a stream valley here and a forested area that is protected within a category one forest conservation easement. So this area is outlined with um, the orange property lines here. Um, there's uh, an approximately 40 foot wide transit easement um, that encumbers the property along the southern property line uh, along Rock Spring Drive right here. Um, and then you'll also note there is a small portion of the property that is on the west side of Rockledge Boulevard right here. And this is a stormwater management pond um, that serves the existing apartment complex. So I'm going to go through a very brief um, history of the project. Um, all of these prior approvals were reviewed in the context of the prior master plan, which was um, adopted in 1992 and known as North, the North Bethesda Garrett Park Master Plan. Um, the project was initiated in the uh, late 1990s, followed by a preliminary plan that has been amended twice. Um, and this uh, graphic on the right here shows the preliminary plan as it was approved in 2011. So it's similar to the slide you just saw. So moving on to the site plans, a series um, of site plans has been approved to implement the various development phases. Um, so you can see on this graphic here, this, I think this is really helpful for understanding the history of the project. Um, the existing apartment complex on the north, it's, it's known as the Montgomery now, um, was is known as phase one here. And as I mentioned, that's been completed. Um, the stormwater <coughs> management parcel here was approved through another site plan. Um, and then phase two here included two site plans for two different residential towers on this property. Um, uh, there was a total of 702 units uh, between the two towers. Um, and these were never constructed. Phase three um, uh, was uh, occupied this area of the property, the previous approval. It's outlined here in purple. And this was a mixed-use development consisting primarily of commercial uses, but there, uh, there were some dwelling units uh, with that approval as well. So, um, yeah, the preliminary plan area is shown in, as the whole property in red, this kind of reddish-pink color here. So, as I mentioned, phase one is the only thing that's been constructed here. So now moving on to what is before you today. So um, there's a preliminary plan amendment, which as I mentioned, um, occupies the whole site here. Um, and I will go into more details about that in the next couple slides. Um, the two site plan amendments that are these two properties right here in green and yellow. Um, the, uh, these amendments are fairly straightforward. What's happening here is the residential density is being reduced and 453 unbuilt units between the two towers are being reallocated to phase three here. And um, that's really all that's happening in those two site plans um, with this approval. Um, the phase three site plan amendment um, is, is for this area in the purple at the, on the southern side of the property, and I will talk more about that um, in, uh, further on in the slideshow. And um, it's important to note, too, that all of the prior approvals were, were reviewed under the zoning ordinance in effect on October 29th. And um, 
this, these applications that we're looking at are also being reviewed under that zoning ordinance as is, as is allowed in our current zoning ordinance. Um, so if they were reviewed under a zone called the MXPD zone that you, you see referenced in the staff report. So the preliminary plan amendment, um, it maintains the same density from prior approvals and modifies the previously approved configuration of lots, parcels, and access points in the southern portion of the property. So you can see here in purple, I've, I've shaded in the area that this preliminary plan primarily um, reconfigures down here. The other parcels remain relatively um, the same. Um, the amendment includes right-of-way improvements required by the Rock Spring Sector Plan and the 2018 Bicycle Master Plan, including wider buffered sidewalk along Old Georgetown Road and a separated bike lane and buffered sidewalk along Rock Spring Drive, uh, which uh, the southern portion of the property here, which is currently unimproved. There's no sidewalk along Rock Spring Drive. And um, consistent with vis Vision Zero principles, the free right-hand turn right here at the corner of Old Georgetown Road in Rock Spring will be removed, um, creating a safer pedestrian experience at this intersection. Um, a traffic light will be installed at the intersection of Rock Spring Drive and Stone Spring Street, um, which will um, allow safe pedestrian experience, safer pedestrian experiences across Rock Spring Drive, including to a bus stop that's located on the north side of Rock Spring Drive that will be relocated closer to the traffic light. It's currently approximately here, if you look at the screen. <clears throat> um, the proposed development will form an internal grid of private streets um, with buffered sidewalks, allowing for safe and efficient circulation into and through the development. Um, Finally, this amendment includes two elements that I will cover in a little more detail, the extension of the adequate public facilities validity period and the abandonment of existing parcel M, which is shown right here. So it's just south of the existing apartment buildings, approximately um, here on the plan view. So this shows the access and circulation associated with the preliminary plan. Um, the access points are just discussed in detail in the staff report, so I'm not going to discuss every single one here, but I'll highlight a few features on the circulation plan. The traffic signal that I mentioned previously is located right here at Stone Spring Street and um, Rock Spring Drive. And we do recommend a condition of approval uh, requiring the applicant to remove this driveway along Rock Spring Drive that allows access into this mixed-use building here at the corner of Old Georgetown and Rock Spring Drive. Um, the Department of Transportation and the Department of Permitting Services have also conditioned this, that this uh, driveway be removed. Um, we think it's too close to both of the intersections and creates an avoidable conflict point for pedestrians and bicyclists. Um, and the building has two other access points here and here, which we think is adequate for vehicle circulation into the building. Um, so an element of the preliminary plan amendment is an extension of the adequate public facilities validity period. Um, as I think you've heard in prior applications, the APF evaluates 
the adequacy and timing of public facilities needed to support growth and development, including the capacity of transportation network and schools. The APF validity for this project was established with the original preliminary plan approval and extensive transportation requirements were, um, were a part of that approval, um, including improvements to nearby intersections and highway interchanges. Um, these improvements are all listed out in the staff report. Uh, and to the benefit of the public and the Rock Spring community, the applicant has already added significant capacity to the area's transportation network in advance of most of the project's development approvals. Um, they've spent well over $14 million, not even considering the inflation um, since the money was spent. Um, so for this reason, the county subdivision code authorizes the planning board to extend the adequacy of the public facilities for up to five years. I'm sorry, up to 12, up to 12 years. Um, we're recommending a phased extension um, that would bring the validity period to approximately 10 years from now with checks on the progress of the development after five years and seven years. Um, and granting the APF extension will facilitate the implementation of the master plan transportation improvements that I've described. Um, playing field capacity improvements at nearby Cab and John Regional Park, which are described in detail in the report. I can go into them if you want, um, but I'm, I'm not gonna cover them in detail right now. Um, and additional MPDUs than would otherwise be required, required for a new development on this property. Um, Moving on, I want to clarify the findings that the planning board must make to allow the abandonment of parcel M, which was the parcel that was previously dedicated to the county for recreational purposes. Um, so chapter 50, which is a subdivision code, authorizes the planning board to abandon dedicated land if it has not been in public use. Um, and, and this section of the code then points the planning board to chapter 49 of the county code for further findings. So as confirmed by an email from DGS that was emailed to you all earlier this week, um, the county has not actively maintained or used parcel M for any public purpose since it was dedicated in conjunction with a prior approval. Therefore, the planning board is authorized to approve this abandonment. Sorry, these slides are a little dense, um, but we, we wanna make sure that all the information is out here and um, we're covering everything. Um, so chapter, 59, chapter 49 of the county code allows land to be abandoned if it is not necessary for future public use. So as also confirmed in the email from DGS, the original intended use for parcel M was a recreation center and that recreation center was uh, Future, for future use was sub subsequently relocated to Wall Park down the street in conjunction with the White Flint Master Plan. So the Recreation Department has not indicated any type of need to use this parcel in the future. Um, so uh, we recommend that the Planning Board abandon this parcel and allow it to be incorporated um, back into the development. Um, in lieu of the previously dedicated parcel, this project is um, providing an, a number of improvements to nearby um, amenities, including Cabin John Regional Park um, and 
privately owned, publicly accessible amenities, including the urban park that's in the middle of the project that I'll describe in just a moment, um, a dog park on parcel 15, which is the stormwater parcel um, west of Rockledge Boulevard, and the central forest conservation area, um, which will include natural surface trails available to the public. So moving on to the site plan amendment for phase three. We're more than halfway through the presentation, I'm happy to say. Um, so phase three has been split into two different phases, phases three and four. Right now, we're looking at um, phase three outlined in purple here. Um, phase four will be reviewed and approved in a future site plan. Phase three includes a shopping center anchored by a grocery store, two mixed-use buildings that will be up to 80 feet in height, 614 dwelling units divided between the two mixed-use buildings, including 18% MPDUs, um, and uh, ground floor retail uses um, at the base of the mixed-use buildings. The estate house that is currently located on the southeast corner of the property, right here, is being relocated to the center of the property, um, adjacent to the central forested area and the urban park. The Rock Spring Drive, Old Georgetown Road, the Rock Spring Drive and Old Georgetown Road pedestrian and bicycle improvements that I previously discussed will be provided with phase three development. So there'll be improvements um, along the entire Rock Spring Drive frontage and along Old Georgetown Road here. The centerpiece of the project will be the central forested area here that will be cleared of invasive plants and made available to the public with natural surface trails that will lead to, among other things, the rock spring, which is pictured here, uh, from which the area gets its name. Um, adjacent to the forested area is an urban park, which is shown right here, that includes active and passive recreation opportunities, including play equipment. Um, finally, the applicant will construct a 10,000 square foot dog park, an amenity identified as um, desirable for this area in the Rock Spring sector plan. Um, On to the forest conservation plan. Um, the project will retain 7.74 acres of forest on site within a category one forest conservation easement. There, I, I'm showing here the, the category one conservation easement in the middle of the property. There's some other smaller ones on the northern part of the property that aren't highlighted here. Um, in addition, um, the applicant is seeking request to impact four trees and remove 16 trees that are shown here on the plan, on the slide. Um, and the applicant has met all proper signage noticing and submittal requirement requirements. Staff did receive um, some correspondence about the project, um, first from a neighbor that had concerns, um, uh, various concerns, about including forest removal and traffic. And the neighbor, I believe, lives in the apartment complex on the northern side of the property. Um, and. I think submitted a bunch of photos too that you received last night and I'm not sure if if the neighbor realized that the forest conservation area in the middle of the property was being retained and all of the plantings as part of that apartment complex were also going to be retained but 
um, this project does include a significant amount of forest retention, um, including the critical area within the stream buffer. Um, the area will also be cleared of invasive species and accessible to the public, as I previously mentioned. Um, we've had a lot of correspondence with an engineer who was uh, previously associated with the project and was concerned about his contact information on the website. Um, as soon as we learned about it, we corrected it. Um, and I think we finally answered all of his very specific questions, which took some digging into our um, database. But I think we finally solved it. Um, we had a letter of support from a neighbor, um, and then a few residents calling with general questions about the development. So uh, with the findings I made about Parcel M previously, the abandonment of Parcel M, the project meets all the findings of the subdivision regulations and the zoning ordinance and is consistent with the Rock Springs sector plan. Um, adequate public facilities exist for the proposed development and um, we support all the findings as detailed in the staff report <clears throat> and modified in this presentation. Um, we have one correction to the staff report. Um, on, on several pages, the staff report lists the urban park as 0.7 acres in size, and um, there have been some adjustments to the forest conservation area, so a portion of the urban park has kind of been included in the forest conservation area, and so it's, so that area's just shifted into forest conservation. There's no decrease in the amount of open space. It's just part of the forest conservation easement instead of part of the urban park. Um, so we're making that correction. Um, there's one clarification to the preliminary plan. We are allowing the applicant to replat the whole property before um, a site plan for phase four is submitted because the property is already all platted. And so some of the private roads come into phase three and it, it, the property really needs to be platted all at once, but a site plan or site plan amendment is required before um, before any building on phase four. Um, we are removing uh, condition 32 from the preliminary plan um, because we've, we've have a letter from DGS and we have uh, determined all the requirements for abandoning parcel M. Um, so this condition is no longer needed. Um, in site plan A2009-003A, we're just correcting the area of the urban park that I described previously and removing the same condition as in the preliminary plan amendment about the abandonment of parcel M because um, we've determined with DGS approval that we don't need to, um, we don't need any further approvals of that. So in conclusion, staff recommends approval of the four applications with the conditions listed in the staff report and amended in this presentation. And I'm sure you all have questions about this, so um, we're happy to answer them. I think we'll hold out uh, uh, questions until we okay. hear from the applicant. Sure. Always good to start off with a nice simple amendment. Uh, very simple. In the morning. <laughs> um, if, the, if the applicant has something to say. Uh, yes, good morning, Elizabeth Rogers with the law firm of Lurch Early Brewer. It's a pleasure to be here today on behalf of Rock Spring Properties, Lloydie Davis Company. 
as authorized representative of the family um, ownership entities that comprise the property together with Buchanan Partners as the project developer. Uh, with me here today, we have um, a large contingent of our team. On behalf of the applicant, we have Russ Gestel, Jemmy Remke, and Brian Benninghoff with Buchanan Partners, John Davis with the Floyd E. Davis Company, and Davey Camelier with Rock Spring Properties. Also with us today is Josh Sloan with FICA, the project engineers, um, Trini Rodriguez with Parker Rodriguez, landscape architects, Nancy Randall with Wells and Associates, transportation consultants, and Neville Fernandez with MBNA, project architects, and of course my colleague Bill Commoners. I will just note Steve Robbins, who has been working on this application for a very long time, regrettably can't be with us today as he had a serious health uh, event in December that he's been working through to address, um, but getting better day by day. And he did want to make sure I just sent his regards to staff and the board, um, and he hopes to see everyone in February. Um, on that note, I also just wanted to reiterate our thanks to staff. These are very complex and numerous applications, um, and Emily has done a great job, and we really appreciate all her hard work and efforts um, to get these to the board today. And thanks, of course, to Carrie Sanders and Matt Bolden for their invaluable guidance, leadership, and uh, direction. Rock Spring Properties, as you've heard, is a 53, uh, or Rock Spring Center is a 53.4 acre project that is located in the northwest quadrant of the Rock Spring Drive, Old Georgetown Road intersection. The outline in red, as you heard, covers the entire preliminary plan um, that we are seeking an amendment of today. The area that's shown in yellow um, is the area that is part of the site plan amendment A, the mixed-use one, um, for which we are seeking to amend. There are also two tower site plan amendments that Emily mentioned, which are limited and really just intended to transfer density from those that portion of the site to create a more robust first next phase of development. Um, this next phase that we refer to as phase three. As staff mentioned, um, the property is currently zoned commercial residential, but was previously zoned MXPD. The partial uh, property was partially developed and fully approved under the MXPD zone, and we're seeking amendments under that zone. This project has a, a long history. Um, since receiving uh, original preliminary plan approval, the applicant has made numerous contributions and investments to the Rock Spring community. As detailed in our application materials and as Emily touched on in her staff report, the applicant has invested over $14 million in infrastructure improvements to create capacity in Rock Spring to pave the way for this mixed-use development as well as other developments in the area. During this time, the county also engaged in a comprehensive uh, review of the Rock Spring Master Plan, a process that took approximately two years. The applications that are before you today have also significantly evolved since we initially submitted the applications for this amendment. Based on an extremely collaborative process with staff um, and comments that we received from planning department staff, um, the applicant has created a more robust next phase of development for Rock Spring, which includes a second mixed-use building block shown on this image as um, phase 3B. While we agree this positively creates that critical mass of development in this next phase um, that implements the goals and recommendations of the master plan, this, of course, took um, significant additional design, review, and collaboration, and coordination uh, to include this in the next phase. The applicants are also, applications are also very complex. 
Um, there's numerous issues that we've had to work through that had a lot of interagency coordination. Um, we recognize this has been a long time, um, but we are very excited that we've been able to address those complex issues um, during this time to result in a much improved project. And with these challenges and processes now behind us, the applicant's excited to be here today um, to move forward with the development of Rock Spring Center. Um, as I mentioned, the families have entered into a joint venture with Buchanan Partners, a very experienced regional development company um, to bring this much anticipated project to life. These applications will transform Rock Spring Center from a suburban office development into a mixed-use, walkable, dynamic community that's well-connected through streets and blocks and open spaces to both the surrounding neighborhood and the environmental features within the site. The project results in substantial improvements to pedestrian and bike mobility, as you'll hear, um, as well as numerous public benefits and amenities that this project's going to provide. Consequently, as Emily mentioned in her staff report, we are seeking to abandon Parcel M, uh, which was never put to public use and that the county has confirmed um, they do not have um, a need for the recreation use for which it was dedicated. This abandonment is going to facilitate the creation of a central um, urban park adjacent to the enhanced environmental features that are being opened up to the community, um, as well as other benefits, including improvements to the Cabin John Regional Park. And the project also responds to um, and celebrates the history of the property through the relocation of the estate house, um, which Russ will mention in just a moment. Um, so with that, I will pause now and turn it over to Russ Gestel to say a few words on behalf of the applicant. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. Russ Gestel with Buchanan Partners. Very pleased to be here in front of you today with this project. It has been a long time. And... Uh, and I've only been here for about the last four years of it. So uh, uh, very, very intense interaction, collaboration, negotiation with your staff. Uh, so appreciative of staff's efforts. Emily has done a great job, and, and, and Matt and Carrie have been with this from the get-go. Uh, when we were first approached to be involved in this project, uh, Obviously, our first part of our due diligence was to look at the existing entitlements. And I don't know if, if, if you have, other than it being flashed on the screen tonight, but it is a very different project than what you see before you today. We didn't like it. Why didn't it happen before? I, 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 don't, like, I don't think it was a very good plan in a number of respects. If you saw some of those earlier slides, there were more roads going through the project. We've eliminated one road through the project that goes east to west. That original plan, as a result of the additional roads, it had much smaller and oddly configured parcels. A site plan, detailed site plan, was done for the entirety of the project at a time where you couldn't see that far into the future. And it, 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 and it, it presupposed things that obviously didn't happen. You had a conservation area that was delineated by a straight line, no man's land. You couldn't go into that part of the project. And in the initial phase of development was anticipated to be in the center of the project, not in the most likely, most common sense area of the project to start, which is, 
at the corner of Maine and Maine, Rock Spring and Old Georgetown. Start on the east end, work to the west. So we, we, we talked to the families. There's a lot of history, and, and we needed to get comfortable with the history also, and said, well, these are, these are the things we would need to see here, you know, to make this happen. And, and the family was on board with that. Another, you know, Liz mentioned the joint venture structure. Families will always own the land. They own a lot of land in this area. And a lot of the development that happens, happens on a ground lease. We told the families that we want to be your partners, not just your tenant. And they did agree that we are forming the joint venture to do the vertical development. The families will still be the landlord of the ground lease, but they'll be part of the tenancy also, which is aligned interests, which is going to make this project happen and transform this area the way we've wanted it to for a long time now. Uh, the type of residential that was envisioned for these initial phases of it, the towers as we call it, not the best place on the property to start, but also the product type and the type of development far ahead of its time, 21 story buildings, concrete construction. It's, so we told families getting involved, we need to do something that we can deliver on. And, and let's not look at this holistically. Let's just look at the part of the project that makes sense in today's world, is, con is consistent with today's type of market and types of products that are being delivered. And, 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 and that was sort of the ground rules. And we met early on with the, the prior director and, and Carrie in the early stage and said, these are the kind of things we need. It's a drastic overhaul to this plan, but this is what's going to let it be delivered. So what we've been, part of it in the family said, well, we are very, very focused on our adequate public facilities. We've put a lot of infrastructure in out here that has benefited everybody except us. <coughs> Partly our own doing, but we want it to be able to take advantage of that and get the credit for that going forward. So these were, so this was sort of the, the cards that we were dealt. And uh, obviously there were other issues that came up along the way that we had to other than restructuring this and, and reevaluating the, the, the entirety of this, there are a couple of other things that sort of came up through the woodwork. We're doing it under the MXPD zoning that existed, just rearranging the deck chairs here. And, uh, but you do have the sector plan that came into play at the same time with its design guidelines. So even though we could say, oh no, we're in this grandfathered box, we had to walk the line between the grandfathered entitlements and the new vision for this area. And I think working with staff as closely and as collaboratively as we have, I think we've done a very good job of that. Parcel M, we talked to the rec department. Hey, we'd like to move your six-tenths of an acre from here to here where you can really do something special in the middle. They don't want Parcel M. They don't want relocated it but they liked the idea of a component in a development privately constructed and developed and maintained to provide the amenity base. And so uh, with your, your concurrence today, we look forward to parcel M going away and the new urban park being facilitated. The offsite stormwater management pond, 
We were a little shocked to find that the pond that was built to serve the entirety of this is no longer allowed to. The new stormwater regs will not allow that to happen. So the stormwater pond that we thought we could utilize as a part of our development is, 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 is not a factor, not a benefit, zero credit for it. So, you know, solving problems like that, we realized that keeping trips off the roads, there is earthwork that needs to happen and topsoil that needs to leave the site we are going to fill in part of the pond. DPS said, you don't get credit for it. We don't care if you fill it in. So part of the solutions to solving these problems is to fill in part of the pond, short hauls for material leaving the site, and that's where the dog park is going to be. So, you know, it, it, these things don't happen in a five-minute meeting. These, uh, these things take a, a, a lot of time to, to, to evolve. The APFO flexibility, you know, we worked through it and, and researched it, and we realized there's a history of things not happening here. And so this phased approach to the APFO is, is a way of holding us accountable. If, if, if the first five-year milestone doesn't happen, the rest of it goes poof. So uh, we think that they're, you know, again, good solutions for all of these things. Uh, some of the other, you know, the, the stormwater pond, when we knew that it wasn't going to be viable, we talked about doing ball fields there. And we worked for well over a year trying to solve a ball field on top of an underground stormwater facility. Innovative. I think it's the kind of thing that needs to happen. Uh, park and planning was there. The applicant was there. We couldn't get some of the other agencies on board with that. And so... That led to an off-site commitment to contribute to lighting, facilitate lighting, build or fund lighting at the Cabin John Regional Park. So every hurdle that was presented, I think we've cleared and, and, have, and have done a good job with it. And the result is a good plan that is executable, has the right densities, the right products in the right places on the project, to facilitate that, we've borrowed density from the towers. The intent is that those towers will be developed with future density realized through the CR zoning that has since been put on the project. So the path is there, but you've got to create a there there first. And this phase 3A, 3B is a substantial first step. Moving the house, something that was not high on our list, the families were adamant, park and planning was adamant. And so we figured out a way to make it work and how to phase it to get that to be realized. So again, I do think that we have a, a very good plan. It solved the problems. It, it took everything into, into consideration as we've come down the road. We've left one hanging chad for you. The entrance from Rock Spring Drive into the first phase of development. These, these, these first two multifamily mixed-use phases will have a podium, concrete podium, with parking below it to serve the retail. And then from the podium up will be your typical multifamily building wrapping around its own garage. We think that, you know, talking with 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 senior staff early, 
the fact that the slip ramp from old Georgetown onto Rock Spring, if that slip ramp through movement free flow was remaining, we wouldn't be talking about an, a, a mid-block entrance there. It's a long block. But with that free flow movement going away, we talked uh, prior director and said, we think it would make sense, traffic calming, however you want to categorize it, another access point into the garage at that point. This would be primarily for trips that are coming to the retail and can go directly into that parking field on the ground floor under that podium. Saves them from going further down the road, making a right and then another right, maybe even a third right. Uh, it, it takes some traffic off of the internal roads. We're trying to create a project with internal focus on the retail and, 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 and a pedestrian-friendly environment between the retail, the multifamily, the retail under the multifamily, the park. And, and thought taking some of those trips out of that internal network and giving them quick access to parking would be good for both the retail and good for both managing traffic within the project. Additionally, you have that phase 3B of construction. That's another 300 units, another big development project that's happening right there on those interior roads. And so we, you know, originally, you know, staff was supportive of that. And then little by little, uh, support eroded. Uh, we got support back when we said, well, we realize that once the bus lanes come through here, you're going to have less cars. You're going to have the environment created more pedestrians. That's the time for it to go away. And so we committed to do that. And for a while, that looked like that was going to carry the day. So we, this is not something we're going to fall on our sword over. It is a big project. There are many, many things to create here and many things we can achieve. If you don't, we're going to let it, staff doesn't like it, we like it, we're going to let it up to you. So uh, with that, I'm going to turn it back. So Josh and Trini will talk in a little bit more detail, some of the amenity areas that, 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 that we've all touched on so far, but thank you. Oh, can I add one thing? As a part of dealing with the sector plan, you know, like I said, we had to straddle that line between the grandfathered MXPD and the, and the new uses. One of the things that really came into the picture was this road diet. The property had always had that 40-foot easement dedicated along. It's an easement, not right-of-way. Part of this application is going to remove that easement and actually dedicate it as right-of-way. But as looking at that cross-section for that road, that road diet, we worked very closely with staff and modified that through the design guidelines and the sector plan, ultimately, to move the bike facility, two-way bike facility, and the sidewalk to our side of the road that would enable them to be built now in their permanent location in advance of any of the subsequent BRT or, or, or transitway improvements or the actual road diet uh, implementation. So it, it gets us that benefit up front, and we're delivering that with the initial phase. So thank you. I, I think we have enough to go on. Um, uh, if uh, I'll, I'll entertain questions from the board, if that's OK with the applicant. Okay. All right. OK. Uh, uh, Commissioner Presley. <laughs> 
Yes, thank you. Uh, well, I had the privilege of being part of this review back in 2009. Um, it, I do think that these are, are um, beneficial changes. I would like to hear briefly from the staff about uh, a little more about the opposition to that road, um, the the hanging chad <laughs> that we're talking about, because it makes sense to me, uh, especially in the interim. Um, so I do want to hear about that. Uh, I had a small comment. 10,000 square feet is too small for a dog park. I know that might seem minuscule, but it, it is. It's, it's less than a quarter of an acre. Ask me how I know. Uh, but I have a dog and I use those frequently. But I, I just wanted to say overall, I think these are really beneficial changes. It makes a lot of sense to start with that corner at you know Rock Spring and the, the edge there. Um, and I know it's taken a long time. It is quite a, a big endeavor to get all of this done, but um, I, I like it. That's my 20 cents. <laughs> Steph, if you want to comment on the sure. slip um, ramp. So it might not have been completely clear in my presentation, but the dog park is a minimum of 10,000 square feet. So it might be larger. I mean, I, I think we need to wait until we get further into the design details sure. to de determine the exact size, but that's a very good point um, about the dog park. Uh, in terms of the driveway, I think, yes, you should be able to see my slide again, it looks like, uh -huh. right here. So uh -huh. this is the driveway right here. And mm -hmm. um, we just, we think three entrances for this one mixed-use building is 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 quite excessive compared to lots of the other buildings that we are uh, currently reviewing. We usually see one or two for buildings of this size, and um, given that we're putting all this infrastructure for pedestrian and bicycle improvements along this frontage, we just don't think uh. this entrance is necessary and just creates a conflict point right here that really... Um, is is not needed. We think the interior roads provide, you know, perfect access for this building, and there's really not a need for this entrance along this frontage. Uh, what's the dimension of that block without that entrance, and does that block length meet your guidelines? Well, oh, you're looking it up. So, I mean, while this is a driveway, I wouldn't say that it really creates a separate block. It's just a driveway into the building. So it doesn't, I mean, it breaks up the block for vehicles, I guess, that want to enter the building and, um, you know, creates a break in the sidewalk. But in terms of a block that a pedestrian could turn down, I don't really think it's very beneficial. Thank you for the question. Uh, Matt Folden, for the, uh, for the record, Regulatory Supervisor with Mid-County. So uh, the driveway that we're recommending uh, to be eliminated is approximately 350 feet from the intersection at Old Georgetown Road. And where the new mm -hmm. signal is, is, is approximately 700 feet from Old Georgetown Road. Typically, we see block lengths around 600 feet. So that 700 feet is right within uh -huh. that area that we would be looking for. Um, and again, we always try to limit uh, vehicular access across primary pedestrian and sidewalk paths. And particularly given the confronting uh, Walter Johnson High School here in the area, we feel that this is an important uh, elimination. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Presley, your hand is still up. Um, it, it, that was just answered, so my hand is now lowered. <laughs> Commissioner Hill. I have two quick questions on this. One is, this doesn't line up with anything across on the south side of the road, so it's a distinct driveway. And second of all, it's been referenced that staff objects to this, but there are also other agencies that recommended it. Can you just be explicit about which those are? I read it, but it doesn't stick in my mind because I wasn't focused on it. Uh, of course, yes. Thanks for the Thank question. Um, it's in 
the the condition is in the approval letters for the Department of Transportation and the Department of Permitting Services as well. So it's not just planning staff, it's, okay. it's the other agencies as well. So thank you for bringing that up. And just for the record, that's referenced on uh, pages 39 and 40 of the staff report as well. I, I have a new topic, but is there anything on this topic? Anybody else on this topic? No, nope. go to another topic. Okay, um, I have a concern on page 67, that's actually physical page 68. It's the end of that paragraph, it's the last two sentences. And it seems to be saying that the applicant has a right to the approval of this forest conservation variance. And rights usually have names, and I'm wondering what, what right is it that they have to this approval? So our environmental planner, C. Finley, is going to come up and um, help answer your question. Is it? It's on page 68, you said this? It's physical page 68, yeah. Physical and page um, it starts with in addition. <coughs> Commissioner Hill, as, as uh, Mr. Finley is getting said, Ali Myers from the Office of General Counsel for the record. If I may, because I am reading this section and if I may give my sort of interpretation and of course welcome Mr. Finley to comment as well, but my interpretation on, on the right um, specified here uh, I, I would agree that, that there is no general right to be granted a variance. Um, but because there have been prior for, uh, final forest conservation plans granted um, for this property, which have approved um, both tree variances and tree clearing in this area, um, that it is, uh, you know, an applicant is entitled to rely on those approvals once a tree variance has been approved, once tree clearing has been approved, um, even if a, forest, a final forest conservation plan is brought back for an amendment, um, we would not revisit that, um, that particular tree. And Mr. Finley can speak in detail if I'm uh, to, to provide his, his, his uh, intent for this section. Uh, thank you, yes, uh, Steve Finley, uh, Mid-County Planning, for the record. Um, I want to make sure that I'm looking specifically at the right line uh, that you're referring to. Yeah, um, it's on, on uh, it's numbered page 67, it is actually physically page 68, and it is the end of that first bulky paragraph at the top of the page, it's the last two sentences that start in addition, presidents established over the years. Right, okay, yes. Um, and. Confirming uh, what uh, Ms. Myers was saying, um, we strive for a certain consistency in our reviews uh, over time, and uh, this has been something, if this was coming in as a new plan, we would probably view it differently. But we, we try to find the balance, uh, as the applicant <clears throat> was mentioning earlier, there are certain previous approvals and we're trying to balance those against, uh, you know, recognizing what has already been agreed to uh, by the planning department, by the planning board and previous approvals. And then from there, make sure that it still conforms with the requirements of the law. And so we have, we have sought that balance through this review here. Um, and this is an area that has on several occasions been approved for, for clearing. And we do not typically re like go back on that and take that away in subsequent approvals when we're doing amendments. 
Right. So I, that's the, the okay. practice that we have uh, established I, for a I, while. That's now. a good statement, but I, I don't think those sentences say that. And I'll point out that according to the graphic we have in front of us, there's only two trees here that have a previous approval, and the ones we're discussing are not those for the, yes. the frontage on Georgia Avenue. So, but, but let me let me answer my own question, which is I think there are two rights that could apply here. One, one is due process, and the other is not to be discriminated against. Right? And I don't think due process applies because a, a, applying for the variance is the due process. And there's no, you, you have to make the findings and it's the judgment of this board about whether we approve the variance. And a variance is inherently about a single site. Right? So I don't, I don't see that applies here. And not to be discriminated against, I understand the point of constancy, but again, going back to the idea that a variance is a, is a one-off thing about this site, I don't think that's a right that I would apply to this situation. And what I would like to suggest is we just strike those two sentences. And if the chair wants to abide by a discussion about why I don't think we should be even saying that, that doesn't apply to this application. We can take that up later. Strike the sentence, but, but keep the variance. Strike those two sentences. I think the variance findings are made. Um, there's two pages about that. I, I think I, they're made. I think this is sort of faulty, uh, a legal fallacy, and a statement that probably shouldn't be made, asserting that this applicant has a right that I don't recognize. I, I don't think that'll change the substance. Uh, go ahead, uh, Ms. Branson. Yeah, um, I agree. I don't think it would change the substance, but I understand the um, discomfort with the language. Okay. Um, and so I was thinking maybe we could call it something like a vested interest that's based upon reliance of a previous approvals, because that's not a right. But it, it is, it, it, it's, it does convey the notion that um, the applicant has something tangible, if you will, um, that they are entitled to rely upon based on the actions of this agency. So it, that's my suggestion. Add that type of sentence. Are you okay with that? I would just say let's remove this from the, the situation because the findings succeed, and that's all we need. Right. Yes, uh, that would not be included, and in, you know, that wouldn't affect the conditions of approval, which is kind of the official record of the approval of the board. So, uh, I understand your uh, concern about the the interpretation of this. It is intended to convey that this is consistent with uh, prior approvals. Uh, and maybe right is not the correct word to use there. Maybe just say that if, if, if Ms. Branson is okay. And I, I would be okay with a simple statement that this is consistent with a prior approval, yeah. Okay. That, that would be fine, yes. Okay. Okay. Point taken. Uh, Thank no you. substantive changes there, but um, background change. I have, I have two other points I just want to poke at quickly for a minute. The, the park, um, what, the, the, the payment for, for mm -hmm. public services at Cabin Run Regional Park strikes me as just a bit odd. I just want to poke it for a minute. And what's odd to me about it is it's a park that's not even in the sector. Uh, and the sector, except for the private park going in here, seems devoid of a public park. Um, it's also, to me, a stretch of the nexus of public service being close to the burden that is engaging it, um, especially because the road access to where this is going is very indirect from this site. You, know, you have to cross the highway. You have to make lots of turns. and. It seems also oddly particular to me of what is being described as being done at Cabin John Park because my thought is if we're talking about paying for lights and playing fields improvements 10 years, 12 years out, if that's going to happen, that's probably going to happen. 
and being very particular about describing that's what this is paying for strikes me as unrealistic. And I'm kind of wondering why we need that level of detail other than saying we're making a, I don't know, a financial contribution to Cabin John Park and it must be used at Cabin John Park. So while Cabin John Park is outside the sector plan area, it actually touches the sector plan area. So it, it is very close um, because the sector plan area is rather small. And so uh, this, this condition about the, or these series of conditions about the um, park improvements were really to um, address a master plan need for um, playing field capacity in this area. And so we worked extensively with parks and we have a parks representative here if you want to ask any specific questions and he may want to weigh in. But by adding the field lighting, it you know allows the, all the, these fields to be um, to be used for additional hours. And so it, it actually does create um, an increase of, of field capacity that parks has said they really no, desire. I'm, and right. so um, let me clarify. We, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not challenging okay. that. I understand that. Yeah. What I'm challenging is the idea that this may be implemented a decade from mm -hmm. now. And if this is a need for the park, it's probably going to find another way to accomplish. And we're writing this very specific language that mm -hmm. says this is allocated to that. And, and with the fall through that says if yes. not, it goes to the park. And I'm just wondering, <clears throat> why don't we just say this goes to the park? I mean, that that's definitely a possibility. We did try to kind of account for that contingency by saying if Parks does implement these improvements before the applicant is required to either construct the improvements or make the contribution, then the money um, can go to reimburse Parks, and Parks then has money for, you know, other improvements at the park. So, I, I mean, I think, I think our conditions cover what you're saying in slightly different wording, but... Um, I, did you want to say anything, our parks representative? Uh, good morning, Henry Coppola, Montgomery Parks, uh, Park Plan Stewardship. I'm our Parks Development Review Coordinator, and I think Emily's doing a great job kind of <laughs> describing it. Um, just to your point, Commissioner, yes, sort of athletic field capacity was the kind of driving goal that had been identified and, and need. And also to your point, there's not another athletic field um, close by, like closer than Cabin John Regional Parks. So that was sort of identified as the the easiest and best and closest place to be able to provide that uh, increased capacity um, and we did a great job quickly describing how lighting those fields would do that um, those fields that have been identified and I think the reason we kind of chose to start with them specifically was and that level of specificity was to to keep making the point that increasing the athletic field capacity was was that goal there um, Ed, but you are right. If would it, you would you be content with a general statement that such such funds could be used as such things as lighting the fields? I, I think that would be would be fine with us. Yeah, so that, yeah. that gives them more flexibility. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm after is giving flexibility. I, th I think we have to say it needs to go to this park, right. right? And I think the answer to my first question is even though this isn't all that close as a nexus, it's the closest opportunity. And you, you said that. Um, but um, I, I just, you know, doing this 7, 10, 12 years out as a payment to the park, if, if those fields need lighting, I don't think anyone's going to wait until then. Is, is the board content with more generalizing that contribution? Okay. I, I guess it would be, apply to all of them, too. You and, know, and chair, yes. Mr. Chair, as. if I may, I, I just also wanted to point out that there is a statement in those conditions that kind of gives that flexibility where it says, or other athletic field capacity improvements as determined by parks. 
um, to kind of account for, I think, the concern that Commissioner Hill is raising. Yeah, but I want to give Parks even the freedom to not, I mean, it could be by 12 years from now, those athletic fields are done. Right. Um, yeah. For the record, um, we could uh, propose some language to, I guess it's page 17, condition 8, um, under Montgomery Parks that I think could address some of the concerns the board is raising. Um, so just bear with us while we uh, give some language yeah, and I, then we'll I read it off. I sprung this on you. I no problem. <laughs> I didn't have Everybody time in, in this week to give you yes. the details. Yes. Okay. Okay. My, my other point, which may go even quicker to just poke a little bit, is I'm a little concerned about the private road statement here because it seems to me classic of developers often building things that are private to developments that end up being HOA responsibilities. And one of the first things the HOA does is try to shed those responsibilities, right? And I, I haven't heard exactly what the HOA arrangements here, but I assume that's the progression that will happen in the longer term here. So I, I just want to kind of, I, I think staff said this, but I want to call it out, that these roads will generally meet the standards of, of public streets except for like one or two exceptions. One was where there wasn't a sidewalk on the other side. So it's not preposterous to think that eventually these may become public streets and they will fit the general definition we work on now for public streets. Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, Matt Folden again for the record. Uh, and, and that is precisely true. So these, uh, these private roads meet the standards of a public road and they're subject to the private road covenant that's already recorded in the land record. The idea being if these roads um, are within their own parcels, they meet the definition of right-of-way, they're built to the county standard. If at such point the county DOT needed to come in and take over the roads, they were already built to a standard the DOT is accustomed to building. And that also goes to the pavement depth and the sub-base of the road as it bears the weight of vehicles and everything. So it's, it's built to a standard that can accommodate that uh, volume of traffic. Okay. Then I just have one question for the applicant, which is you make a point to say you want these to be private because you want them to not to have a different flavor standard, I wasn't quite sure what that was describing. Um, and based on what was just said, is, is what is it you're after in, in saying that these private, these should be private for some purpose? I'll, I'll start it and then I'll, I think Josh or Russ can elaborate a little bit further. I think one element of this too that's kind of unique is, is they are approved private roads today that we're just reconfiguring with this application. So they, they already already platted private roads and as Matt Bolden has clarified, you know, there are um, clear maintenance standards and um, funds that have to be set aside for the maintenance to ensure that they're continually held to public standards. Um, I think there are a numerous, a numerous other kind of design um, reasons why we wanted to keep them as private roads, um, as they've already been approved in terms of utilities and some other kind of, of the nuanced aspects of the road design that maybe Josh could speak to in a little bit more detail. Good morning, Josh Sloan with VICA. Um, there are a couple things that are within these parcels that are gonna be uh, basically um, dedicated as right of way, but not completely dedicated as right of way. And those elements include specific paving details um, that are typically not allowed, seating elements, things like that. that really are pieces of the placemaking of this that Trini and her team have designed that would require waivers from standard roads. So other than the fact that they all meet the standard for ensuring that you know, fire access is going to be um, allowed and, and the base is correctly built. Those elements within mostly the pedestrian realm are a little bit different and non-standard. Okay, but, but your contention is you are exceeding the public standard in the private road and you want the freedom to do that by having them private. Absolutely. Okay. If, if, I, could, if I could add 
Okay. Commissioner Hill, if I could add to that, in, in nearly every project we do, we advocate for private roads primarily because we feel our standard of maintenance and upkeep exceeds the, the public sectors. And uh, so that's, it's, it's, the retailers need it plowed immediately and, and having that control is often better for the overall project. Okay. I, I'm not a fan of private roads, but I sure understand them here because it's really a mixed-use project with a, with a significant mm -hmm. commercial component. And, and their interest, as you said, is to get it maintained immediately, not, not wait. So I, I sure understand it in this case myself. Okay, Mr. Um, Chair, uh, can I ask a few questions? Yes, sure. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I'm trying to understand. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm looking at the overall project and what you're trying to accomplish. And the way I understand it is you're moving all the density from basically the towers, no phase two, into phase three. You're moving a lot of the units. Uh, and um, uh, phase four, first of all, I have a question. So, so in terms of what was prior approved and what you have now, which uh, originally was 1,250 units, are you gonna keep that number of units altogether, include, including phase four, or it, will that change? In terms of the number of units, and also if you can talk about the non-residential use. What our intent is, is the, the 1,250 units you reference are what are in the current entitlements under the MXPD. Mm -hmm. The property has been given a CR zoning category, which would allow for more than that. Yeah. What we are looking to do is, with this application, is to continue under the MXPD and and stay within the 1,250 units. Our expectation is that subsequent to phase 3B, we will be coming back to you to go through the sketch plan process to take advantage of the, you know, see what the market and what is going on in the world at that point. The balance of the project has a lot of office space and a lot of other uses that we think will also need to be reconfigured. And, and we do see this as a, as a, a, a creating a, a residential mixed-use hub that can benefit all the areas around it. So I think what, to answer your question, we'll be back with a CR application subsequently that will create the additional residential density and re and re resupply the density to the towers and in the balance of phase four. I see. Now, the uh, since you're moving most of the density down to uh, Rock Spring Drive and then phase four will be into Rockledge Drive, um, have you done, I haven't heard from the staff whether there's been traffic studies done in terms of congestion into those two roads and also into Old Georgetown. Have enough uh, traffic studies been done and we don't, you know, the staff doesn't have any concern in terms of how much traffic is going to be generated uh, given this development? Yeah, thanks for the question. So because of the history on this project, uh, 
traffic studies have been done in the past, and because uh, we, we looked at a traffic statement which basically compares the prior approval to what's being approved today, there's no increase in traffic based on the prior approval, and that's because all of the density that we're talking about has already been approved for the site, and we're just moving it around within the overall approval, and so there will be no new uh, trips generated. But don't you think that you're moving the density down to those two roads? I mean, before it seemed like the towers were in the middle of the property. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that the, there's going to be more impact now on those roads. It's a good question. And so uh, what we have internal to the site is this, in, this private street network that we're talking about. And mm -hmm. the local area transportation review study typically looks at the vicinity outside of that uh, block and grid configuration that mm -hmm. we've been talking about with this particular application. And so the traffic will still continue to hit the public road network at the intersections that were anticipated with, okay. with the overall study. Okay. Now, uh, let me ask another question about Parcel M. I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Do, is Parcel M right now where the urban park is going to be located and where the estate is going to be moved into? Is that? No. Can you explain sure. where Parcel M is? I'm yeah, and this is a good diagram for yeah. that. Parcel M is currently located along Old Georgetown Road in kind of the northeast corner okay, yep, exactly of the site. Um, it's just a cracked asphalt um, parking lot with lots of overgrown vegetation. Um, there's nothing there today. As okay. REC has confirmed, they've never maintained it or used it. And so what we're seeking to do is to move that REC component to the central portion of the site, which is opened up to the forest conservation, which we're expanding access, you know, community access into through our trail network and some of the other amenities. Um, and as Russ had mentioned, we had originally talked with the REC department about just giving them that land in the center of the site, mm -hmm. and they said they didn't they want it, they didn't have a recreation use for it, and they thought this was a much better public use that we can deliver in the very near term. Okay, how, uh, question about the urban park, uh, how will people have access to it? it will there be like a, a parking space, or or is that gonna, is that intended only for the, for the people who live in that, uh, you know, in that project? Good morning. Um, Commissioner Pinera, this is uh, Trini Rodriguez, landscape architect. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, good question. Uh, I'm going to go back just a little bit to Parcel M. You can see the Parcel M was actually a triangle. It was a very odd parcel. It was kind of like a leftover, <laughs> to be honest with you, but very odd. So that's been relocated to, you know, much more central and inclusive area. It's actually now incorporated as part of a larger open space system. Then to answer your question, um, it is really intended to be an, a park that serves the, the larger area, the you know, mm -hmm. Rock Spring area. There is a plan to actually connect all of these open spaces with a series of trails. We actually looked at this in the larger context of that master plan and how all these open spaces connect. They're really intended to serve the, the local neighborhoods, and there is a very well-connected system of trails. Um, in addition, I think we talked, we actually met with staff, and Steve was with us, Boots, and mm -hmm. other environmental uh, team members uh, walked the entire uh, forest preservation area, which is why we determined that we could create a very, you know, comprehensive system and loop of trails that does connect seamlessly to that urban park that we created along that stone gate lane, which is the main spine and the main mixed-use spine of the project. So, uh, there's you. A, so, so in, just, in other words, the trails 
I'm, kind of, I'm trying to envision this because you have Walter Johnson to the south, you have a shopping center next to it, and then you have basically offices, a lot of medical offices to the west of the property. When you're talking about the local neighborhood having access to the trails, how are people going to get to the trails? Or how, I mean, I'm thinking, how, you know, how will people have access to the urban park, to the trails, through the forest conservation? I mean, what's, what's your vision? Well, well, let me help you out this. in two seconds. There's a surface parking lot on Parcel P that, that people could use to access the trails and, and get to the park. If How you many look, parking spaces yeah. are there? Yes, yeah, I mean, as in the mixed-use context, there will be on-street parking, and as I mentioned earlier, the lower level of these two mixed-use bays mm -hmm. will have surface parking, and the apartments are built above, and that surface parking is intended to serve the retail and the amenity areas. So it could so be the people who on street parking shop, within whatever, the buildings, and, and then, then the retail yeah, we'll parking on. lot. I, I mean, we have some surface teaser parking there for the 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 grocery anchored retail center. There, we needed that to compete with everything else there along Old Georgetown. We do have a signed letter of intent with the grocer. We can hopefully announce soon. Uh, but there is also underground parking under that grocery building. So there is a lot of parking and that will be available for people who want to come and that just use the question. park. Yeah. One, one clarification for the record. I, I think you, in, you intended to say structured parking as it relates to the residential buildings. Is that correct? Yes. Structured parking. Yeah, it, yes. it came off as surface parking. So just want to clarify that. It's structured well, parking. The, the, yes. The, the structured structure parking, parking above yeah. is, is primarily for the apartments. Correct. But the ground level is is there is parking on the surface that's within the building structure. Yes, yes thank you. Okay. That is for retail and, and the public. And the only other thing I would note is obviously that the grid of streets is purposeful of kind of being able to promote that, you know, porosity into the site, into the surrounding neighborhood. And as Russ alluded to, there are we are committing to doing the full Rock Spring Drive frontage improvements, including a cycle track and sidewalk with the very first phase all the way from Old Georgetown over to Rockledge. Commissioner Branson. Thank you. I have two questions I hope are short. Um, in, in materials, it seemed as if the what, what would be done with the estate house was kind of up in the air. But it seems today that there's certainty about what is going to be done with the estate house. So I, I'm curious, what is going to be done with the estate house? And, and, and what purpose will it serve other than being just, you know, a nice thing to look at when you drive in. That's number one. Number two, I'm a little concerned about this stormwater management area being, I think you said it was going to be filled in and that was going to, that's where the dog park is going to be. I mean, so there's no longer, there will no longer be a need for the stormwater management pond. Um, and I'm curious as to like how, how um, I'm curious as to how there can suddenly be no need for a stormwater management bond. I so okay. Oh, any, if you're finished, sure, yes. sure. Um, Emily Tettelbaum again. So we had many, many discussions with the DPS Department of per per Permitting Services Stormwater Management Group, and so when that stormwater pond was originally built, it was it was supposed to treat the stormwater for the entire development. Um, 
and since that time, since that was built, the the rules for stormwater have completely changed for what is what is allowed to how we're supposed to treat stormwater, and so. Um, only a portion of that pond is actually still needed to treat the stormwater from this apartment complex here. And DPS basically won't allow the stormwater pond to be used to treat the stormwater for the rest of the site. And so it's not needed. The portion that they need to treat the stormwater for this is being maintained. Um, and then the rest of the stormwater for this whole development has to be treated on site. And so that's why a portion of the pond will remain and the rest of it can be filled in because it's not being used to treat the stormwater. There are other um, measures that are now required by law that are being used to treat the proposed development. And the use of the house? Oh, the use of the house, um, I, I'll let the applicant um, answer that. I think they anticipate to use it po possibly for commercial or civic uses, but they, I think we wanted to allow them flexibility to find the right user for the space, because it is going to be a rather unique space. <coughs> yes, Russ Gessel again for uh, the applicant. They, they house, it, it, it's, it's very much in disrepair now. It's, it's been in the woods, it's a, it's a popular uh, beer consumption location <laughs> for, the, for the students in the area. And, and and a lot of burgeoning uh, graffiti artists. Uh, so step one of relocating house is to physically move it. Now it is a two-story stone structure. It, it was built in 1920s, and uh, and uh, Mrs. Camelier, uh, whose son Davy is here, she was born in that house and was married at that house. And she's she was uh, she and Gwen Wright were forceful in 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 the house preservation relocation effort. So the, the condition is, is we're going to relocate the main body of the house, the two-story. It's a stone structure, beautiful stone. Stone's in good shape. There is an appendage that is one-story garage-ish type thing that is not easily relocated. So the intent is to relocate the main body of the house, put it in the permanent location as indicated on the site plan, to get a new foundation and stabilize it, clean it up. It's beyond where the infrastructure will be done with 3A. And so while 3A is developing, we are going to be with the house in its location, be marketing and, and, and attracting a user for it. And there's been some expressions of interest. You know, we, we, we would love to see a restaurant there or something like that. You see some pretty cool restaurants in the county that are in, in, in types of houses, old houses and stuff like that. So. That's uh, going to be an exciting thing that happens with Phase 3B. Okay. Thank you. How did I re no, turn my mic off? Um, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, <coughs> I'll note that your, um, your APF uh, approval extension is, in fact, somewhat conditional. That, that you're committed to doing all of the buildings, the, both, both the retail and the, and the commercial, in uh, phase 3A. Um, I'll note that I have a numbering problem when two is omitted. You're doing three first and then, but so be it. Uh, it's a little bit odd for numbering. Uh, 
Uh, I, I would have noted, as you do, that you are committed, essentially, to coming back again, uh, probably before that, because you can't do a tower with the number of units you have left, uh, along other things about uh, getting to the current zoning as opposed to the grandfathered zoning. I, who would have been involved in that stuff? I have no idea. Uh, you know, but but here we are with uh, with enforcing the 2014 zoning ordinance again. Fine, it's all okay as long as we all understand what's going to happen. And this board should recognize we're going to see uh, this fine group again, and, and it'll be okay. What I haven't heard from anybody, and I'll continue on, is is. Uh, is uh, some overriding uh, of the staff on, on going for that access point uh, into uh, uh, parcel A. So I think we're going to, uh, so far the staff uh, position is going to hold for that. Are, are we, oh, are go ahead, uh, Ms. Presley. You're, you're oh, not. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Oh. I, I'll put my hand down. That, that was a dog whistle, I think. It was exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we have uh, some alternative language that we'd like to hear? Oh, yes. So we're actually just removing some of the language from the condition. I think this addresses Commissioner Hill's concern. So um, we have a number of conditions with this language, but basically, um, the condition says that uh, the applicant must contribute an additional $700,000 adjusted for inflation based on the core CPI for field and parking lot lighting improvements or, and right now it says, or other athletic field capacity improvements, but we can just remove athletic field capacity improvements. So the money is for other improvements as determined by MC Parks. and. I, I think that addresses your concern. Okay. Yep. And I'm sure Parks is happy with that. And the applicant <laughs> is indifferent. <laughs> yes. Um, with all. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One more time, Emily Tattlebaum. I just wanted to mention the conditions because um, there are several. So it's it's right. condition it's 13 through 16 right. in the preliminary plan and condition eight in. Um, Site plan amendment number eight two thousand nine zero zero three A. And if we happen to find it in other conditions, we'll change it. But I believe that covers all the conditions. Okay, we'll see it again for the resolution, and yes. the applicant will have a chance to look at the resolution before we approve it. Right? Um, yes. Um, no, I'm ready to. We don't move. No, I'm just asking about the resolution. No, we'll, we'll, it'll just come before the board with those changes. Okay, uh, uh, I'll ask for a motion from Mr. the board. Mr. Chair, I, I move. Let's first establish what we're talking about. We're talking about one preliminary plan and three site plans that are referenced by number in the formal agenda. I'm going to spare reading all those. Um, uh, for Rock Springs Center, it is item five. Um, this includes an APF extension and a foreign conservation plan variance. Um, with the conditions as recommended by staff with the changes of one, replacing on page 67 the last two paragraphs um, with the um, wording, simplified wording mentioned by staff about expectations instead of rights. Number two, 
to generalize the description of dedicated funds for Cabbage on Regional Park is just read into the record by staff, and that will apply in a number of places that they also identified, and we'll, we'll tease that out. And we support staff, MDOT, and the permitting department recommendation to close the eastmost driveway on Rock Spring Drive. And Commissioner Hill, can, is the parcel M abandonment also part of your motion? Parcel abandonment is included. Thank you. Uh, does the parcel I, abandonment have to be a separate action or it's part of the preliminary plan? That would be part of the preliminary plan. Fine. Okay. Yes, we would abandon the <laughs> parcel too. Uh, I don't see any. Oh, uh, Ms. Presley, you have something to say? Commissioner Presley? Commissioner Hill for restating it that way and, and seconding. Yes. Oh, okay. Thanking Commissioner Hill for restating everything, and I second that motion. Okay. Uh, no other discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 Congratulations to, to the applicant on working through a very difficult process, and we appreciate your patience, and we certainly appreciate uh, staff working uh, to present a very, very complicated project as simply as they can. So we appreciate it all. Thank you. I suspect, look at that. We have to resume shortly again.
Good morning. This is uh, the January 26th session of the Planning Board 2023. We are on item 6, uh, uh, 801 Wisconsin Avenue Sketch Plan Number 3-2021-0050 and Preliminary Plan Number 1, uh, 2021-0140. Uh, this is a public hearing. We do have one speaker who will go after the uh, staff presentation. And with that, I'll turn it over to staff. Good morning, uh, Planning Board Commissioners. Uh, for the record, my name is Grace Bogdan with Down County Planning, presenting 8001 Wisconsin Avenue. Uh, we are excited to finally be bringing this project uh, forward to the board today. Um, it has been an extended review, um, and there have been um, uh, certain things within the Bethesda downtown plan that this project will be implementing and lots of coordination has occurred between park staff, planning staff, and the applicant to uh, bring it forward today. And we are recommending approval of both the sketch plan and preliminary plan with conditions and we have a couple corrections for you. So this project is located in downtown Bethesda. It's located on the east side of Wisconsin Avenue. Uh, the vicinity on the west side is characterized by taller buildings, commercial, residential. Um, most recently completed the 7900 Wisconsin Avenue just to the south of this site has the ground floor Trader Joe's with residential above. The east side of Wisconsin Avenue is um, characterized by lower height commercial buildings, uh, particularly to the north and south of this site. About one to two story commercial buildings with surface parking. Um, and then to the east, this block of Wisconsin to Tilbury Street, the commercial uses are mixed with single family dwellings that are used as residences. Some single family dwellings have been converted into businesses. And then east of Tilbury Street is uh, predominantly single family residential dwellings uh, like the neighborhood of East Bethesda. To the north of the project site across Highland Avenue is parking lot number 25, and to the south of West Virginia is county parking lot number 44. Both of these county parking lots are under a request for proposals that the county had issued about one to two years ago, and that um, request for proposals is under negotiations currently with the private developer for redevelopment. And if that moves forward, we would be seeing additional uh, Eastern Greenway, which is uh, something we will be discussing today. So the site itself uh, encompasses the entire block from Wisconsin Avenue to the west, Tilbury Street to the east, Highland Avenue to the north, and West Virginia to the south. Uh, the site is approximately 2.74 acres in size. There are four zones that cover the entire site, um, starting to the um, western side with Wisconsin Avenue, you see the higher density CR3 with the um, higher mapped height of 90 feet. As you move into the site, uh, the aerial on your screen with the dashed line shows uh, the, the, how the zones transition down um, to the east of uh, being uh, Tilbury Street with the lowest density of CRT 0.5 and a lower mapped height of 70 feet. Uh, the entire uh, block is also under the Bethesda overlay zone and within the 2017 Bethesda downtown sector plan. Uh, the aerial on your screen shows the uh, existing uh, development on the site. Uh, as I previously stated, the commercial development fronts on Wisconsin Avenue. There's one to two story uses with the bank on the corner. Um, and then there's, uh, as you move in, there's single family dwellings. There's two that are being used as businesses currently. Um, and there is also an alley on the site, I can show you with my mouse, that uh, begins at Highland Avenue going south to West Virginia Avenue to serve those commercial businesses. 
This image here shows the existing lotting exhibit for uh, the block. The portion that's highlighted in orange is that alley. Uh, the applicant recently went through the formal abandonment process to abandon the public alley, um, and that went through the planning board and up to county council and has been adopted, and that resolution is attached uh, to your staff, to the staff report for your review. Um, the, the block itself, as you can see, the existing lots were created back in 1916 and have been consolidated and changed over time. Just as a quick refresher to the board today, we are um, reviewing a sketch plan and preliminary plan. And so the sketch plan is the first step in the regulatory process for optional method developments. That's the type of develop development being considered today. And what sketch plans do generally is set a maximum building envelope, so a maximum density and a maximum height. Uh, we also review the general design concept that's being proposed, uh, the circulation patterns, a conceptual public benefits package, which is required with optional method projects, and the relationship of the project to the uh, pertaining master plan. With preliminary plans, uh, we're creating the subdivision for future development, and through that we're analyzing the infrastructure capacity, we're conducting the adequate public facilities test, and uh, performing environmental review, including forest conservation. The last step, which is not part of the planning board's consideration today, would be a site plan. Um, so if the planning board were to approve these projects today, a subsequent site plan application will be required to finalize a lot of the detailed design. So that's when we're talking about actual building, fil building footprint, final architectural design, landscaping, lighting, all those nitty-gritty details. And so the applicant is proposing with a sketch plan a um, mixed-use uh, building for up to set 375,000 square feet of density. Uh, that density is comprised of 360,000 square feet of residential uses. 15% of those uh, would be um, moderately priced dwelling units and up to 15,000 square feet of non-residential uses. And uh, given that this project is located within the Bethesda overlay zone, and that zone allows the applicant to go above the mapped height, this overall density does include a portion of BOS density of 159, up to 159,689 square feet. Um, and so this square footage would be finalized at the time of site plan, and this uh, BOS density does come with a park impact payment that, again, will be reviewed at site plan. With the preliminary plan, the applicant is proposing to create one lot to consolidate uh, all those existing lots in the block for one lot uh, for up to 350 units um, and up to 15,000 square feet of non-residential uses. The preliminary plan does include a waiver request for reduced truncation at three uh, corners, which we'll get into in just a minute. And there is a staff waiver request for the exterior noise analysis. And uh, we just want to make one clarification in the report. Uh, that analysis was included in the proposal section. And this is a staff waiver. Uh, and so we've included that in the report to say that what we've determined is that the analysis is acceptable. And we approve the waiver, but there's no further action necessary by the planning board for this. And so the conceptual design is located on your screen. Um, the applicant is proposing a one building uh, that will front the entire extent of Wisconsin Avenue. 
uh, and that is where the applicant anticipates, anticipates to locate ground floor commercial uses, activating the Wisconsin Avenue frontage. And then as the building moves into the site, uh, it goes into sort of a, a spine, if you will, through the middle of the site and extends down to West Virginia Avenue, creating two interior courtyard spaces and extending um, the length along Tilbury Street and is also providing an Eastern Greenway. And so this Eastern Greenway um, is anticipated to be 70 feet in width. This is a very important implementation of the 2017 Downtown Sector Plan, and we'll get into that in just one minute. And so this slide shows the proposed access and circulation. Given the existing development on the block currently, there are several curb, curb cuts that will be consolidated. Um, there's about 10, and the applicant will be reducing that down to four. Uh, three of those are proposed along Highland Avenue, where the applicant is proposing a pickup drop-off area, one way in, one way out, for the residential portion of the building, and then an additional access point to the east for the residential parking garage. Uh, there will be one access point located on West Virginia Avenue to the south for loading and trash. And then the green arrows on your screen show potential pedestrian access points showing the access to the commercial uses along Wisconsin Avenue, residential access points, and these points will be finalized at the time of site plan. Uh, with the preliminary plan waiver, as I mentioned, there is a request for reduced truncation at three corners. The first one is at Wisconsin Avenue and Highland Avenue. Uh, and typically we require truncation here, uh, imagining where the property line would intersect. Uh, you would be stepping back 20, measuring back 25 feet on each side and creating that diagonal line. And this truncation is intended to make sure there's proper sight distance and movement around these uh, corner areas. And so in this uh, location, the applicant's requesting to reduce the truncation from 25 to 15 feet. And um, with that request, they are showing that the building will be placed further back from that um, truncation line and uh, is proposing a PIE, um, a public improvement easement in that area, which will be required to be recorded. Um, and then moving into the other two corners at Tilbury Street and Highland Avenue and Tilbury Street at West Virginia Avenue, the applicant's reducing, proposing to reduce it from 25 feet to 10 feet. Uh, in this location, given the uh, Eastern Greenway, uh, the applicant's um, proposing that reduction and again will be required to provide the PIE. And so the site distance is evaluated by staff and MCDOT and they found it to be appropriate in these locations. Mm -hmm and we are supporting the waiver request. So the Eastern Greenway, uh, this is one of the main components, one of the main um, implementation measures uh, for parks and open space within downtown Bethesda. And so the sector plan calls for the Eastern Greenway along Tilbury Street uh, to provide a buffer, a transition of between the future development along Wisconsin Avenue uh, to the residential neighborhood to the east. And so the, the Eastern Greenway was envisioned by the sector plan and spoken shortly about in the design guidelines, but there was not much else uh, given to staff for the actual implementation of that Greenway. And so through the review of this application, our Parks Department staff had uh, created the Eastern Greenway framework concept. That framework is attached to your staff report, and essentially this creates a document that helps envision what the Greenway will actually be. So when it moves forward, we're you know that when you're on the Greenway, you're on the Greenway. And so it has a unified design aesthetic and it has um, shown certain components that should be provided within the Greenway itself. 
And so it is envisioned essentially in the northern part of the um, Bethesda to be from Maple Avenue to Cheltenham Drive to the south, connected between a series of public parkland space and privately owned public open space. So on this site, um, the Eastern Greenway will be achieved through privately owned public space. Privately owned public spaces. Yeah, said that correctly. Um, the applicant did provide us a concept layout of what the Eastern Greenway would look like on the site. That image is shown on the right of your screen. Um, it does feature a walkway promenade. This is one of the important features of that um, Eastern Greenway concept framework. Um, and that will move north-south through the site. And there are nodes being shown that would uh, have further program areas of active and passive spaces. And so um, the sketch plan has been conditioned that this design will be finalized at the time of site plan in coordination with parks and planning staff um, with the um, conformance of the concept framework and other parks documents like the energized public open spaces. Um, and additionally, for the preliminary plan, we're recommending a condition uh, for a covenant to be uh, recorded over this area to ensure public use. And the final details of that covenant will be also determined at site plan. The image on, your, on the left of your screen is actually from the uh, Bethesda design guidelines. And this is just an important note for the Eastern Greenway itself. The design guidelines basically state that the Eastern Greenway should be of a comparable um, width to the proposed adjacent developments, with the greenway itself being a minimum 35 feet. And so um, the adjacent development would, could be 35 feet in height. In this case, the applicant is proposing a 70-foot greenway width. Therefore, they can achieve up to 70-foot uh, mapped height on, on their site. And so these details will also be finalized at site plan. Can I just inject for a moment when sure. you've got this diagram here? Mm -hmm. There's a 60-foot right-of-way setback that's required here and a 70-foot greenway setback. And I'm not really clear whether that's cumulative or whether that overlaps partially. And it seems to be relevant to this cut-through diagram. Sure. So the greenway would be measured from the face of curb to the building face. Right. And the right-of-way itself could extend actually beyond that curve. So there could be overlapping space between the right-of-way and the eastern greenway. But okay. essentially, t for, for your physical and usable purposes of the greenway, we to measure it would be from the yeah. curb to the building. Yeah, I got that, but the, the detail of that overlap w is to come. To come. Okay. And so this slide shows the uh, conceptual massing of the building. This image is being viewed from Wisconsin Avenue looking south at the uh, Highland Avenue intersection. So essentially we're looking at the northern corner of the building. And this image basically shows, uh, you be can begin to see uh, the ground floor commercial uses activating that Wisconsin Avenue frontage. Um, again, here the mapped height is up to 90 feet. That's what the applicant is proposing in this area. And looking into Highland Avenue, you can begin to see the uh, pickup drop off the Portico Share area and how that massing has been framed around that uh, frontage. Um, and the architectural style, while this is sketch plan, and this is actually pretty much more evolved than what we typically get at sketch plans, um, the, the design advisory panel did review this and appreciated the style that's being proposed um, and the uh, particular style along Wisconsin Avenue, uh, emphasizing the verticality of the building that would be more compatible with the existing and future development on Wisconsin. Uh, and this mass scene is taken from West Virginia Avenue at Tilbury Street. Um, so you can begin to see the Eastern Greenway in the foreground uh, with the uh, building fronting on that space. Um, 
this, again, the building height would be uh, stepped down to 70 feet in this area. And with that architectural style, you can begin to see how it's changing to be more compatible with the residential areas. So you can see the introduction of sloped roofs, balconies, and window details. Again, all of this will be finalized at the time of site plan. And so four projects within the Bethesda overlay zone are required to go to the design advisory panel. They presented at the November 2021 meeting um, and the panel voted unanimously that the project's on track to receive the minimum 10 design excellence points for the Bethesda overlay zone. As an optional method within the CR zone, they are required to provide 100 public benefit points minimum. Um, at sketch plan, we require a conceptual public benefit points package to make sure that they are on track to receive these points. Again, uh, final points will be determined at site plan review, um, but the four categories are listed on your screen that the applicant is proposing, um, and they are requesting to receive points for the construction of the Eastern Greenway, which is a major public facility, uh, providing minimum parking, which is an important uh, sector plan priority, um, the exceptional design. Again, this is a requirement for Bethesda overlays projects to receive a minimum 10 points um, and then just to point out in the protection and enhancement of natural environment uh, this project is partially located within a high performance area and so they are required to receive points for energy conservation and generation which they are on track to receive As part of the preliminary plan, the applicant has provided a forest conservation plan, and that worksheet shows that based on the project size, a 0.28 acres of afforestation is required, and the applicant is proposing to achieve that through a fee in lieu payment, and we are recommending a set of conditions for that to occur. Um, with this project, the applicant did uh, submit a variance request. Uh, there are um, potential impacts to three specimen trees which are going to be which are located off-site on the east side of Tilbury Street T7 T11 and T12 on this image and the applicant is proposing to remove uh, three specimen trees that are located on the periphery of the site for the Tilbury Street and Highland Avenue frontage uh, these trees would be impacted by the frontage improvements and the future design of the Eastern Greenway and so uh, staff is supportive of this variance request uh, with a mitigation planting requirement of 27 caliper inches and it is anticipated that these mitigation trees will be planted within the future eastern greenway uh, where there will be a sufficient soil and space for the uh, trees to reach its full mature canopy growth and so we do have a few three minor corrections for you today and that is to fix the prior twos two before on condition three um, and uh, to strike however from uh, condition 22BI and another prior to. And uh, with that, staff does find that the proposed sketch plan and preliminary plan conforms to the re applicable requirements of our subdivision and zoning ordinance and is in conformance with our Bethesda downtown sector plan. All noticing requirements have been met. met. We have not received any public comment regarding this project. So we do recommend approval of the sketch plan and preliminary plan with the conditions as corrected. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we'll hear from our, um, from, from the person on Teams. The Excuse me? They're both where? Oh, they're both here. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 
I just read this stuff. I don't look around. <laughs> uh, well, if the applicant can make space, why don't you uh, come up? Uh, we have uh, Paige Nuremberg and um, Amanda Farber. Um, if you could each take about three minutes apiece. Thank you. I didn't realize you were here. Otherwise. And you have, uh, you can press the microphone to go on, and you can go ahead anytime you right. wish. Good morning. Um, my name is Paige Narenberg, and I am here to support this project. I live half a block from where this will be built, and we are, me and our, my neighbors, we're very happy that BF Saul has taken this project on. They've included us in every step. And we are thrilled that the design is as thoughtful as it is. Um, we appreciate the underground parking. We appreciate um, the, the pull-in at the front. We appreciate the, uh, the loading dock. And we really appreciate that they are taking on the Greenway. Um, we, we're very fortunate. We have a couple of parks in our neighborhood. They're very active parks with playgrounds, and we get all the little baby trains to come in, you know, little kids coming from preschool, and it's so much fun to walk, watch. But we are very happy that this park is going to be a little more passive, and the design that they have going for it right now is truly wonderful. So we are in full support of this. Thank you for listening. I did not need my three minutes, but you, you, BFSAL you, took care of everything, so there's you, really just, just say yes. <laughs> Ms. Ferber? Okay, good morning. Um, I'm actually going to read my testimony, but uh, my name is Amanda Farber, and I'm a resident of East Bethesda, uh, vice president of the East Bethesda Citizens Association, and uh, new co-chair of the Bethesda Implementation Advisory Committee, but I'm speaking today as an individual. Um, I've been involved in many development projects since the approval of the Bethesda plan, and I just wanted to compliment this development team on their past and their ongoing efforts to communicate with and incorporate feedback from the community. Um, it's been great. This project has many things going for it, um, particularly the implementation of this one block of the Eastern Greenway, which is a key element of the plan. Uh, the proposed preliminary design and easements for this portion of the Greenway meet the expectations of the master plan and of the community. Um, with the, this passive green space on this block and then a more active space planned for the block to the north. Um, and we don't have to look far for assurances for how this space will turn out because we have the example um, of the BF Sol Plaza, the Chevy Chase building, um, where the, the quality of the materials and the maintenance there um, shows how they incorporate that into their projects. So we are in, we're in good greenway hands. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple other points. Uh, first, again, as Paige said, neighbors are very appreciative that the developer incorporated the, uh, the pull-off, the arrival court, or the court court chair, as they say, um, into the design on Highland Avenue. Um, I'm asking that during the site plan process that the design of the delivering and loading area on West Virginia um, 
be deep enough to fully accommodate delivery vehicles. Um, we've seen in Bethesda sometimes how they're not designed deep enough and then it impacts pedestrians. Um, and third, there are three street trees included along Wisconsin Avenue that are in an area designed for a future BRT station. So I think it's important to incorporate um, the design of the streetscape to accommodate both the canopy trees and the future BRT station. We don't want DOT to come back and tell us later that they have to remove the canopy trees in order to accommodate the station that we know is gonna be going there. Um, we, we think all those elements should be able to coexist. Um, and lastly, if you'll just quickly allow me this, um, I wanna give a quick shout out to uh, one of the tenants on the block, Peter's Carryout. Uh, it has been there for 33 years, and if you haven't been, I suggest stopping in, and their, their Old Bay fries are the best, and um, we've just appreciated having them as a small business in Bethesda on that block for 33 years. So um, thank you for the opportunity to testify, and we continue to look forward to working with the applicant. Uh, I'm sure uh, Peters appreciates the shout out. If I can have the applicant back up if they wish to speak and delay our approval of this project. Uh, if you, you can, uh, I think your time would be well spent just addressing what you heard in the comments from the public. About the French fries? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, about the loading docks, and, and I, don't, I couldn't determine whether those trees were off your site or not. Sure. That they were talking about. Um, good morning, Matt Gordon, on behalf of the applicant from the law firm of Selzer Gervich, uh, with Bob Dalrymple seated to my left. Um, on my right is John College, who is a senior vice president with BF Saul Company and Affiliates. Uh, and seated to his right is Jeremy Sharp with Torty Gallus Partners, and at the bookend is Ian Duke with VICA. Um, we're very fortunate and happy to be here. Um, we really appreciate all the hard work that Grace, uh, Stephanie, Elza, and as, as well as um, Henry uh, and Darren from Parks Department have worked with us over the past several years to get to this point. Um, and we also had a, a great stakeholder in the community to work with us staff and the applicant through, through that process. Uh, this has been a, a long time in the making. I think Saul started assembling these properties you know, over 10 years ago when the master plan was initiated. Um, so there's been a lot of thought and hard work that's gone into it to get to this stage. Um, with respect to the specific comments, the, the loading bay at site plan, and we'll defer to, to Grace and Stephanie and Elza, but we'll work with them to ensure that it, it meets the zoning ordinance standards and that there is not a, a conflict with pedestrian movements or otherwise on the sidewalk there. And then the, the BRT station, our understanding, um, Bob and I having worked with the applicant who has entitlements on the other side of Wisconsin on this block, as well as this one, is that they haven't really designed it. DOT and the state are still working on where the station is going to be, but they've asked us to reserve space along the frontage nonetheless. Um, but I believe that DOT uh, shares, the, shares the same position as the applicant and park and planning staff is that the goal would be to uh, have, make sure that the station doesn't require removal of any of the street trees that we're showing on the plan. Um, but those details will be worked out at site plan. 
but we're all in agreement that that's the goal. It just it depends on whether they've designed the station at site plan or not. If they haven't, then we just it's easy. We just install the trees as proposed. Uh, does staff think we need any change to the language to do the uh, loading dock accommodation? I don't believe so. At site plan is when we require the truck turning templates to um, essentially demonstrate how it moves in and out of the site. So that will be part of our review at site plan. Okay. I'll entertain any questions from the board. I just have uh, one question. I mean, I think this is a wonderful project, and we're glad that the community is behind it. I think uh, congratulate you on that regard. Um, Question about the um, the Bethesda overlay zone. I mean, they would be allowed to extend the square footage by 159,000. Right now, they have how much? 375,000. Um, does do they are they supposed to stay within the 90 feet and then all the way into the 70 feet? Is that going to affect their height in any way? The uh, no, so the density can be used uh, wherever on, on the site area itself. Mm -hmm. However, they are restricted by height. Wherever the zone is mapped to 90 feet, the building can only be 90 feet in height. And where the um, area is zoned 70 feet in height, they can only go up to 70 feet. So that is, that re is restricted, okay. regardless of the density. All right. That's, that's my only question. Thank you very much. Uh, Commissioner Hill? Yeah, this may be a site plan detail, but I would observe, and I'll, I'll quote from the sector plan, the sector plan design guide to describe how development adjacent to the Eastern Greenway should be oriented towards the open space and the type of uses on the ground floor. And from what I've seen so far, it seems to me this building is turning its back on the Greenway. Um, so I would encourage that as a point of emphasis going forward. Thank you for bringing that up. And I think that did actually uh, have a discussion at the design advisory panel. Um, and I can let the applicant speak to it. I think in this area there is some topography that they're trying to work with, but they have um, mentioned that we are they're trying to get at least one access door onto the greenway itself, and we'll be orienting the balconies uh, towards the greenway as well. And so those details will be better figured out at site plan. But that discussion did occur. Yeah. Comment at all? Thank you, Matt Gordon. Again, on behalf of the applicant, and I'll let. Um, Jeremy Sharp speak to this as well, but uh, there, are, there are some challenging topography changes, but the intent, um, and one of the things that the applicant did study over the last couple of years is whether a retail use would be viable there, and the determination was that it would be really challenging. Um, there's a lot of challenges even along Wisconsin Avenue. Um, but the idea was, was definitely not to turn our back to the Greenway, it was actually to activate it with the residential units um, and I think Jeremy can kind of speak to some of the design on how that facade, which is to be designed at site plan, does sort of interact with this future, you know, space. Yes, if you look, if you move the slideshow, if you move the slideshow to the um, image of the back side, um, we've activated that side with balconies, um, uh, you know, lots of bay windows, residential areas. So. Um, I don't think the back side of the building faces the greenway. I think it's a residential frontage. If you, if you want to call the back of the building, you know, I think of loading docks and parking garages. That That is kept away from the greenway. Okay. I, I will just note that the, the guideline says, you know, activation at the ground floor. 
Um, um, I'm not requiring you or not suggesting you solve that now, but I think that's a point of emphasis going forward. Um, and then also, I, this is just curious, and I have a suggestion based on the curiosity, but the orientation of this building to Highland Avenue strikes me as curious because in most places when you have a major grand boulevard, I'm thinking of K Street in D.C. and Charles Street in Baltimore and Michigan Avenue in Chicago, you orient the grand entrance to the grand boulevard. And that's not happening here. And I think there's a reason for that. I'll let you comment on that. But I, I have a suggestion, which is maybe this building should be addressed off of Highland Boulevard so people coming to it can find the major entrance. Because right now, it's addressed off of Wisconsin Avenue. And that strikes me as potentially a pitfall for visitors coming to this site. Park and planning's in charge of addressing. OK. Addressing. But go ahead, please. Sure. Um, well, the reason for that is is probably what you assume, which is that commercial uses better desire the Wisconsin Avenue frontage and it allows for more uses like sidewalk dining or other commercial uses to face Wisconsin, have visibility on Wisconsin, and also keep that use facing Wisconsin away from the neighborhood back. So, you know, not our great neighbors, you know, don't want to see the commercial uses start creeping down the block. So, um, and the, the grand entrance, you know, is, is partly addressing the site to the north, the large park, the, the public park that's planned on the lot 25 area. So that, that um, pull-off area, you know, has a certain size to it. When you look at the plan, it doesn't really kind of fit on Wisconsin. And there's, um, you know, if, if you widen out the plan, the street is teeing into the middle of the block there so the there's just it's it's a crowded site on Wisconsin to have a, a pull-off and a port cochere on that side and that's why we addressed it that way okay thank you for explaining any other questions seeing none I'll entertain a motion mr. chair so move that we approve the uh, what is it the preliminary, preliminary plan yeah it's and sketch it's plan do I need to read the numbers or no that okay. I don't I think, think that's necessary okay. with, with the conditions that's with the conditions yes do I hear a second, second? thank you uh, all those in favor say aye aye aye. Aye. aye aye they are all eyes I don't have to ask for nays thank you very much for the presentation we appreciate it Mr. Chair can I, may I? Oh, we need a preliminary plan. Oh, you're right. Oh, okay. Uh, can I entertain a motion for the preliminary plan? So move. Mr. Chairman, I move that we approve the preliminary plan number 12021014 uh, for, for 8001 Wisconsin Avenue um, with the conditions recommended by staff. Right here, second. second. Okay. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 Once again, it's unanimous. Sorry for the uh, premature congratulations. Mr. Chairman, I make a comment to staff and my fellow commissioners on some point here. I want to connect something we talked about in the last session. And that is, it seems to me, it, undoubtedly, this plan met the school adequacy requirements. But it seems to me odd that we have a building that is purporting to have 350 family units in it. And that was really emphasized. And yet the student generation for this site is 10 elementary school students, five middle school students, and five high school students. So that's like 
right, of these family units would have students in them. And I want, I, want, I want to bring this up because I made the point of a cultural shift that's likely to happen, and we need to be really careful not to miss it. And it seems to me that this is almost precisely evidence of that point I'm trying to make, right, is if we assume that we've got 350 family potential living in a building and have that low a student generation, doesn't make sense to me. So I, I, I mean, to point the, that out. The, the APF guidelines for I, I, school I, I concede that, that we've met the requirements. I didn't bring this up during the, session, the, the application because it doesn't pertain to that. But it seems to me that there's a problem going forward with those requirements. Then, then it should be addressed at the time that we review the standards by which we do APF review and, and when we do school adequacy. If this is, if I, if I can just jump in, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, we are launching the next update to the Growth and Infrastructure Policy, which guides uh, those decisions. So that's, uh, we, we will take that feedback and keep that in consideration for the scope for that project. Okay, thank you. Do we have to wait? We do have to wait. Then we're waiting.
Good, good, after, good morning. It's still morning. Uh, welcome to the January 26th session of the Planning Board 2023. We are on Item 7, Silver Spring Downtown and Jason Communities uh, Plan a Draft Design Guidelines. Now, this is a continuation of a session the, the Board had already had. But we are inviting, uh, we invited the public uh, to have any comments they wish to make. We have one person here, Stacy Silver uh, from Lurch Early and Brewer. And if she'd like to make some comments, please do so. Take three ish minutes. Sounds please. great. Um, good morning again for the record. My name is Stacy Silver with the law firm of Lurch Early and Brewer. And it's a pleasure to see you all in person today um, and to be here. Um, we first want to commend staff on their efforts in drafting the Silver Spring Design Guidelines. Uh, they've done an outstanding job of getting into the details, um, but also uh, providing some guidance in terms of how design should, should move forward in Silver Spring. Um, I had submitted a letter, which I know you all have. Um, I'm not going to go through it in detail. I know you guys have had a chance to look through it. I know staff is going to be going through it with you, too. Um, I do ask that I don't know what staff is going to be suggesting in response to our comments, so I do ask if, if there's an opportunity for us to be able to come back up and speak to you further about some of the comments. Um, we haven't had a chance to, to review what, any change, what other changes have been are going to be made. Um, in terms of reviewing of the guidelines, uh, I'm looking at this from a perspective of multiple different projects, and we're really excited that we'll be bringing in um, to the board to review over the next uh, probably four months or so. Uh, and so we have the benefit of having design teams who are beginning to design projects. So they were able to look at the design guidelines with different lenses in place in terms of how things would actually fit. So actually kind of applying the guidelines to specific areas. So it, it gave a little bit of a benefit and I think um, hopefully provided some insight to staff and to you all. When reviewing any guideline, the most important components are clarity and flexibility. Um, the Bethesda design guidelines had built, had built in those layers, and if we've seen, and as we have seen, it brought forward many innovative buildings that have um, since been uh, built in the area and provided the necessary flexibility um, for the designers to be creative. Silver Spring is a tougher market um, in which to build, and thus we need to ensure that Silver Spring's guidelines um, do not necessarily hinder or deter development. Our preference would be for the Silver Spring guidelines to have additional flexibility. We had indicated that in the Bethesda design guidelines, um, there actually are specific alternatives that were suggested. There's a section we attached uh, the Bethesda alternative uh, alternatives um, to our letter so that you all had a, a chance to take a look at that to see what was done in Bethesda. The reason why that's helpful is that it gives uh, some examples to development teams, designers, to say we as planners understand that there are some constrained sites and that there are multiple different ways in which you can address those constrained sites. Here are some of them, but basically guiding designers to then take those as uh, reference points and know that uh, staff will entertain those. So it provides the flexibility, but it also provides clarity and some certainty, which is why we're suggesting something like that be added. And we, we know staff has some suggested changes um, or language to add to that. Uh, I think that with some of these revised changes, the guidelines will be a great tool to entice development. Um, we know that folks are very excited um, who we're working with to come forward and looking at how um, Silver Spring can be enhanced and transformed where appropriate. So thank you very much. 
Thank you. By the way, you were right on three minutes. Wow. Pretty amazing. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Oh, okay. With that, we'll hear from staff, and I'm sure we'll hear some comments. And uh, uh, if commissioners have questions, um, we're glad you're available. Okay, um, I have a presentation on the screen. Is it visible? There, there we go. go. Good morning, uh, Chair and Commissioners. For the record, Atara Margulies, Down County Planning, back again to talk about the design guidelines. So today, what we're going to do, um, as we said last time, uh, we're going to talk about the different comments we've received. We're going to go through uh, the substantive comments here one by one and to talk about the present a staff response whether a change or bringing a line or a quote from the guidelines demonstrates that we think we've already sort of addressed that um, there's a range of different uh, response types and we're just going to move through all the comments that we received from uh, from the public first ones that were either sent to us uh, and that were also you know sent to the board there, in our review, of course, staff, we as a staff decided there's a handful of things we think are unclear that were either alluded to in the comments or that came to our attention through reviewing the comments. We're going to bring forward a handful of those uh, revisions as well that we'd like to show the board. Uh, and then we'll describe, you know, we did, we have um, a, many other editorial comments from a few people, and so we'll just run through who we got those from uh, and talk to those generally. And if you want to review them more in detail, um, we brought some of them with us, but they're really editorial in nature and not, um, not sort of involving real content or substantive changes to the, to the guidelines or, or even to the text. So with that, so these, um, some of these are the same, are the comments that um, Ms. Silver just alluded to, and some of them come from a few other um, parties. We arrange them sort of in the order of the guidelines to keep us going through sequentially instead of jumping back and forth between sections. So it is a mix of different people's comments, but it goes in order of the document. I thought that was going to be easier for everyone to follow. So the first comment is about flexibility. So the comment is that while flexibility is clearly discussed, there's not sufficient flexibility as in the Bethesda guidelines. And the comment asks for a similar section um, to section 2.4.8 in the Bethesda downtown plan guidelines where there are alternative methods of reducing bulk, i.e. if you cannot achieve the step back in the Bethesda guidelines, there's a little section that says, well, if you can't achieve the step back, here's other ways to achieve uh, sort of reducing the bulk of your tower. So um, the, our response is that we do have overall language throughout, but even in the first section in particular where it says that there's flexibility and these guidelines are here um, to provide predictability for applicants, but they do not preclude creative solutions. And I do think that we haven't, we didn't necessarily reference site constraints. So we propose to add uh, the following word that you see in orange here, and I'll read the whole sentence, and the orange bold is the new words. Design proposals will be evaluated during the development review process based on the surrounding context, site conditions, and constraints and how the projects meet the sector plan goals and design guidelines intent. I think this sentence captures the fact that 
every project is going to be reviewed, not just according to the guidelines text, but also according to its context and where it is and what's going on and what individual site issues there are. Um, and lots of the ideas about reducing bulk are actually inherently in the tower middle section guidelines, although it does not specifically say, if you cannot provide the step back, do this instead. And we really wanted to sort of simplify our guidelines and say, here's what we would like to see. But if for some reason you cannot achieve that, bring a creative solution, and that's what the design review process and the DAP are for. And that was kind of the approach we took, and that, that's why we sort of are um, proposing this response to that comment. Any Go comments ahead. or you want, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just um, is it your intention to review conditions and constraints of, of every site? When a, yes, when a project comes okay. forward, the development review process, and of course also the process at the DAP, um, every project is not looked at in a vacuum. It's looked at relative to its site context and what the specific site conditions are. No two sites are the same. They all have their own challenges, as you've seen from looking at different development projects that have come before the board. So um, there's, there's a whole paragraph about the inherent flexibility of the guidelines. Now everything is sort of a recommendation, but if your site cannot abide by those, there's room for flexibility. Um, and the, the goal is to, uh, is to see that the project meets the overall intent, and we do have lots of statements in these guidelines about what the intent is, um, even if it cannot meet you know, some of the dimension ranges of certain things. Um, and that, yeah. that's clear in that introduction. I, well, see, that, that's why I'm, I'm asking, because I understand what, what you're saying totally. I, I totally get it. Um, but... Um, I think it might be better just from a um, grammar point of view um, to not say site conditions and constraints, to say site conditions, comma, site constraints, comma, and how the project meets the sector plan goals and la da da da. You know, that, that's really my point because you, you may not have. Well, anyway, uh, I, I think that becomes, I think that makes it clear that you will review both conditions, both site conditions and site constraints at every juncture. I think that's the intention here. Yes. That's just sure. my suggestion. I like that suggestion. Let me also ask a question. Um, based on what the panelists before you presented, um, I'm a little bit concerned. I'm a little bit concerned that when we talk about constraint, we don't talk about financial constraints because the design is going to depend on the market. I mean, and the market, the development market, the development cost, the financial cost in Silver Spring is very different than Bethesda, and we have to take those things into consideration. So that's why I would not limit it to site constraints. I would also limit it to development constraints or financial constraints uh, because, I mean, the design is going to happen, it's going to depend on what can be done financially, whether it, the numbers make sense or not. It just says constraints and what they're proposing I'm, without limitation. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it says site condition and constraints. So when you think about it, it's only about site uh, constraints. As modified by Ms. Branson, it just says site conditions, common constraints, and how project meets okay, the Okay, well then one. let's just leave it at constraints in general because I think, you know, we can't think that, um, I mean, the market is going to determine in a way what can be done and cannot be done in Silver Spring. Uh, uh, Though I think at the same time, Elza Heisel-McCoy, for the record, Chief Down County Planning, I think we want every building to be beautifully designed. And, oh, yeah. I agree. And so while certain materials, structural approaches can be more expensive, I think you can have a humble building that is beautifully designed. So I don't think, you know, we, and, and this was part of our, uh, our interview questions for the DAP, Mm -hmm. We have panelists who have experience in the private sector and understand the cost of some of the, of, of the design yeah. comments. So I think we wouldn't want to be so specific to have somebody come in and say, I can't give you a beautiful design because I can't afford it. We want them to come up with a beautiful design they can't afford. Which was, I uh, agree. Commissioner Presley has a, a comment. Yeah, I agree with um Commissioner Branson's comments, it it should be specific if if that's what you mean, uh, Elsa, that maybe site conditions, comma, site constraints, as she suggested, because constraints in general could mean financial. So we don't want any misinterpretation. Um, also, just a small typo, how the projects meets, it should be meet. But anyhow, sorry about that. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody's a grammarian. Uh, yes. You, you, okay, moving on. Whenever you're ready yes. to move on. Great. Um, so another comment uh, which we are in agreement with is that the relationship, so in the sector plan, and I know we didn't go over this here, but I'll just give you the brief overview. We do provide, I think it's 37 or 38 street sections uh, that are in the sector plan. And we work those out very carefully in collaboration with MCDOT and others. Um, and so we didn't make it clear in, the, in the, the comment is that, and we agreed that it wasn't clear what the relationship is between those street sections and the street diagram and sections that we are in the guidelines. Uh, and actually, in fact, what we did intend, and it's in here, but it's, it's not as clear as it could be. And so we would like to add this sentence that at the beginning of the street section, generally street sections provided in section 3.6.9 of the sector plan override street sections and dimensions provided in this section. That was our intent. The sector plan is over here and the guidelines are over here. Um, and we, we totally agree we could have made that clearer and we will. That's a good one. Keep going. The next comment uh, we received is about the green cover section. There was a desire to add additional allowances towards the 35% green cover as required by the sector plan. Um, so something that we, I'll bring up again later during the staff revisions part, uh, the language in this section actually comes directly from the sector plan, and we acknowledge that that may not have been clear, and we're going to discuss that later. But so we can't modify the actual sector plan language. That's part of the resolution approved by the county council and others. However, included in that language is language that says, quote, site area for green cover may be reduced to accommodate other environmental site amenities or where desirable to achieve other sector plan objectives. And that language provides flexibility about other ways that you could either achieve the green cover or reduce those bullet points that we listed as the ways to achieve it if you are adding in either, I mean, environmental site amenities and is, is a quite large category, and to achieve other sector plan objectives, we have stated objectives, environmental objectives, and there's many other ways to meet them aside from the few here. So I think we think that provides enough flexibility 
uh, and actually it's the same language that was in Bethesda and it's been used successfully in lots of projects so um, we feel confident about uh, the applicability of this. Quoting the sector plan is always a good idea. Right. <laughs> Next comment um, is that it's not clear in these guidelines uh, perhaps that unique corner treatments are permitted, meaning you know, perhaps not providing a step back, having something come down to the corner. Um, and planning staff actually feels that we do address this in two locations. First of all, we say in the beginning of section 2.3.2, .2, uh, which is the section where we introduce the whole building components, base, middle, top uh, approach, we say distinctive corner and entry treatments may differ from the base, middle, and top guidelines to enhance the building facade. So that's one way of saying you can do other cool things there. You, don't, you can be a little outside the lines. And even in the tower section, when we discuss tower step backs on particular street types, we say step backs should be provided across the majority of the building, but it can partially extend to the ground in important locations. Again, that could be not just the corner, that could be somewhere else, the building entrance or what have you. Um, so we think that's covered in these two statements and we don't feel additional language is necessary. Why, why is towers capitalized? Uh, because in the guidelines we talk about base, middle, top, towers, caps as particular pieces, Sections. a building component, okay. um, and so that this is just a quote from there, so that's why it's capitalized. Okay. The parking section. So the comment is that the design guidelines are not flexible enough regarding concealing or screening structured parking. Um, we do, the guidelines have language that says we'd like to see the parking as embedded in the building as possible, and then say if that's not possible, then uh, there was a reference to the Montgomery County Zoning Ordinance 6.2.9.D.1, which is a screening, uh, which talks about screening open garage floors that face a right-of-way. And so the guideline says, we'd like you to do this, but if not, remember that there's this zoning ordinance. And the comment asked us, could, the, the comment that was given asked if we could remove the reference to the section in the zoning ordinance. Um, and our comment is that, we, we bring that, or I mean, that zoning ordinance applies whether or not we mention the guidelines or not, uh, and we bring it in there as a form of sort of reminding that if you can't achieve what we're asking for, which we realize there may be site constraints, we should just be reminded that the zoning ordinance has something to say about this. This is where to find it. Um, I don't think we were, you know, being, we weren't, that's not a means of being, you know, more uh, restrictive in any way. Another parking comment. So there's existing text about surface parking uh, for the parcels that are zoned CRN in the adjacent communities. And the way the text is written, the comment suggested that it may be interpreted that it precludes surface parking elsewhere. And upon review of this sentence, we've decided that since the current, the way the sentence is written, it says that the guidelines permit something in the, in the adjacent communities, but actually the guidelines don't permit or forbid things generally. So we, uh, we just think we'd rather take that sentence out. The code permits or doesn't permit parking based on the zoning and that those rules are going to stand. We haven't changed those in the overlay zone, so we're uh, proposing just take that out. That was something we should have removed initially. Uh, next comment. So the next section, we've got a few comments in the adaptive reuse of building section. Um, the first one was asking, uh, that saying it wasn't quite clear which buildings in the plan we're, we're saying this treatment could be applied to, and actually we do have a table that goes through the buildings that we didn't make it clear enough that we're saying we're just talking about these buildings in the table, so we're gonna add, um, as actually suggested by uh, the um, as by Ms. Silver's team, that just to add that reference to the table to make it clear that buildings that are not in the table are not considered for those 
that's totally fine. In fact, we have more staff comments on this section and the general organization. I'll, I'll get to those in a few minutes. An additional comment from a member of the public um, is that, uh, so the, just to remind everybody, in this section, there are two strategies for historic preservation of sort of the fronts of historic buildings. And that is, and, and to be clear, this is not talking, and this is one of the things we're going to make clear. None of this is talking about buildings that are on the master plan for historic preservation. This is all talking about locational atlas sites, um, which uh, is sites that have not yet been mapped to the um, master plan for historic preservation. So they do not have that, that level of designation is different and we're not um, talking about those sites here. And that's something we, we're gonna make clearer in the section and I'll bring that up in a minute. But what we've talked about here is that um, for frontage preservation, going back 20 feet, if you want to preserve the frontage, and then going up and building a new development beyond that, and for facade preservation, 10 feet. And the comment we got is that that was not enough. They wanted to see more like 30 feet or something like that. And um, historic preservation planning staff looked at that, and their response is that they've learned from experience on doing lots of projects like this where you're either preserving the frontage or the facade and they've seen that 10 to 20 feet actually is it's working. Um, those 10 to 20 feet is also in the range of the step backs that we're asking for for new development in the downtown. So it would, you know, it would be contextual and make sense. 30 feet is quite a deep setback. Most sites would have a hard time accommodating that and then being able to have a functional building beyond that 30 feet, given sort of other tower separation rules and things like that they'd have to contend with in the downtown. So um, that's that's our response to that particular comment. Uh, I don't know if there's any more questions about that. And then we have a comment um, to the park section. So in the park section, we showed a, so throughout the guidelines, if you saw, we have some renderings provided for us by, we, we worked with a rendering team. They're super illustrative. They have no bearing on actual um, reality more to give the, you know, inspiration and ideas for how things could be transformed. But obviously there's numerous ways to transform any particular site. There is a rendering of the south part of Georgia Avenue, including where uh, the sector plan actually proposes a new pedestrian crossing right at, um, I think it's called Jessup Blair Park Road, which is at the, the part, the road in between the park and Montgomery College. And we, we developed that rendering because that was actually in the plan of section of Georgia Avenue that people were having a hard time imagining a better future for, and we felt it would be great to just develop an image that could help people imagine, oh, it really, that park could be easier to access, the crossing could be safe, it could look a lot different there. So we, in that image, we developed, you know, a new entrance to Jessup Blair Park at that corner, just to show that a more exciting, engaging entrance would be great. We, there was, you know, the renderer made up the entrance and we said, put some, you know, put some people doing cool stuff there. And, you know, that's it. There's no, um, it's not reflective of any actual design at all for that part. And so that rendering in the sector plan, like I've said, is entirely illustrative. It highlights that uh, a new inviting entrance to the park would support the sector plan recommendation for the crossing this location, but the design of that entry point will be discussed and, you know, during the facility plan community engagement process, it'll follow all the normal um, procedures, that rendering will not have any impact on like the final design of the park or that entrance or the treatment of any trees or hardscape there. So, um, so another other comments that we received from outside, uh, you know, not our own, the staff team. So the planning board chair gave us a bunch of editorial comments um, and those are all very, you know, very much editorial. And we went through uh, the guidelines with MCDOT and they gave us sort of two 
categories of comments. Most, many of them were editorial as well. They caught some additional grammar typo things that we had not caught ourselves. And they wanted to make sure that we were clear in our language as it relates to the Complete Streets Guide and making sure that we make it clear, um, you know, that if we said, if we didn't mention that something was permitted, they want us to make sure we mention that so it doesn't seem like we're conflicting with anything in the guide because we aren't intending to. So there was a bunch of clarifications of that nature. No new recommendations, really not even changing any text that goes to recommending anything. Um, I do, I have their comments here if anybody wants, to, if, we, if we need to go through them in more detail, but they're, they're really minor from that perspective. Okay. We appreciate their collaboration on short notice. I will just want to note that, that they turned it around quickly and uh, was really helpful. Commissioner Hill. Yeah, I have two points, and I want to pull these out of the uh, Art Deco Society of Washington yes. letter. And one is sort of, you, you addressed one of their points about the, his, the you know, setback for historic buildings. But this was more general, and that is, I brought up last time that there really is no vernacular architecture right, in our region because we're in between north and south. and. Um, but I thought the Art Deco Society made an interesting point, that the commonality of distinctive architecture in Silver Spring historically might be Art Deco as a style. And I just wanted to put that forward as an idea. Last time I think we talked about this, we were sort of like, well, having lots of unique buildings that somehow are sympathetic to each other might become the style there. But I, they make a good point about you know, the commonality of what's there already, mostly as a period statement, I think, is, is that type of style. And I just wanted to pull that out. Yeah, certainly, um, it's, there are certainly a lot of Art Deco buildings in Silver Spring, and we noted that you know, in our sector plan explorations. Um, the guidelines don't speak to any particular style. You could have an Art Deco building that follows the guidelines. You could have a modernist building that follows the guidelines, a traditional building. All of those styles, uh, we expect to see a wide range of styles, and I think something, um, you know, that is something that somebody came forward and presented something in that style, and presented as particularly sensitive to the context, I think the DAP would be interested to hear, you know, to hear about that context. And But it's, um, we're leaving, we, we don't really want to comment on architectural style and the guidelines. It's, it goes a little bit beyond the scope of um, what the purpose of the document is. Yeah, I don't think this is like some California towns that have, uh, we, we like white-facing uh, stucco and, and orange roofs. Uh, so we're not looking for that kind of uniformity. and and. As guidelines, these are leaving the, a lot of the design options open. Um, okay. So that's the real response to that. And, and their second point I just want to tease out for a minute is they mentioned about preserving uh, garden apartments in, in significant areas. And um, I would like to sort of take this opportunity to kind of make a, from my experience with historic preservation sort of things, that if that's an important thing to the community, I think it's important that the community decide specific best example types of that and start getting them designated. Because it seems to me preserving that density is flies in the face of what's really an urbanization process that's happening here and there are good reasons for that urbanization process. And that um, it, you know, one, one of the problems you have sometimes in historic preservation and changing areas is you don't get ahead of the ball and you end up only being able to preserve the things that are organically left behind because they didn't get built on. The, and if this is an important community value, I think the, you know, the, we need to move on that. Uh, and in the past, the historic preservation has moved on that. Uh, Montgomery Blair apartments, and there are other examples of garden apartments that are actually designated okay. at this point. All right, well, that was a comment that the, the society made about that, and uh, 
And I may be behind the ball on what's actually designated, but. Yes, it's actually a recommendation in the sector plan. Yeah. That's why they mentioned it in the letter, because they were very supportive of that recommendation during the process. There are already two garden apartment properties in uh, Silver Spring that are designated, uh, the southern portion of the Falklands Apartments and the Montgomery Arms Apartments. And the sector plan goes into extensive discussion about all of those different garden apartment, other pro- the other properties that are not yet designated, and recommends the creation of a garden apartments historic district, which is what Art Deco Society is referencing. They uh, they supported that recommendation and it is in the sector plan. At the same time, the sector, since it recommends the study of the creation of that district, it doesn't create the district in the plan. Mm-hmm. It also recommends at the same time that if if that does not happen and some of these properties come would be added to or redeveloped, there are a bunch of sort of guidelines um, and sort of rules about maintaining affordable housing and green space. So it, the, the sector plan tries to um, look at it from both directions. We should study the creation of a district, but if that district does not happen, we wanted to provide guidance on how to still acknowledge and respect some of the historic and important nature of those properties, even in redevelopment. And so that's why the guidelines wants to build on that and continue providing design guidelines to support um, the possibility in the sector from the sector plan that either you would just add to the property, even if it was um, uh, historic, or that you might take a different approach, but even so, those guidelines would apply. That's okay. Okay. Anything else? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the next, I just want to run through the few things that the staff noticed that we would like to clarify um, in the guidelines as well. So this is our own comment and our own proposed revision. I think there's just three items here. Um, so one thing that um, we have noted in our own review uh, is that so there, the section 2.3.3, we say this, but I, it's not clear enough, and we'd like to be clearer about it. The residential development for the CRN zoning. So CRN zoning does not allow for optional method development, and the reason, and so therefore, these guidelines are really pr- provided for informational use only, and that's the change we would like to make. It it says it in here, but it is embedded in another sentence. It's not a standalone sentence. It's not clear. Um, the reason why we're including them in the guidelines at all is because this was an entirely new approach uh, in terms of rezoning that we had not necessarily done before um, in terms of taking R60 properties that abut the uh, former CBD, a downtown. The transition is very strange today. You've got very tall apartment buildings and literally the next parcel, a single-family house. And that was something that was talked about extensively uh, during the sector process and at the council work sessions. And the decision was to rezone those at sort of a CRN, a CR sort of neighborhood zoning, which allows for lower, much lower FARs, and the FAR assigned as 0.75, and that's um, right in the range of CRN. Um, the goal, we set the C value to zero in order to encourage that we're not trying to expand the commercial downtown, we're trying to encourage denser residential on that edge between the single family neighborhood and the downtown. And even though those projects, if those parcels get redeveloped, they'll only go through standard method. Optional method is not an option in CRN in the zoning code. We wanted to sort of provide a page or two of this was this was the sort of residential development that would that could take place here um, as examples because it's not a typology that we have a ton of um, in this area. But they are truly for informational use. Those projects won't go to the DAP or anything like that. And we just want to make that 100% clear. Good idea. Um, the next one is just, like as I alluded to before, in the adaptive reuse of building sections, 
we've got two separate sections about locational atlas, and they're, they're not next to each other, and we just want to reorder the sections. So locational atlas goes first with the table, then we talk about garden apartments, then we talk about other buildings that are old but have no historical significance, sort of goes in order of highest significance to lowest significance, just make more sense that way, um, just something that we thought of after reading some comments and looking through the section again, talking to a star preservation staff, and we all decided this would be better. So that's um, a change we're going to make, unless there's any opposition. And as I alluded to already in two cases, but there are a few more cases, there are several locations where the guidelines restate the sector plan recommendations, and it's not always perfectly clear in the text which bullet points are from the sector plan. Um, these sections I list here, 1.3 urban design goals, 2.2.2 um, green cover, and 2.4.3 urban park subcategories. Those are the, the sections with the most sector plan content, but we will make sure that everywhere that we do that, we make it clear and we say the following text is from the sector plan, colon, so that it will be obvious um, which are additional guidelines not from the sector plan and which are sector plan text. Uh, and I think that um, that's something that we should have been more uh, rigorous about, and we will, we will do that. And I believe that is the last comment. Um, and so uh, we are, um, the original plan, I think, was for us to ask for the well, approval can, today. Can, yeah, Elsa, can I interrupt? That? So just sort of reading the board, yeah. I, so we have two options in terms of next steps. If the board, so the board seems generally comfortable with everything we've talked about. One option is for the board to approve the design guidelines today with the changes that we've discussed. The second option is to uh, sort of have the, a final document come back. We would need some time to make the updates and post it online and sort of have the original and have the final, the, the, the draft draft and the final draft and then a crosswalk document. Um, and then we would ask the board to approve that in two weeks. Um, so I, I think both options are available to the board um, today. I had uh, generally said that we should approve things where we have the language in front of us. So I sort of um, went f would go for the um, return on the ninth. But uh, I think we the, the the changes do not seem particularly extensive in any manner, way, shape, or form. I agree. So, yeah. Are you content with uh, approving it approving today? It are you approving it right today? Yeah. I would wait until we have yes. the final wording, and we've had a request from someone in the public asking for that, I believe. We did? And we just added in the testimony. To see the language? Come on up, Stacy. <laughs> um, again, for the record, Stacy Silver with the law firm of Electorally and Brewer. This is the first time that we've we've seen the proposed changes, um, and it would be our preference to be able to take a look at it first and provide any comment. I mean, I'm happy to respond to a couple of things. I think in general, we're in agreement, and we appreciate staff's proposed changes. There are a couple of um, items that kind of those that have reviewed have obviously not had a chance to look at. Um, so I'm happy to kind of provide a, a couple of points of feedback if that's helpful. And um, the board's option, do you want it in writing and coming back or no? I mean, I'm, I'm indifferent. I, I think, uh, yeah, we can, we can come back. 
Why don't we get it in text and then you can see how, how it looks to you and, and come back on the ninth if that's okay with the board members. Okay. Okay. So we'll come back on okay. the ninth. Thank well, you very much. Thank you. Okay. And thank you, Ms. Abrams, for tolerating our dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do we can we go to approval of the committee or do we are we waiting is that a separate section it's a separate item yeah. a separate item I never know how the items <laughs> but okay oh I look at oh you're right I should look now and then
right, welcome to the back to the afternoon session, the morning session of January 26, 2023. We are now on item nine, no, not item eight, Silver Spring Design uh, Advisory Panel uh, appointment of members. Uh, I'll turn it over back to staff again. Thanks, uh, Tara Margulies, Down County Planning. So uh, we are bringing the uh, nominees for the Design Advisory Panel for Silver Spring. Um, I don't know if we have to recap what the Design Advisory Panel is. I think we've covered that here. Um, but it is being implemented as a recommendation from the Silver Spring Downtown and Adjacent Communities Plan. I think that's uh, worthy of note. And to talk a little bit about what it will be is there will be a five-member panel uh, made up of a, a range of different design professionals and those uh, related have a you know interest in the built environment. Uh, and this note that the Silver Spring Design Advisory Panel um, needs to represent the diversity of the community as per the Silver Spring Downtown Overlay Zone uh, text in the zoning ordinance. So here are the roles that uh, are going to be filled on the panel. So the uh, we need to have a registered slash experienced architect from the greater Montgomery County community, a registered slash experienced landscape architect from Montgomery County, an architect slash urban designer who represents the academic community, a Silver Spring community member who could be a professional or just a personal, have a personal interest in design and development, and a member of the development community. So we're going to go through our, um, so we got, I would note, we got uh, 28 applications in our process, which was a pretty good response, actually. Um, a wide variety of folks who met all of the, you know, were each applying for um, some of these different roles. Uh, we did have a lot of design professionals from Silver Spring itself, which I thought was particularly great that we had so many people from Silver Spring who really invested in the future of, um, of the downtown. So that uh, was, was a great uh, selection. It was difficult. We had so many qualified people. Um, we did uh, do a handful of interviews. Um, and then we ended up with these nominees. So I'm just going to talk really briefly about them. Oh, something else to, to note. The, uh, it's in the staff report as well. We rec so we start the panel all at once, but there's staggered terms, right? So then it rolls over in a staggered process. So we don't do this all, you know, so there's a, a good overlap and we don't um, have to find five new members each time. That's pretty standard. But I just want to um, point that out. We list the recommended term in the staff report um, for each person. So if that's something that the, um, you guys want to talk about, we can, we can talk about that as well. So um, we're nominating Bill Bonstra as the, for the registered architect role. He's an architect who has 30 years of experience. He's the founder of Bonstra Harrison. Um, designed a lot of buildings in Silver Spring and, and working on some more. And his recommended term is three years. Xiaoju Yu is a landscape architect. She was formerly on the Bethesda DAP, and we thought it was particularly great to have somebody who has DAP experience. Now that we're creating a second DAP, uh, then that might be a great, a great transition opportunity for us. She does have 20 years of experience in landscape design, both in the public and private sectors, and her recommended term is two years. Um, for the academic position, we're recommending David Cronrath. Uh, he's been at Maryland for a long time. He's currently the Associate Provost of Planning and Special Projects. He's the former Dean of the uh, School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, a 40-year career in architecture and academia, and his recommended term is three years. And, and the longest re resume I've ever seen. <laughs> and a very impressive CV, yes. Um, for the community member, we are recommending um, Alice Enns. She is also uh, happens to be a licensed architect and an urban designer um, who's uh, worked for, for at least uh, 10 years in the area, and her recommended term is four years. 
and from the community, from the development community, we're recommending Prash Kaspakar, who is a uh, developer at Enterprise Community Development. She has 15 years of affordable housing development. She was a former member of the Silver Spring Citizens Advisory Board, which we thought also added a good, a good additional Silver Spring connection to this to this DAP. And her recommended term is two years. Uh, those are the folks we're recommending to start off the DAP with. We're really excited. We think it's a great, diverse group. They re they really represent. Um, the interests we're interested in, in terms of those roles, but also uh, there are at least there are at least two people who live in Silver Spring now. I think uh, at least three people who have lived in. You know, there's there's a lot of Silver Springers here, which we think is also just important and um, kind of important for Silver Spring. In fact, no, it's great, uh, Commissioner. Yeah, I just have a question as a as a Silver Springer myself. Yes. Um, well, former Silver Springer. Um, so um, just to be clear, uh, what is the number uh, of, of uh, slots on the advisory panel? Is there a preset number? Yes, these five. Okay. The five there's always five, like the roles I listed here, five roles. These are the five roles. Okay. Um, this pretty much matches up with the Bethesda DAP um, generally in terms of architect, landscape architect, um, somebody from the academic design community. It could have been an architect or landscape architect. It could have been a range. We had a range of applicants for that. So a Silver Spring community member, that community member could be another professional. It could be somebody who is retired and had a career in, in something related. It's a, you know, again, a wide range for that. And then a member of the development community. Turns out that we have overlap. We have a number of Silver Spring community members who also check these boxes, which right. like no, adds but some what, what I'm asking is, is, is five the, the ceiling or the floor? It's the, the only. It's the the. It's the okay. It is the ceiling and the floor. Ceiling and the floor. Yes. Okay, that's it. Just um, I will add that DAP meetings are public. Anybody can attend, uh, and that's in the rules of procedure. That was also an attachment to, um, to this item. Uh, well, I didn't go over those here, but those are basically the same as the Bethesda rules of procedure that they've been operating under. But happy to take comment on that as well. And so the way it works is everybody can attend. The meetings, they're hybrid, so you don't have to show up here to attend them as a member of the public. And I think if there's, when they go through the DAP, uh, whatever is in front of them that day, if there is additional time, they, they allow members of the public to comment. Um, but certainly people can always submit comments to us at any time. That's you know, part, of our, part of our process. So uh, it is, and then there will be, every time there's an opening, we'll repost it and all that stuff, and we'll have another public nomination process. So is it subject to the Open Meetings Act when you say everybody can attend? I, I believe so, yeah. It yeah. is? It is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Commissioner Presley. Oh. Commissioner I just wanted to say what, what a fantastic lineup. Um, we're real honored to be able to have all five of them on the team. So great, great job in, in getting them on board. Com Commissioner Panero. Yeah, question, uh, just a couple of questions. Um, I assume that these are volunteer positions. Uh, they're yes, not getting yes, paid. Yes, this is totally volunteer. And uh, the second question is, if because you mentioned that somebody was uh, was an architect on projects that he had done and projects that are coming up. If if a project is coming up for the design guidelines, they have to recuse themselves from it. Yes. We've had that experience in Bethesda, yes. If it's your project coming to front of the DAP, you would recuse yeah. yourself from that conversation. I assume, yes. yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much. Sure. Anyone? No? I see no other hands or lights or anything. I'll entertain a motion. 
Uh, Mr. Chair, I, I nominate we, uh, or I move that we nominate we accept the nomination. Wow, um, I'm torturing myself. Uh, I move that we accept the nominations recommended by staff for to populate the uh, Silver Spring um, Design Advisory Panel. And the rules of procedure? Second. Oh, let, let's do the rules of a procedure in a second here. Uh, uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 All right. Now we do have rules of procedure that the, that the that staff wants us to approve. Uh, you know, I never object to making rules for somebody else, but they're to a large degree. I would sure like them to make their own rules. Um, you know, they they the rules dealt with a lot of the selection process of, of the members themselves, which is an issue for us. Yet the rules did not go into detail on how uh, meetings are conducted, who, who conducts, uh, who presents. Uh, it, did, it did go into public comment and what happens to public comment. I thought those, those routines were fine. But I'm just saying this, uh, being long-winded, to, to say uh, I'm okay with rules as long as the committee itself can come back and say we want to change the rules. You know, so with, I, 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 I hate, I don't want to shoot, you know, tie somebody's hands before they even start. But um, what I might suggest, and this is also based on a conversation we had, I think there, the the rules of procedure would benefit from a paragraph sort of explicitly laying out sort of the conduct of the meetings. I think that's something that is in that something that should be added. <laughs> in, uh, in terms of so for Bethesda, you know, as we were doing this, we um, you know originally we didn't have a provision for public comment, and then we got the request, and then and then we brought that back to the board. So in the past, for Bethesda, we have used the board as sort of the authority to approve rule changes, especially for one of the rules deals with appeals. Um, and so I think we, want, we didn't want the DAP to be in a position of saying, no, you can't do this, no, you know, yes, you can do that. So I think we would still prefer to come back to the board with substantive, I mean, if there are minor changes, then maybe not. But if there are substantive changes, I think we would still want to come back to the board with those. Okay. Um, I, I would like to see, I, w I would like you to insert the paragraph on procedures a little bit myself. I see some nods. Yes, I'm seeing nods. <laughs> I always look for nods. Miss uh, uh, Presley, I see your hand up. Commissioner. Yes, I, I'm in agreement with the chair's comments, really. I mean, you, you guys have a model for doing this with the Bethesda DAP, and you have uh, like a self-governance, and we've approved, you know, or will be approving the positions. It, it Other than something, as you mentioned, like appeals process, I would think you would set your own structure in accordance with open meetings rules and, you know, Robert's rules of order. And I, I just would hate for future boards to get in the, in the habit of having to review and revise and approve your revised uh, governance rules and, and conduct rules. Is this, is it only with DAP that we're doing this sort of thing? It, it is, the DAP has, uh, you know, it, 
it's a unique function within the department. Um, and again, I think we want, so I, we're happy to make smaller changes. I think if they're changes that affect the public that, it, that have a larger impact, like I said, we would want to come back to the board to address those types of things. Right, I, I, I particularly like okay. what, what was in your guidelines on uh, if, the, if the public makes comment to the DAP, it gets to the board directly. Uh, I, I think that's <coughs> really very Okay, that's very, sensible. It's very yeah. good, really. Yeah. Um, Commissioner okay. Pinero. No. I don't have any questions, oh, uh, but I'm okay with your what mic's the on. <laughs> I, Oh, my mic is on. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's okay if you wanted to speak. <laughs> um, uh, why don't you make those changes and bring it back when we approve the uh, unless there's, is there going to be an interim medium of the board we just appointed or no? No, because until the design guidelines are fine, are approved, and they, uh, they can't uh, okay, actually do fine. it. Okay, fine. So, Mr. McGillicuddy. <laughs> I didn't understand that. I'm sorry. I think she's talking to us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell that. Um, oh, okay, why don't you come back on the 9th? We'll bring you back on the 9th with the... Uh, with the guidelines. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, very good.
Good morning still. This is the <coughs> January 26, 2023 uh, session of the Planning Board. We are on item nine, uh, uh, Comprehensive Water Supply and Sewage Systems Plan, proposed category map amendments, uh, cater uh, County Executives AD 2023-1, Administrative Group 3. Um, uh, and I'll turn it over to Catherine Nelson, who I haven't turned it over to in a long time. <laughs> nice Good to see, to see you. you. Good morning. For the record, I'm Catherine Nelson with the Up County Planning Division. And before you are three water and sewer category change requests. I'm going to go through them um, with some descriptions. Uh, even though these are the easiest of category changes that the board will see um, just to get you oriented to this process. For instance, on the screen before you now, um, the asterisks are the location of the cases, but the um, shaded area is this generally the sewer envelope of the county. Um, we're here because Maryland state law requires the planning board to weigh in on category changes. Um, the state, as you know, is very interested in uh, smart growth and not extending infrastructure um, in a way that is not planned. And so your job today is to look at the master plan that is associated with these different cases and make a determination as to whether or not um, extending water and our sewer service to these properties is in line with the area master plan. Um, so we will uh, look at those each. And um, just the image, just to get you um, oriented to some of the major infrastructure within Montgomery County, the image you see uh, the, of the Potomac water filtration facility this is uh, the major source of um, clean water within Montgomery County and Prince George's County. We also have a, a facility uh, on the Patuxent River that su supplies a lesser amount. Um, you see at the bottom of this screen the requirement for the review of a 10-year water and sewer plan. The, um, that's what the law says. Uh, it's now called the Water and Sewer Plan, and the Department of Environmental Protection is the keeper of that plan. So um, the Department of Environmental Protection has joined us today. Um, this is their package, and your comments will be um, um, forwarded on to the Department of Environmental Protection. Now this group is a, a group of administrative cases, which means they fit very, very well within policy and uh, the guidance within the master plan. So they do go through an administrative process. Next month, we'll be bringing you a group of what we call council cases. And these are a little bit more controversial and they're more on the edge of the proposed sewer envelope. And so we'll take a, a closer look at those in the future. Um, just to give you an example of some master plan envelopes, sewer envelopes. Um, believe it or not, the Omni is one of the most straightforward envelopes of the master plans. Um, but even one of those quadrants in Omni is a little bit convoluted. 
um, Clarksburg was actually staged because it was a brand new area for providing water and sewer service. Um, other envelopes are even more difficult. Um, the Sandy Spring Ashton, uh, the polka dot areas um, aren't exactly continuous, um, but they make sense when you look at it uh, from a site-by-site -site basis. Um, the most convoluted one is probably going to be the Potomac Master Plan. Um, the areas that you see are generally in the RE2 zone, and this is just an artifact of past policies where if the developer was willing to extend the infrastructure, they were allowed to do so uh, to service these areas, and generally you get a lot more density um, when you have... Uh, um, a sewer line as opposed to each home having their own mini treatment facility, um, which we sometimes call septic systems. So uh, we did our best to put an envelope around uh, all of the um, non-planned uh, sewer extensions. And so um, this is why it looks the way it does uh, at this time. Okay, uh, end of little mini um, uh, primer on this process. So the individual cases, um, we're in Damascus. Anya, uh, Alia, and Anmar Fuentes' property. They're looking for a connection to sewer service, and it has been found that they are already connected to water, so uh, a category change. Uh, retroactively is being requested as well. Uh, what you see is the Damascus sewer envelope and the, the gray shaded areas are the existing envelope at the time of the master plan and the red areas are areas where uh, that sewer envelope was extended as part of the master plan. And this property is in the red area. So this is well within master plan guidance and staff recommends uh, approval, um, as well as uh, the county executive, it's it's in accord with their recommendations as well. Moving over to Potomac, the Reese property. Um, you can. This is the property in the middle. <clears throat> there is a, a sewer line right out front. Um, so this property was developed on an individual septic system, but they have requested to uh, connect to the sewer. Um, the abutting mains policy allows a single connection. Uh, there's another policy called the Potomac Peripheral Sewer Policy, which also would allow them con to, to connect their home to the sewer system. So the recommendation is approval. And they're located uh, within the sewer envelope within kind of a donut hole um, in the Rock Run watershed. Uh, the final property uh, is located in uh, Glen Hills. Again, they just want to connect their existing home to a sewer main. Um, so that you can see the sewer main out front and um, so again, with the abutting mains as well as the peripheral sewer policy uh, allows the connection of this, um, 
this home to the system. Uh, this concludes uh, the presentation. Um, we, your comments will be passed on to the uh, acting director of the Department of Environmental Protection. And just one more big facility that we have um, in the county, the Seneca Wastewater Treatment Facility that services Germantown and Clarksburg. Thank you for that. We have, we have no public speakers for any of these items. Uh, uh, I'll ask Ms. Myers on whether we need to take these individually or can we do it as a group? I think if there's consensus among board members as to um, the, your recommendation for the three requests, you could take them as a group. I, I, I will note the, thank you for that. I will note that the uh, Treville property is one of the rare times we don't have a lot of opposition to a sewer extension in Treville. <laughs> uh, just because I have a little bit of history with that one. Um, any other commissioners have anything to say? Uh, Commissioner uh, Robert, uh, Panera. Yeah, I, just a question. I guess w, uh, WSSC has provided comments. They're okay with everything? Yes. If you look in the package, which is attachment A, um, this is the package that the Department of Environmental Protection has developed. And they've gathered comments from all of the um, oh, okay. pertaining agencies. So um, the Department of Permitting Services, our planning staff, the Department of Parks, WSSC for both water and sewer. Okay. Thank you. Nothing gets reviewed like water and sewer extensions. <laughs> oh, too much history. Um, anybody else uh, look like we're all okay? Anybody would like to make a motion? Mr. Chair, so move. Move approval of approval the Approval of the um, Montgomery County Comprehensive Water Supply and Sewer Surge System Plan Proposed Category Map Amendments, um, County Executive AD 2023 1, Administrative Amendment Group, three water sewer service category change requests. Thank you. That'll come up long in our minutes, too. Yes, <laughs> you can make it short. <laughs> uh, do I have a second? Second it. Second. All right, thank you. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think that concludes our, our morning session. Um, uh, uh, oh, oh, it's Alan Sook uh, I see on the screen, uh, a, a face from the past. Uh, I didn't notice him before. Thank you, Alan, for hanging in with us. We'll, we'll get you on a more controversial one sometime in the future. Uh, with no that, doubt. <laughs> With that, I think we're in recess until 2.45. We can't come back earlier if we can. No? Uh, Ms. Myers? We can come back earlier? Can we come back at 2.30? Are there, are there public speakers for...
the Rustic Roads there, work session? Um, there's some public participation. It's not. It's a work session. It's not a public hearing. Our internal agenda says 2.30. Oh, really? Okay, fine. We'll come back at 2.30. All right? 2.30. Thank you very much, everybody. Do we have lunch?
Good afternoon. Welcome to the, uh, I hope it's still December 26th. December. December. It's, uh, it's not it's December. Welcome, welcome to the. Oh, my watch only goes out seven days. So I was warned about. <laughs> oh, it's uh, welcome to the January 26th uh, meeting of the planning board. We are um, on item 10. It's the Rustic Roads Functional Master Plan Update. This is our uh, second work session. Um, we went through a, a fair bit of material, some of which are, is back for us to make some more penciled in decisions, and, and we'll go through the memo. Uh, and uh, this will not be our, our last work session for sure. We'll have a, another one dealing with uh, remaining issues and uh, some uh, recommendations on uh, legislation to change maybe the makeup of the uh, of of the uh, the board. Um, with, with that, I'll turn it over to staff to take us through their uh, memo. Good afternoon. For the record, Roberto Duke with the Up County Division. I'm here with my co-lead, uh, Jamie Pratt and Casey Roan from Historic Preservation. And uh, we're going to go over a number of topics today uh, uh, for this work session. Uh, first, we're okay for uh, work session number one. Of course, it was on uh, January 5th, so three weeks ago. And we discussed uh, three topics overall support for the programs in the plan um, and background information specifically about uh, dedicated but unmaintained roads bridges and state and road and park roads and we went by, uh, through recommendations by categories and there were I guess a number of uh, categories to go through seven I believe um, and today is a uh, work session number two and we hope to be back on uh, February 9th uh, with a third work session um, for today's discussion, we'll start with the continuation of uh, work sessions, uh, item uh, number one items, uh, about some individual road recommendations and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, then we will go through the plan content and organization of the plan itself. Um, and finally, the other main topic will be about rustic roads maintenance uh, concerns. And so for the continuation, the first topic uh, will be a continuation of a work session one items. And uh, the first one is uh, Ocker Lane, and I'll pass it over to uh, Casey Roan uh, to discuss uh, uh, briefly. Thank you. Uh, so for the record, Casey Roan, Historic Preservation Planner. Uh, at the last work session, you asked us to share a little bit more about the history of Awkward Lane. Um, so I'm here to do that for you. So th this history is very closely associated with the history of Holly Grove Road that is written out in, in more detail in the plan document. So Holly Grove Road and Awkward Lane together historically compri comprised the Holly Grove community, which was an African-American settlement that began in the post-Civil War era. In 1879, a land survey laid out over a dozen five to 10 acre lots um, in this area, many of which were purchased by African-American families. This survey also established two 20-foot wide rights-of-way um, for the use of these lots specifically. And these rights-of-way today are Holly Grove Road and Awkward Lane. 
Lots on both future roads were sold beginning in the early 1880s. Um, much of this property over time, these large lots were subdivided, passed on to family members, many to many descendants of the original owners, um, and additional homes were built throughout this community through the, the mid-20th century. Historical maps of the area give us some idea of the road's development. Uh, Holly Grove Road um, can be seen on local maps by 1908. That's circled in red on the map uh, at, at left. Um, while Awkward Lane does not appear on local maps until 1945, which you can see on the right there. However, its absence in the earlier map does not necessarily mean it wasn't there. Um, it could be that it was just less established as a road. Sometimes you know, less developed roads were not reflected on these maps. It could have been less prominent because it was a dead-end street or um, just less thickly settled. There are no um, designated historic sites along this road. And I can answer any questions about that and pass it back over to you to continue. Sure. Um, with uh, Ockard uh, Lane, we received public comments from uh, the Holly Grove uh, Historical Preservation Association, uh, the Cloverly Civic Association, and other individuals supporting designation of the road. Um, and we wanted to retain for the staff recommendation, we wanted to retain the current plans recommendation, which was not to designate the road rustic. And our rationale is that uh, while Ockard Lane meets uh, some of the criteria uh, to be designated as a rustic road, um, it doesn't retain the visual characteristics that distinguish these roads. Um, uh, there are no features that really particularly stand out on the road and there are no as Casey was saying there are no historic sites leading to historic sites and that sort of thing and we do have a Google view of the road if you would like to just uh, drive I don't say drive but walk down it or go down the road so if I get this right you're saying that it's historic but it's not historic and scenic which would classify it as rustic. Correct. It's it's not um, it's not scenic in, in any way because uh, one of the some of the criteria for rustic roads and is is located in areas where natural agricultural or historic features are predominant. Um, is a narrow road intended for predominantly local use? Uh, a, a road with low uh, low volumes of uh, traffic. Um, has outstanding natural features along its borders, such as native vegetation, stands of trees, and stream valleys. Um, and the history doesn't, uh, ha doesn't have a history of, of crashes and that sort of thing. Okay. Does anybody? Yeah. You, you named <laughs> off how many things? About six different factors? There are uh, predominant... Uh, Two, three, uh, four, four factors um, that I will say that part four, and let me read that uh, in full, uh, has outstanding natural features along its borders, such as native uh, vegetation, stands of uh, trees, stream valleys, provides outstanding vistas of farm fields and rural landscapes or buildings, or provides access to historic resources, follows historic alignments, or highlights historic landscapes. Then I asked you before about the historic alignment issue because I thought that was. I, I think I asked you that the last time. So, so of of the 
of the number of factors listed, you're saying that that awkward lane only meets, or awkward lane only meets, um, how many? Like half. <laughs> I, mean, I guess my question is, how how many of the listed factors does a road have to meet in order it, to be designated a rustic road? Is there a magic number, or is this a judgment call? It, it, it can meet just one of those factors, okay. so. But, but it has to meet all of the factors to be rustic, but there's one of the four, one of those factors has three different ways you can meet it. Okay. But it has to, can I borrow that? Sure. Sorry, for the record, Jamie Pratt. Um, the first criteria of a rustic road is that it's located in an area where natural, agricultural, or historic features are predominant and where master plan land use goals and zoning are compatible with the rural and rustic character. So you kind of have to ask yourself, and there's a lot of judgment calls with rustic roads, yeah. would you say that this is located in an area where natural, agricultural, or historic features are predominant? Whatever that might mean, it's not yeah. defined. Right, I'm not sure what that means either. Right. I mean, that that's just my point, is that there are just so many definitional, there are so many things here that are subjective in terms of, of how we choose to see them, how we choose to, to determine what these words mean. Um, and, I mean, I've, I've been down Holly Grove. I don't think I've ever been down Ockard. Um, but um, I just guess, I, I think at some point, I thought I read in your recommendations uh, some kind of suggestion that there should be a plaque or some some sort of designation. Did I see that? Was that about this one or about Holsey? Uh, that was about this one. That was about this one. Okay, so um, so you so so the suggestion is that this not be a rustic designated rusty road rustic road but that there be a marker designating its historic significance. Is that the, the gist of it? Um, that, that is what we're suggesting, but um, Casey, if you would talk about markers to the extent that you know how, I'd, maybe that would help. Sure, um, Casey Rowan, Historic Preservation for the record. So uh, there are avenues available if the community would like to pursue a historic marker, but they fall outside of our county's heritage area. So that would be a primary way for a, a sign like that to happen, and they unfortunately are not in that area. So that, that wouldn't be a path of support for them. We have a marker program through the Historic Preservation Office, so it's possible this could be a future topic for one of our um, untold stories markers. Um, yeah, those are those are options available to them. Okay. Um. <laughs> so the two alternatives, one isn't available. Right. I mean, so for example, the um, association could seek grant funding through um, other avenues, the state historical, um, the state historic society. You know, there may be other options available to them if they were to apply for funding. The heritage area is a primary avenue for that in the county that is unfortunately not available to this community because of their location. Okay, so, and then the second alternative is, um, is what? 
Um, well, we could designate the road rustic. Right. And then we would say we have <laughs> to describe. Isn't this where we started? Right, but we have to <laughs> hey, describe what, what is the significant feature of okay. the road that must be protected when it's maintained. And so right now all we've really got is its alignment, and it's not like DOT is planning on moving the road or anything like that. So it could honor the history at a, at a small level by adding it to this program. Um, but it doesn't seem like the visual character thing kind of comes into this where it's like if you drive down a lot of these rustic roads, there's no doubt this is a rustic road. I'm out in some rural area. And this one doesn't have that same feel to it. Even, even Holly Grove does because it's got some horse farms and a few agricultural fields. But you just, I just never get that sense when I'm going down Awkward. Keep going down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm just I'm just sort of at a loss here because I mean, it. I, I don't think. Um, um, I think the historic nature of this road is undeniable. You know, I I think that's true, and and what. You know, and as I'm looking at this, this is looking pretty rustic to me. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I, like I said, I haven't been down this myself personally. Um, what I am concerned about is that um, um, we seem to be in a place where there are a lot of judgment calls um, the residents would like to see it become rustic or be designated rustic. And the factors you've mentioned seem to me to be able to go either way. And instead of um, uh, aligning with, with what the residents have asked, um, we're trying to find a way not to do that. And, and I just don't see what the point of that is. So I, I just don't. That, that, that's all fine. Do you, are you making a motion to designate it? I sorry. am indeed. Uh, okay. I'm gonna, sorry, for the record, Patrick <laughs> Butler, I just wanted to say one thing. You just received uh, some correspondence uh, in your packet. I believe you only received the first page of this. It's from the Rustic Roads Advisory Committee. However, they did uh, submit uh, a packet, uh, entire packet yesterday before the deadline, but it looked like only the front page was distributed. So um, just letting you know, it, it is a uh, little bit longer of a packet. If there are, we're gonna enter that into the record. Um, and then if there are any questions uh, after the hearing, uh, when reviewing this, we can address those at the uh, third work session. Um, also, uh, it, was our it was staff's understanding that the RRAC uh, was going to be present today and be available should you have questions or, or like them to come up, just like the, the first work session. Um, so I, I think there may have been a little bit of confusion before we got going, but uh, that, that was our expectation. They are here. Uh, should you have any questions before you act on the first item or any item, they, they are available for uh, discussion. I will support staff's recommendation here. I think between scenic and rural and historic and environmentally sensitive, it, not enough checkboxes are checked off of this one. Okay, but that just means you'll vote no on Ms. Sharif. Okay, that's all. I'm just trying to get us to a consensus. <laughs> well, first I need a second for, first I need a second uh, for Ms. Branson's recommendation to make it historic. To make it rustic. 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 Oh, it is historic. 
It is historic. It's just not We've rusty. Established this historic. I think one. I think staff mentioned that if you know, a lot of road configurations are historic and they remain that way. And if that's the only thing we can hang our hat on here, you know, it it's still a historic road alignment. But we have lots of those that we don't recognize. Mr. Chair, that's just I how the roads develop. Yeah, I would be in favor of having like a plaque that says that it's historic and give it some significance for its historical character. But I'm looking here and I just, you know, it, it's close to Blake High School, it's close mm -hmm. to Stonegate, it gives access to other residential areas. I just don't see, I think that road in the future, they may want, even though in your um, writing part here it says that it's a dead end street, I don't think it is. I mean, I'm looking at a map here and it gives access to a residential area south of it. So, you know, I'd be inclined not to, the, to, to follow the, the recommendation from the staff. Well, can I suggest that, um, well, first of all, the, the packet we were just handed um, has a lot to do with this particular road. And, you know, I don't think we've had an adequate time to examine it. Um, I, does the... Um, does the advisory board want to weigh in on this? Come on, come on up. Press the mic, please. Laura Van Etten, I'm the chair of the Rusk Roads Advisory Committee. We did not vote on this. Um, we, we really didn't have enough members to do all the roads over on the east side of the county. Um, we didn't take a position on Holly Grove or Ockard. Um, I think what's missing here is the commissioners have not been run through the tests for a road and what criteria it meets. And um, when we evaluated this road amongst ourselves, we felt that it did meet several of the criteria. And then the optional ones are historic alignment. That's one of the ones that you get to select, one of three, I guess it is. But um, just recently when we looked at it, we felt honestly like Avery. When we ran Avery through our test of the criteria in the code, we felt there were several reasons why Avery could be um, designated rustic, but we never got to show you how you work through those sections of code. Um. I'll add one last comment, which is um, I th we've got two roads in an obvious community that is worth recognizing historically. And I think if we keep, I would be against removing Holly Grove Road because I think it does have some more of the rural character and it is important, I think, to keep one of those roads uh, in this classification. But of the two of them, Awkward Lane seems the least desirable to do that with. Well, um, I, I would love to be able to just designate um, this as, as or, to, or to have a, a marker of some sort that mm -hmm. designates it as historical. To me, that would be sufficient. But, but I'm being told we can't do that. Yes, ma'am. Oh, we've been provided a copy of the letter that was submitted to you, and I don't know if you've had a chance to see that beyond the staff report. Uh, within the letter are some photographs of a road running through a stream crossing. Uh, she has gone down the criteria that requ of requiring that you have to check off for a rustic road, um, and she is, she's addressed that with photos. So um, I, I think it's different than looking at a map because a map is not going to show you the, and I can't show you 
because I'm looking at it. But there are some beautiful photographs of a gravel road that's running through a stream crossing. She says, yes, the eastern half of the road has a lovely tree canopy as the road descends into a stream valley and crosses the right fork of the northwestern branch. Um, she says, okay, that's, I'm going the wrong way, but she has gone down the criteria and the checklist. She says, yes, Awkward Lane forms the spine of the eastern part of the historic Holly Grove community established in 1879. And um, as far as traffic safety, there's no crashes on the road. Um, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've been given a copy of the letter, and I think it would bear reviewing. Um, it's, it's a fairly organized community, and most of the members would like it to be rustic. And the photos that I'm looking at look far more rustic than the photos in the presentation. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, let me just say that um, th that's kind of my point. Can 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 uh, we did we, not get this this package? We, we can defer this to exactly. Next that's we, can, this is uh, Tanya uh, Stern, acting Tanya Stern, acting planning director. For the record, that's what I was going to recommend. Yeah. Um, to that the board can review this these materials and you can revisit this matter at the, the next work session. Yeah, I, I'd appreciate that because um, I, I think these materials do add something to to what um, to uh, to the materials that that um, uh, that the, the staff has oh. provided, um, and I think that is helpful to our, our deliberations. Okay. Next, um, actually. The staff report does say this final segment would likely qualify as a rustic road, but is not a public road and is therefore not eligible for the program. So right. if you see in this yeah. picture right here, the pictures that she provided in support of rustic designation were taken in the non-public, private part, unmaintained, ineligible part. So right at the where the cursor is right now on the screen is the end of county maintenance. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the rustic designation. And she is using this segment beyond that point to justify the rustic designation. So I just wanted that to be clear that she's she's gone too far down the road. She's right. It does look really rustic down there. But she's she's past the public road. So it's it you have to think about that when you're evaluating what she wrote. Sure, sure. Right. Uh, that, that was too easy, Jamie. Uh, be that as it may, if you still, again, want to take some time and consider this, we can certainly take it up at the third work session. Let's, yeah. let's take this one up sure. next time. Next one. Well, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Commissioner Presley, are you? I, I, I just wanted a small clarification. Does that, since it is not a public road, is that one of the must-have criteria where we don't have to wait, but if it isn't, it can't become a part of the program? Is that... A, a singular criteria fact that must be met. Yeah, that is, well, that wouldn't be become part of the program if we even if we designated the the, the right of way section that we do maintain. Yeah, half, right. Half the road is public, a half the road is private. Mm hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, as long as we can have more detail next time. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Next. All right, hello again, Casey Roan for the record from Historic Preservation. I'm just gonna tell you a, a quick history of Holsey Road. This is again in a lot more detail in the plan document, but this came up at the last work session. So I just wanna recap this history briefly. 
Um, so local tradition here holds that Holsey Road was first settled by African-American families who had been formerly enslaved at the nearby Mullinix Plantation, and that the road itself may have originated as a path leading to that plantation. It is also tied to the history of the nearby Friendship Community, which is just um, at the end of uh, Holsey Road where it meets Ridge Road, which was established by the 1880s. Holsey Road was clearly established on local maps by 1909 as an unimproved road with widely spaced buildings, probably houses uh, apparent on the map. Free African-American families were living in this area much earlier uh, by 1850, including Richard and Mahala Holsey, who the road is, is named for their family and their descendants. Holsey Road is also notably home to the Inez Ziegler Maccabee House, which is on our um, county locational atlas and index of historic sites. Um, I, uh, Inez Maccabee purchased this home in 1945, and she lived here during the time that she was working as a civil rights activist in the county. Her work began in the Damascus area and helped um, over time to desegregate the county during the civil rights movement. So she was a very prominent figure in our local civil rights history. Um, and that's, that's the summary of the, the history here. I'll turn it back over. Yes, um, and Roberto Duke again. Uh, staff did receive uh, testimony in support of uh, making this a rustic road and uh, testimony against making it a rustic road. Um, and the current recommendation in this plan is to uh, make it a rustic road. Um, and we wanted to mention uh, again that the zoning in the area are for five acre lots uh, with a 25 acre uh, zoning uh, at the end and that uh, properties along the road are not expected to receive uh, uh, pu uh, public water and sewer uh, at any time um, and that the long-range uh, plans for the area are consistent with the rustic road designation and I know that one of the things that you wanted us to also check was to um, for the uh, gentleman uh, Mr. Fleming that has spoken about uh, being against uh, the plan and that a number of uh, people were against the designation uh, we did uh, receive uh, information from him of people he spoke with, but it didn't say one way or the other as to whether um, to designate the road rustic or not rustic. Mr. Panera. Yeah, I'm looking here at a Google map, and I'm a little bit confused about what Holtzy Road is. Seems like when, you, when you're going on um, Ridge Road, and you turn right, there's a very long Holsey uh, Road, but then once you get to a certain distance, you can turn left and go north, and that street is also called Holsey Road. So are you talking about both roads, or just one, everything that's de designated as Holsey Road? Uh, Really just the, the road that's perpendicular to uh, Ridge Road. Uh, that oh, comes. so that's the short, that's a small road that goes up to a community there. Uh, but for example, the road that goes through Mount Lebanon Fellowship Church or through uh, River Bottom Trail Riders or that continues going east, that's not being designated. But that's also called Halsey Road. Well, there's an extent definition somewhere. Right. Yeah. 
here's uh, the Halsey Road that we're talking about. If you look at my cursor, is uh, following. Oh, the, so it's a long one. But, yeah, but it's a, it's a Halsey long Road line. is also, if you if you focus a little bit closer in, you will see that there's a, a small. Oh, right here. Yeah, that road that, going that up, it's also called Halsey. Is no. that also designated? No, that would not be designated with this plan. It would just be the, the longer The extent. long one. Okay. All right, just and clarifying. Just, and just right to uh, approximately the bend right there. Okay. All right, thank you. All right, we have a staff recommendation to declare rustic. Anybody want to offer anything opposite that? Okay. It's rustic. With West Hunter Road, uh, we uh, received comments to add uh, additional roadside vegetation, mature uh, forest east of Hilliard uh, Farm on the south side of the road is a significant feature. And uh, the RAC also pointed out that uh, previous work under the utility lines uh, took away some of the vegetation in the area. And so we, staff is proposing to add the, the following test, text as a significant feature, forested areas on both sides of the road east of Hilliard Farm. Uh, and this is uh, to show that that would be a significant feature. I see no objection. Oh, no, no objection. Come. I just saw your mic on. <laughs> okay, so we're okay? Okay, and then we received uh, for Barnesville Road, for the section of Barnesville Road between Old Hundred Road on the west and Slidell Road on the east, uh, we received a comment um, from MCDOT to verify that this uh, meets the requirement of being intended for primarily, predominantly local use. Um, and staff believes that this should be retained uh, in the plan, uh, this p portion of, of uh, Barnesville Road. Um, it's been in the, in the program since 1996, and it provides views, long views of rolling farm fields in Sugarloaf Mountain. And the road, it really is intended for to service homes and businesses in the area. Um, so we believe that there are other roads in the area that serve local traffic. So we, regional traffic, I'm sorry. Um, so we would uh, request that this stay in the plan. I see no objection to the staff recommendation. Okay. Um, with Kings Valley Road, uh, there is a proposal uh, from the RAC uh, to add, with the historic alignment, there's uh, a significant feature being the historic alignment, but to add to that, the historic alignment, including a jog in the road at Kingstead Road. Um, we request that this just be retained as a historic alignment, as the text is in the plan, and we have an image here uh, showing how Kings Valley Road aligns. So it, it comes... Uh, it, it comes to a 90-degree angle at uh, pretty much at Kingstead Road, but the, the jog in the road is actually Kingstead Road, and then Kings Valley Road uh, continues up. And we also wanted to point out uh, that the plan uh, does recommend not realigning this, uh, uh, this uh, alignment 
so keeping it as it is. Um, and this is a reversal from the uh, 2006 uh, plan of um, Damascus. Damascus plan. So there's already a statement in the, that, that says don't realign somewhere? Yes. In, our, in, in the current plan update. Okay. <laughs> then, uh, then the added language wouldn't do any harm either. Well, we just wanted to point out in, in this case that it is um, the road, the jog that you're talking about is really Kingstead Road versus Kings Valley. So Kings oh. Valley comes to a, to a 90 degree angle and then it starts up again uh, about 50 to 100 feet down the road, down Kingstead Road and goes, continues north. I'll take a position on this one, which is because it's a different road, I don't think it's adequate somewhere else in the plan to say don't change the alignment of the road because you could interpret that as being a different road. So I think a specific that, comment here that correct. says Commissioner we consider Hill. this part of the Kings Valley Road alignment. That, that's, is that's actually for, yeah. If it was the if it was the same road, one and the that's same, right. we'd have no problem with the addition. The problem with adding that as a significant feature in a jog, we're we're actually doing that as a road that is not the road that we're designating. Well, it's not the labeled road. You can argue right, whether this right. is the road halfway or not. Right. So that was our only hesitation, yeah. and and I, I think it's worth calling out. Otherwise, we would have because of that complication. Just right. Let's be explicit. So you're in support of the additional language? Yes, in this particular case, because there's a different road involved, and that's a question of observation and interpretation, and we would be explicit yeah. about the configuration. Yeah, I mean, even in your explanation, you're saying it's not doing any harm. So. Words are cheap. We don't charge a dollar a word here. We used so, to charge so the that one, in zoning text amendments. The one that you're recommending is the one, the 90 degrees is the one from Kingstead Road, the one going down south, or the one going up? Well, both would be in the Rustic Road program. Both, okay. both, both portions of Kings Valley Road okay. would be in the Rustic Roads program. It's just that um, the significant feature... Uh, talking about uh, the jog in the road yeah. as yeah. as being associated directly with Kings Valley Road. Yeah. Um, when in in actuality, it's it's part of uh, Kingstead Road. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tell me again. It does no harm. I mean, it it it, it <laughs> does no harm one way or okay. the the oh. other. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I see a consensus to put the words in. Okay. Um, with Lewisdale Road, um, there was a recommendation, or uh, the Rustic Roads, <clears throat> excuse me, the Rustic Roads Advisory uh, Committee recommended adding uh, the hedgerows that are in the traveling experience. So they are mentioned in the traveling experience and uh, adding them as a significant feature. Um, and Staff has looked at this and, and felt that it's difficult to determine exactly uh, the hedgerows and everything um, because it, it, they're not as organized as you would nor typically see with hedgerows. And we do have um, some Google Street views of that if you would like to see. Well, um, what, does, is anybody interested in anything other than the staff recommendation here? I look for Amy. No. Uh, so go ahead. We're okay. fine with the staff recommendation. 
And uh, with uh, Mount Carmel uh, Cemetery Road, uh, add the mature trees on the south side of um, Mount Carmel Cemetery Road is a significant feature, and this was suggested by the RAC. And uh, we propose not adding that. Um, the area on the maps uh, in, uh, the, in our uh, profiles already show um, the forested areas, but we don't believe it arises to the level of a significant feature. And we do have street views of this, if you would like to see them, um, for this particular uh, road. We're choosing between the trees and the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at this picture, I would say those trees look significant to me. Just to be clear, <laughs> the the uh, the the road is is going to be designated as a rustic road. Yes. Right? Yes. And so the only issue here is whether to include in the description a mention of these trees as a significant feature. Correct. Okay. Yes. And so staff does not believe that the trees are a significant feature. And so my question is why? Well, we, we believe that they are, you know, appropriate, you know, they're nice trees in the, in the, in the uh, siting of the, of the land and everything, but they're also on private property. Um, and uh, it's an area where if MCDOT is coming to maintain things, they'll over maintain the overhang and that sort of thing. But... Um, are, will, will they do any other maintenance on these trees? No, it's unlikely. Okay, I mean, my, my um, I, I think, you know, I just keep going around Robin Hood's barn with you all about this, and, and that is that there's really not a lot of fleshing out of what these, um, of what these words mean. There's not a lot of definitional clarity. And, and all I'm asking, is that you use um, words or descriptions that provide definitional clarity. I don't have any, any problem with what you have described here, um, but I think it would be good for the public to understand that you do not consider these trees a significant feature because they are on private property and yada, yada. I mean, that, that people... Instead of just saying it's not significant, let's just keep it moving. I mean, I, I, I really think the goal has to be helping people understand what is and is not. Um, because, you know, that way people can agree, people are going to agree with you or disagree with you anyway. Uh, but at least, at least, you know, you'll know why. I mean, my question is. Do you, in any other definition of a rustic road, consider the trees? Because to me, trees don't have anything to do with the road. I mean, you're looking at the road, whether there's there might be trees today, there might not be. Does that change the definition of rustic? So Some, sometimes they, sometimes they are significant features when, when there's... Have Next we, to the road, they, they, uh, they narrow the road, they, yeah, they make it... Well, closer, but we're we're never going to go through this uh, trying to describe what is not in the plan and what we don't do. We yeah. can we should only describe what we do do. Is this going? Go ahead. 
Um, significant features may be on private property. I mean, when you just mentioned Barnesville Road, there's views of Sugarloaf Mountain. That's in Frederick County, and it's still a significant feature. So the issue here would be, and I don't know this piece of property, let's say someone bought this, it goes to subdivision, and they want to put a building back there, or let's say they want to put their driveway to the building right through there. We can say to them, could you please move your driveway five feet to the right or left or whatever and avoid these trees, which must be protected by law right, when improvements are made. And that's where our letter would go to you guys, and you could decide, we're just advisory. But people in our, my experience have been very happy to say, oh, didn't think of that. Yeah, we'll move it outside the root zone of these trees, we'll put the driveway over here. That's, that's what it's for. And I think that's very helpful to understand. I look at this picture, I look at the trees, I see canopy, I see shading, uh, root zones probably fit into the right of way. I think for all those reasons, these are significant. I mean, I don't see anything uh, unique, unusual. Uh, I mean, it adds value, again, for the shading and all of that, but every tree does that. And every stand of trees does that. But uh, I'll go with whatever ma the majority wants. Do you want to say that these trees are significant? I would say yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. No. And is that no? <laughs> yes. For me, the trees are not. All right. Let's put it to vote then. Sheree? I'm going to go yes on the significance of the trees. All right. We're going to have significant trees. The majority here. goes. All right. Mouth of Monocacy Road. With the uh, Mouth of Monocacy uh, Road, um, the RAC, <clears throat> excuse me, wanted us to include the Little Monocacy Viaduct as a significant feature, and we are proposing to keep the text as is. <clears throat> the, ro um, the road profile already specifies the alignment of the road as it goes under the uh, Little Monocacy Viaduct, um, and also because of the span of the viaduct itself. Um, you know, it, it's not something that MCDOT could maintain or preserve it um, or not. Um, so we think this is um, an issue that's outside of the, the, the boundaries of this particular road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can uh, click on here to show you. Hopefully this comes up. So this is a little Monocacy Road. Um, mouth, mouth of Monocacy, <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, it is. I keep going the wrong way. May I comment on this? Um, I live on this road, and um, I noticed in the plan, Game Preserve Road has a 1906, the train bridge, railroad bridge, that's a significant feature. This is a 1906 B&O Railroad Bridge, same year, similar but obviously broader. Um, it carries traffic um, of the train over the road and a river and then over the road again. If one's a significant feature, why shouldn't the other be? Again, they don't have to be something DOT maintains. It's something that's, you know, an important visual feature of the road. And um, DOT's right-of-way on this part of the road is 30 feet. It could be possible they get over close to the viaduct on one side. So 
That was uh, just for consistency. I thought it might be nice to put this in by this gift. This is Casey Rowan, Historic Preservation. I'd just like to add a piece of information here. The Little Monocacy Viaduct is a site listed in the Locational Atlas and Index of Historic Sites. So any um, proposed work that would impact that structure itself would already come before the Historic Preservation Commission. So it, it has an additional layer of protection through so, that. So, so the road is within the uh, uh, historic, uh, I forgot the- The environmental setting. Environmental setting. That's a good question. I don't know, but I don't know if we've thought in three dimensions necessarily. <laughs> well, environmental settings, I would think, have to reach the land. Yes. So they, they if, can't be if the road air. were to be, you know, widened to the point that it was impacting the structure of the viaduct, that would come through historic preservation regulation. Um, for the record, Jamie Pratt, I, the, this is like a very subtle nuance to the language of the significant feature. And the only reason that we're suggesting it not be a significant feature is because of the definition of significant feature is those features that MCDOT must maintain, must preserve when maintaining or improving a road. So we thought nothing that MCDOT would have any effect on, on this viaduct. So the alignment under the viaduct is the current significant feature and they control that but they don't control the viaduct itself. But it's a very subtle distinction. <laughs> and, the, and the language of the code does not mention MCDOT. It just says maintenance and improvements. And I think Chapter 50 piggybacks on that when you preserve the significant features that are not within DOT's right-of-way. The crux to me here, it goes back to this question I've been wrestling with, which is, are rustic roads the roadway or the, the corridor the roadway travels through? They're a roadway. And um, I don't know. We seem to have conflicting advice about that. We haven't taken that issue up. Because, yeah, if we're talking about the roadway, and the, right -of -way. the answer would be no. If we're talking about the corridor, the answer would be yes. So, so just to be clear, I spent a lot of time trying to be clear. Just to be clear, um, uh, to me, the, the sort of um, the, the nut of the problem is, does does the code require um, the maintenance and pres preservation to be done by DOT um, for it to be considered a significant feature? Does is there a requirement here? No. <laughs> so used in view sheds, things like that are significant features. Okay. So so the language that's that's being used here in the description that talks about um, the maintenance of the roadway by MCDOT, that's kind of extra, right? I mean, that's, it's. Well, it's just that in this case, this is a road that MCDOT would maintain. There are some rustic roads that are state highway SHA maintained roads, but this one is an MCDOT responsibility. No, but my point is that if, if, the responsibility, if <laughs> if the fact that it's the MCDOT's responsibility is not relevant to the designation, then I don't see why it's included in, in, in the verbiage. Now, you do have, or we are told, that there is a maintenance responsibility or a review responsibility by another county entity, right? And so it just seems to me that um, 
that it should be rustic because this, it's excuse rustic, me. It's rustic, it's whether it's, it's significant. It, right. It should be, thank you, because it's all going together now. It should be significant because of the, obviously it was significant enough to require this historic preservation um, uh, designation. And, and that, I mean, it, it seems to me all that's right. no small thing. All right. Uh, uh, Ms. Amy, uh, Commissioner Presley. I, I lowered my hand. I, I don't want to go all over the place. I just, we we have had multiple comments and questions about, is it just the road or is it the side of the road? And my understanding, and I want correction from the staff if I'm wrong, obviously the road is the main issue, but part of what uh, enables the decision for it to be named rustic is the significant features. I mean, we've, we've talked about preventing briars and things on the side of the road from being cut down because it's part of that whole experience of the rustic road. So could could staff give us a definitive answer on, on the extent to which the surrounding, you know, geography and, um, you know, foliage, trees, bushes, whatever, play a role in making the decision? Yeah, uh, for the record, Patrick Butler. So first, I'm going to read from significant features in Chapter 49. Um, um, so when a, a council classified a road as rustic road or an exceptional rustic road, the council must identify the significant features of each such road that must be preserved when the road is maintained or improved. So first, I just wanted to start with that definition and criteria of significant features. Um, it Admittedly, I think you could read that and, and say, well, that is only significant features of the road itself, like per just those, yeah, per just the language. However, as you know, in this plan, there are many, many things outside of just road features themselves that have been identified. And so um, we try to be, you know, specific as to what, again, we'll say DOT because we know DOT is, is typically doing the maintenance and or improvements on these roads. Uh, that, that when we're talking about a significant feature of the road itself, that yes, DOT, you're to preserve that specific significant feature of the road, such as a jog, an alignment, uh, some, mm -hmm. some feature that we've designated of that road. When we're talking about Sugarloaf Mountain or uh, a viaduct, we're not saying that DOT or the county or council is now responsible for that entire viaduct. Uh, it, it's, again, supposed to be that when improving, making improvements to the road itself, that you don't negatively impact that designated that feature. So it, it's a little bit both. You okay. gave us okay. enough reason to, to make it significant. And it's consistent with, with the other uh, designation. <laughs> so, yeah. so why don't we uh, make it a significant feature and go on with the next issue? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Thank you. Can, can okay. I, can I, I check what you just can't. said, Patrick, and put it in a little bit late terms? And that is, it seems to me what we've got here is We've got a maintenance aspect of the road, which is a, a reason to have significance. We also have a scenic aspect of the road, and they aren't, those aren't reciprocal to each other. I think one is a subset of the other, right? There's a reason to make it significant, so we do get good maintenance, but there's also the reason to make significance just because it looks nice and it's part of the experience, right? And those, those nest in each other. They're not, they're not parallel to each other. Correct, and we try to be clear when, when we're designating those, you know, the difference between the two. Yeah, okay. Maybe we need a term significant scene, as opposed, I don't know, as opposed to feature of the road itself, but we'll go on here. 
Um, where are we? Are we? Uh, the uh, next portion is just a technical revision uh, to the uh, to the tables uh, in the plan uh, regarding uh, roads that aren't in the program that need to be classified. Um, and this is uh, to be consistent with uh, Bill uh, 24-22 uh, that talks about complete streets. And there's a new set of classifications. So we're just uh, saying that these uh, particular roads should be classified in a certain manner. And of course, we have Ockard there right now, but we're not making a decision, of course, on that. Um, <laughs> so, so we will uh, point that out uh, with this. Um, but these are the classifications that are being proposed uh, for the particular roads. I, I, I was a little bit out of loss. Exactly what is the classification? Is it the road designation, the M8? Is the classification? Oh, I see, major highway versus major primary. Right. Got it. Okay. I, I'm from New Jersey. I'm a little bit slow. Okay. I'm seeing no objections. Um, for the record, this is Jamie Pratt uh, again. For the record, you're still Jamie Pratt. I yes, think. Um, and, and you're not. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so we received a letter from the Maryland Department of Planning that had a few suggestions. Uh, they were um, supportive of the update, uh, stating that it, they believe it will enhance the county's agricultural reserve. Um, but they did suggest that we incorporate uh, the 12 visions from the state's land use article. And so we looked through the list, uh, to, and about half of them do apply, so we're going to add a section to the plan that says how it meets uh, those articles which are relevant to a functional plan such as this one. Many of them are uh, land use. Just um, please issues. don't suggest that you're going to do mining along the road. Yeah, yeah we do have one... Uh, road profile that does discuss a mine that used to oh, be along right. the road. Oh, that's right. I, a copper mine, actually. Um, and they also asked that we address the sensitive areas element, um, but we believe that uh, adding the environment section to each road profile um, almost went overboard on addressing the sensitive areas element without specifically saying that that's what it was doing. And uh, then for the transportation element of the land use code, um, they brought up that we should compare this to the master plan of highways and transit ways to make sure they're consistent, but all updates to the rustic roads plan updates the master plan of highways and transit ways, so we think we've got it covered. And that's how we advertise this as, a, as an amendment to the, uh, to the master plan of highways. That, that's correct. Okay. Uh, it even says in uh, county code that uh, that it, it does update the master plan of highways specifically. Um, there was a suggestion that instead of a separate uh, appendix that yes. has the road profiles that we incorporate that more directly into the plan, there's a little bit of a I guess we'll just say that there's a discussion about whether a plan appendix has the same weight as a uh, plan book, and uh, while technically it does, if the council approves it, we don't see any need to 
put it in appendix at this point, it seems reasonable to just include it as either a second volume or just call it a chapter in the plan. So we, um, we'd like to move it. Um, and then there's a kind of a separate but related recommendation that the road recommendation, individual road recommendations chapter, once the plan has been approved, won't serve any um, use going forward and it's more background material. So we're recommending that that become an appendix. Seeing no objection. Uh, there's, uh, I think, six cases where um, the plan uses the word possible, and MCDOT suggested that feasible um, was a better language to use because possible doesn't have any physical or fiscal constraints. You know, you could spend a bazillion dollars to fix something. That's possible, but it's, is it feasible? Maybe not. So we think that feasible is just a little bit more careful in each of the instances that they suggested it. So, um, so you want to replace the word possible with feasible? Yes. And uh, the Ruster Roads Advisory Committee objected to all six of our um, recommendations that it be changed. So they made me aware because they think everything will now become a matter of fiscal concern or limitation and therefore not possible. Yes. Does the Rustic Roads Advisory Committee want to say something on this subject? Thank you, yes. And if you got our comments, we've addressed each of them um, directly. Um, some may be more important than others. In fact, with regard to you know, materials and designs of, of uh, bridges in particular, um, that we would definitely fear would be a way that DOT would place cost emphasis over other considerations. Cost is always going to be a factor when you're doing these projects. I mean, that's, that's just common sense. And they're kind of undermining the common sense uh, understanding of the word possible. Um, we would like, if you would like to put the word feasible in, we have a sentence in our, um, in our comments that we've asked for. It says something to the effect of, anytime the word feasible is used, please add the sentence. This in no way is to, um, uh, oh, thank you. Let's see if I can, can you read it? It says, this in no way means a less compatible treatment is acceptable based on lower costs. Just to protect uh, against that. Yeah, I mean, why not define feasible in a way that allows the intent of the plan to go forward and to do what is in the interest of maintaining the road is rustic? What do you think you're writing? Wouldn't that mean leaving possible? Yeah, leaving as it or, is and not putting feasible in. Oh, no, I was because suggesting putting feasible and, and defining it. As it stands now, I'm not aware of uh, when you can't afford to do something, you don't do it. I mean, and that's applied to rustic roads forever. You know, see all this discussions about deferred maintenance. but. Feasible, we view as a way out for doing some of the preservation things that MCDOT has stated for years that they don't want to do. Uh, understood. What is the interest of the board? Are they content with possible? Do they want feasible to, to replace possible? Do they want feasible with a... Definition. Uh, I mean, Commissioner Presley. Yes, I think that um, 
we're, we're quibbling over semantics because if they're going to try not to do it, they're going to try not to do it. So why aren't we talking about a better way to specify uh, what the threshold is? So, I mean, you can switch it to feasible, but what's feasible to me may not be feasible to you. Um, you know, if DOT has a, a, a reduced budget one year and then they say it's not feasible to to fix a bridge or something like that, um, it, again, who, where's the yardstick for it? So is there a way we can think about being more clear about almost as if there are proofs that have to be provided why something can't be done? I would also say that uh, I believe Tim Couples from MCDOT is on it, should you have uh, some questions, or Tim, if you'd like to perhaps respond to some of the questions being raised, or maybe Andrew. Sure, I'll just state at the beginning and maybe turn it over to Andrew. You know, I think DOT is um, entirely supportive of um, preserving uh, what makes Rustic Roads special. Um, and where we have challenges um, is that, you know, obviously the county does not have unlimited resources, right? And, and we prepare designs and we take proposals to the, the county council and they make a decision about what they'd like to fund. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know we're, we're saying, DO, I've heard it mentioned that DOT is opposed to doing these things. That's, that's not the case at all. Um, it's, you know, and, and oftentimes we have taken, uh, you know, two proposals and said, you know, and and said, you know, that this is if you do it this way, it's eligible for the federal funding. And if you do it the other way, it's not um, federal funding on a bridge replacement can cover up to 80 percent of, of the project cost. And there's been times when the county council has said, yes, it's worth it to us to make that investment. And and, um, and, and we you know, we pay for it entirely with county funds and, and we do um, the the more uh, extensive uh, um, preservation. So I think I think that's the sense in which we're, we're offering this is, is that, you know, it, it it's something that any CIP project, we do go before the county council and, and we present this to them and they, they weigh it and they balance it. And, you know, and it's not like uh, it's not like there's a there's an annual level of funding for bridges um, for day-to-day -day maintenance. That's not what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's really going out and, and putting back together what gets damaged, you know, because somebody strikes it uh, with a vehicle or, or it needs to be painted or, or something like that. Um, they, where, where we have these um, come up is when we have a capital project something that is you know going to last for a hundred years and and uh, we go to the county council and we have to get a, a standalone CIP created. So um, here's Andrew, the, the follow-up follow I have to that because it it really uh, exposes an issue that we have not just with programs like rustic roads but with master plans. The council approves it and so they're going to be approving the designated rustic roads but there's no nexus between that and then when when something comes into play about how much can be spent or what can be done to actually preserve the significant features, et cetera. So what I'm asking is there is there some other definition or commitment we need to make? Because we could sit here and approve this next rustic roads plan, but as you said, then it's going to go full circle back to the council 
And if there's no connection between what the threshold should be or is, then these are some of them are just hollow promises. And I think that's what upsets most of the citizenry about anything that we approve and say we're going to do. You know, and then all of a sudden it's pulled out of the CIP project. You know, you're waiting 40 years for this park and 30 for that. And, you know, a bridge falls apart. So what can we do? I'm asking um fellow commissioners and the chair, is there anything we can do to request some sort of guideline? Because if not, then we need to be, I wouldn't want to do this, but we need to be telling the council, then stop approving more roads if you can't put the budget towards it. Commissioner, since you asked me the question, uh, master plans are divorced from uh, capital appropriations. Uh, and yeah, and that is all will always be the case, no matter what language you put in a master plan. The 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 uh, county council will decide its uh, uh, fiscal abilities and what it wants to spend money on, but that does not mean that we shouldn't put forward our aspirations for what it's want what's wanted. Uh, I, I admit that it may uh, upset uh, residents who think that's a concrete promise, but it is a plan. Uh, and I would rather put be aspirational in what we put in plans than to limit our ability to what we think the fiscal budget is now. Commissioner Branson. Um, first of all, um, I agree with that. Um, and let me just say as a practical matter in, in government, what, um, there's always a cost benefit analysis of some, of some sort. The, the problem with this language, possible versus feasible, is, um, is who gets to make the decision. The council. And not really, that's the problem. That's the problem, you see, because by changing it, um, by changing it from possible to feasible, then there is a decision that's being made, um, sort sort of um, surreptitiously, <laughs> um, by DOT. They're determining they they are determining feasibility, but if it is by whatever because of the factors they will use to make the case right but if if it is about possible then that determination is once again being left to the council and and i would really prefer to leave this determination to the council um because their cost benefit because that frankly is how um this government is supposed to run that the council um you know makes these uh makes the budgetary determinations and they will still make it under the word possible. I certainly believe the word feasible is within the words possible. But uh, I'm I'm content uh, with the recommendation you made to leave it as possible. I agree. I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on just another possible. piece of logic, which you said plans should be aspirational, and I think possible is aspirational here. There you go. <laughs> wow. Leave it as possible. Holy mackerel. We don't want to... Muddy the waters uh, here with the fiscal. Our agreement is not uh, uh, impossible. Uh, it is possible that we all yeah. agree. It just amazes me <laughs> that past 3 o'clock I, I can st be, still be influential, <laughs> let alone possible. Okay, so we're leaving it as possible and going on. Uh, although, look, it, it's going to be debated on whether it's feasible. Uh, I think our DOT folk will... We'll still have something to say about that. Uh, um, 
Okay. Um, so we disagreed with staff for the first time. Not the first time. I guess we disagree now. Uh, no, but it's we not the first, but we're not keeping record. score either. This is your oh, job. You're doing, you're doing great. <laughs> making our well, best professional recommendation, and you're, you're making decisions. Re remember, the records change after 3.30 in the afternoon on a Thursday. Um, okay. Uh, we're on uh, policy recommendations on page 13. Okay, so um, there was a suggestion that we create a new policy recommendations section prior to the road recommendations chapter. This came up at the when we were asking the previous planning board to make the working draft the public hearing draft, which is the draft that's the current version. And there was a discussion about whether the some of the items that were in the implementation section were really policy items that um, influenced the actual recommendations for the uh, individual roads that are in the plan. Um, so we were asked to go back and look at it, and um, it was ultimately left to us to decide whether such a, an action would make any sense, and we ultimately decided that we thought it made more sense to keep all of the um, recommendations in the final chapter and that it wouldn't help and it didn't directly influence any of the um, individual road recommendations. Uh, so the reason this is coming up again is because someone said that it was her understanding that the previous board had directed us to do this. So we reviewed the uh, video of the board and determined that they did ultimately leave it up to us and we think that the structure of the plan is as uh, is, is good as stands. And Any it was commissioners have anything to say? We're good. Um, and there was a um, suggestion by uh, MCDOT that instead of uh, showing the number of lanes, I'm sorry, they should they suggested that we show the number of lanes of a road instead of the lane markings. Right now we say whether there's any lines striping of any sort on a road. And then um, they asked us to, to note the lane widths as tentative. Um, the Rustic Roads Advisory Committee uh, supported retaining the road characteristics table as it currently is. You can see on the slide here um, the 1996 plan had the lanes, no center line and edge markings, um, and, the, and the width is 18 and 19 feet. So we carried forward that in the new um, plan, and we think it's very clear, and um, we agree with the advisory committee that these, the width and the lane markings are a good reference point. We understand that they could change over time, but we want to say, well, what is it right now when this thing is designated rustic or confirmed rustic um, so that we'll know in the future whether anything has changed about the road. So we, we did not support MCDOT's recommendations here. Everybody's okay? Yeah. Yep. Um, the Rustic Roads Advisory Committee uh, has offered to help us uh, identify better photos for the plan. Thank you. Um, currently, we only have photos and a I don't know, maybe a third or, or so of the profiles, and we've, we intend to keep adding photos as this goes through the process. Um, 
we welcome their help. Um, and we continue to take new pictures ourselves. Um, but they also suggested we add other exhibits, such as some old, um, the hand-drawn road plats from like the land records where the General Assembly um, authorized a survey of a road to go from point A to point B. And then there's usually these hand-drawn maps that show all the properties that they, they go across uh, so that they know whose land they're taking for the road, I guess. Um, and we like these pictures, um, but we suggest that they be included in the recommended future plan update. We, we recommend in the plan that there be a, a specific amendment to the plan be undertaken in the near future to address historic preservation aspects of the plan that we didn't have time to get to on this um, update. You've so, confused me. Let, let's start slow. Okay. You, uh, there's a recommendation to include some better picture illustrations, which picture illustrations are something that the council lets us uh, change, really, even after they've approved the plan, as long as they're illustrating the point that's being made. So well, what we, are you asking for? We're asking that, you know, that... Well, we're not really asking you if RREC can help us take pictures, although if you'd like for them to, that would be great. Um, but there's these other exhibits that they're also asking us to include, which we agree are a good idea, but we just think it should wait till the next amendment of the plan to undertake the research work and, and identifying of those exhibits okay. and the description of those exhibits. At least now I understand. Uh, everybody okay with staff? I'm okay. The more photos, the better. Well, I think a photo is a thousand words, and people are going to understand what a rustic road is. And then figure the out the historic, yeah. find another opportunity for the historic exhibits. Well, what, uh, one suggestion, sorry to interrupt, oh. but one suggestion is, I mean, the staff did come up with a, an online and interactive version of, uh, of the rustic roads plan. That can take all kinds of images, and if you wanted to start inserting images into that, that would be fine. Um, and that's a good repository, I think, for some of the maps uh, that are coming in. And it doesn't change the actual physical right. plan itself, but it's, it's, again, it's a repository of images that you could use for future amendments, uh, future information. What, what, what's the kind of logistic issue for staff? Is it, is it consistency? Is it um, just the effort to put these in now? Um, yeah, it's just the timeline and, and trying to get all the staff reports and the various drafts prepared and disseminated to the appropriate people, and we just haven't had time to finish okay, the job. I want to draw a circle around that. And, and the weather. <laughs> okay. In, in certain cases, I'll the that. weather and everything, too. <laughs> yeah, for, for vinyl version, we can, you know, certainly uh, right. take consideration for those images like you're describing, uh, yeah. Chairman. And then, um, and then like uh, Robert was describing, we can continue to do this after this process uh, with our online version, et cetera, and um, it, you know the maps that have been created. They can we can add to that catalog as well. Yeah. So I, I like that compromise because the alternative point is we have the information. Let's put it out there. So yeah, we'll do that as practical, but not not make the the big task bigger now. Okay. I mean, I'm just surprised that the Maryland State Archives don't. You can't just call them up and say, send me. Send me the map of Montgomery County from 1730 and every year after that. 
Commissioner I mean, Branson, that sounds like a great idea. I wish that, I wish that they would do our work for us. Why don't they have that? They do have a lot of the, the maps okay. assembled. I think the issue is more, you know, going through and choosing the ones that are relevant to the plan and entering them into the layout. And okay. as you were saying, Commissioner Hill, it's just an additional burden on staff time. Um, the resources are out there um, and certainly could be added. It's just a, a, you know, an additional workload to do. So, so the... So, you know, I'm just going to tell you, this is why you hire interns in the summer. I'm just going to say that. It's a good pro intern project, that is. There you have it. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, you have your direction there. Next item, where are we? Well, we're, we're back to significant features. <laughs> oh, wow. And why are we here? Because it turns out that in the introductory chapters of the plan, we forgot to say what they are. So we're just suggesting perhaps it wouldn't be a bad idea to say what a significant feature is since they, they're mentioned numerous times in the introductory chapter as though everybody knows what it means already. So so you, you want this change in the code? No, no. This is what the code currently states. But so, the master plan goes through all this trouble to define what a rustic road is, uh, how it meets the criteria, but it fails to mention that also as part of the rustic road you need to identify the significant features. So we're just suggesting that we make a mention in the plan text that significant features, what, you know, define them based on county code. And, uh, and that way, when somebody is reading this plan that's never heard of one, we'll have a reference point. Right. Okay. Hard, hard to uh, deny repeating the law. Um, and then uh, there was a comment uh, in the context section of the implementation chapter. This is the very beginning of the chapter. Um, the Rustic Roads Advisory Committee um, didn't understand the point of saying it makes it difficult to have a one-size-fits-all approach to the preservation of these roads when nobody's ever suggested such a thing. And um, so we agree that it doesn't really say much, so we'll either reword it or remove the two sentences. You, you see, if I, you paid for words before, you would have gotten money back for this one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think no objection. To removing those sentences? Can, can we ask, are they going to remove it or rewrite it? Or can we just uh, decide they're going to remove it? Remove it. Um, there's a traffic calming section um, in the plan where uh, we've been asked to rewrite it because, um, according to the advisory committee, it appears to be an indictment of the Rustic Roads program. Um, and they have also suggested that we uh, highlight some recent changes to Chapter 49 about changing the target maximum speed of rustic roads to 30 miles per hour, as well as allowing uh, speed humps where appropriate. And so we will do both things. Uh, we will rewrite the introductory sentence to highlight the county's broader discussion of vehicular speed on roads uh, and the Vision Zero efforts that have been going on, as well as adding the... Um, the changes to county code. And, no objections um, here. And then we have a historic preservation section of the, of the uh, implementation um, chapter. Uh, somebody had suggested, because it's the last set of plan recommendations, she asked that it be brought up to the top of the plan 
to reflect the importance of the historic preservation recommendations. Uh, it was also suggested by the Historic Preservation Commission that we create an audio tour and um, strengthen the master plan's call for inclusion equitable access for roads for those people who don't have personal vehicles. Um, some maybe perhaps arrange some sort of bus tour so that people can experience these roads that otherwise wouldn't be able to. Um, and staff recommends retraining the current plan text in its current order with the historic preservation recommendations at the end because we feel like those are like the next steps more than anything. It's like, okay, here's all these recommendations that apply now, and then here's what we want to do in the future. So we wanted to put that at the end. Um, we agree that the audio and bus tours are a good idea, but um, it's outside of the scope, really, of the planning department to arrange such things. Well, let me just say, you know, it's the nature of historic preservation in the county that, that we don't program those facilities in a way that brings attention to them. But that is generic to the entire program. And, and I think at least putting something in the in the implementation section that, that, that says here's what should be done by <clears throat> at some point in the future, maybe it's even the Park and Planning Commission sometime, uh, is a better idea. But, I, I, you know, there's so many things in historic preservation that n would benefit by calling attention to them. So. Sure. We do have, within the historic preservation recommendations, we have um, an entire recommendation devoted to awareness promotion that goes through a number of ways in which we could promote those as historic yeah. and cultural resources. Okay. Okay. And uh, now we're going to go over uh, maintenance concerns. Um, and there's a public perception um, with many folks that uh, rustic roads receive less maintenance than other roads. Um, and the, the staff recommends to provide a new plan recommendation that the executive uh, regulations be amended to clarify that rustic roads uh, receive the same level of maintenance as other roads in the county. And uh, the executive regulations should also be updated um, to include other modes of, uh, of transportation, uh, not just motorized vehicles and uh, discussion of agricultural equipment. Um, so we are proposing to um, add that, uh, to add that, uh, to have it amended. Yep, and it'll be some important words when it gets on paper, so stay tuned to this channel kind of thing. No problems? No problems. Because it's a future words thing. Uh, again, uh, this one is uh, to strengthen uh, the maintenance improvement section to fully describe the rustic road uh, maintenance procedures uh, versus a single sentence that's in the plan now. Um, so to add language from the executive regulations into the plan, uh, these two uh, sentences uh, discussing um, uh, the level of maintenance to make sure that it's included in the plan and to also uh, 
to emphasize again that rustic roads classifications do not exclude uh, road uh, ma uh, regular maintenance. Now you're confusing me. You, you just said you wanted to rewrite the executive regulations on maintenance, and here you want to copy the words from the executive regulations. Well, I, I believe that uh, this is just to um, make sure that um, to um, Jamie Pratt, for the record, <laughs> uh, the current uh, wording of the um, maintenance obligations in the executive regulations states that maintenance will be provided at a level no lo lower than existed at the time of designation while still preserving the rustic qualities of the road. And we thought, well, I'm not sure anybody who documented the level of maintenance that a road was receiving in 1996 so that they don't ever exceed that limit. So we just thought it might be better if it would just straight out said that they'd be receive regular maintenance the same as other roads in the county. So, so you're not, you you're, not you you're not copying the same words that are in the executive regulations. Uh, in, in the second case, we are. In, in the, the first case, case, there's a, a, a different okay. executive regulation that okay. we think needs to be clarified. Or All right. Approved. So, but uh, so our recommendations is that it be rewritten, and then we'll live to see what those executive regulations will be. Um, I didn't follow. <laughs> you're you're recommending that the executive regulations be rewritten. Uh, yes. And not suggesting all of the words in the, the regulation. Um, uh, that is correct. We don't currently have those words in front of us uh, for okay. a recommendation. All right. But uh, you have some words, right? Isn't that the next slide where you had some words? That's the, those, the next slide is words from the executive regulations that we think are fine and don't need to be amended. Okay. Wasn't one of our past points though that we want to get away from just motorized vehicles and yeah. and other users, and yet this quote excludes those people. Right, that, that quote it, it only mentions motorized vehicles and agricultural equipment, um, but it also has this weird language about the level of maintenance needs to be what it was when it was added to the program, and we think <coughs> that that's not clear. That doesn't clearly mean that it should receive the same level of maintenance. As, as other roads. I mean, there are other regulations that say similar items, but we just want it to be a little clearer in the regulations themselves. No, but I, I've got that point. My point on this slide right here, and the first quote under the second bullet, is that is a direct quote from the existing executive yes, regulations We're proposing a change, which was Jeff's point. But it seems to me we want to put the language we want to change it to here. Right. Right? We want to include those users who aren't motorized vehicles. Right. Yeah, they per the previous content. slide, Jamie, I uh, believe what Commissioner Hill is saying is the first bullet point, uh, again, just references, uh, now it's motor now we went to a different slides, but motor vehicles and I believe ag equipment. Um, yeah, so it does turn out that I didn't realize that what we're suggesting doesn't also include other users. So That's my point. We will, <laughs> <laughs> why didn't you just say so? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, having heard that, yes, I agree that, um, that the language from the executive regulations that we've asked to add here um, also be fixed at the same time right. as the current, the other recommendation to fix the clean up the language. Or if, or if you want the rec quote, use that and put another sentence on you that mentions the other users, right? Yes. Okay. Question, what do you do with um, a street that, for example, on Oak, 
occurred, Lane, that's part public and part private. The maintenance of the private part is not. We say nothing guilty. about it. We don't say anything. We I mean, that doesn't apply. So, do you have other cases where you have a hybrid kind Pri of rustic? Private roads are not um, eligible to be rustic roads. Um, the, the, the riveting discussion you missed at the last planning board was about this sec program called Dedicated but Unmaintained Roads. Mm -hmm. So, the county has a program that describes how such roads can be made brought up to a level that the county then will then take over maintenance. But until that point, the county leaves it up to the homeowners along that road to provide the maintenance of the okay. section that's not under county maintenance. All right, thanks. So to be clear, what you're looking for right now is, um, is permission to go forward and um, rewrite certain sections to be more reflective of, of where uh, of of a more inclusive use of the rustic roads is that is That's, that it in a nutshell that is absolutely correct okay uh, you agree with that Jeff I'm, I'm fine okay. I was fine with it a while ago <laughs> uh, but again for the executive regulations themselves you're you're leaving that up to a future determination yes we could uh, work on suggested language for the next work session. Oh, okay. All right. If you if you want to, but it's going to be up to the executive. Exactly. Anyhow. So we're not sure how much you know. Maybe but that would be. Helpful. I think maybe up to yeah. It'd be helpful to get some guidance on that because it wouldn't ultimately be determined as part of this process. That would be a future right. action. So I, it's up to you how much effort you want us to put into it now, or just the recommendation that we do that. Should the council support this? I mean, I would be content with, with just leaving it to a future date. We have enough to, to resolve uh, by the time we, before we send this plan. Yeah, up, understood. Everybody okay? Everybody okay? I look for nods here and not sleeping. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm halfway okay with that. I, You're not, you I, are sleeping? I, I'm up, no, no, I, no, no, that was this morning. I'm good now. Uh, um, I, um, I ha I'm halfway okay with leaving it to a future date. The only problem is that I really think um, there is a vast misunderstanding that needs to be corrected that has to do with the maintenance requirement for rustic roads. I think that really needs to be clarified. And, and I don't see, um, and, and the, the language is here, uh, the uh, second bullet, uh, the rustic or exceptional rustic road classification will not exclude roads from regular maintenance. Uh, if, if nothing else, that should be included. To, um, to not, provide that level of clarity, um, I think undermines uh, a good part of this program. We'll, we'll get it by the time we get the executive regulations. Okay. All right, um, uh, uh, <laughs> Commissioner Presley. And down mistake. <laughs> uh, uh, say again? My hand's back down. It's oh, answered. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Well, that's good. Okay, continuing on. Um, with vegetation, uh, the tree canopy over uh, some rustic roads. Uh, the result that you're requesting? Yes. Elements and, and the 
Okay, it's it's okay. We're sure. we're okay. Uh, for um, vegetation, uh, some uh, of the farmers have noted that uh, it's Those not uh, safe to uh, for motorized vehicles and farm equipment, uh, and especially at intersections, there are concerns uh, with some of the roadside uh, vegetation. And it was suggested during the uh, uh, the public hearing. Uh, that MCDOT should systematically perform maintenance on rustic roads. Um, also, um, there is some concern that uh, MCDOT uh, should be able to perform maintenance without having it uh, to also run it also by the uh, Rustic Roads Advisory Committee. Um, and then uh, there were individuals that said that, uh, you know, Sometimes the roadside vegetation has been cleared way back beyond what is necessary. Um, and so there's also uh, a feeling that uh, that uh, there's a tree trimming guidelines that uh, has been included that has been uh, discussed um, that should be added to the plan and it's suggested by staff. Uh, that the tree trimming guidelines uh, should be discussed in a, a joint minute, a meeting between the RAC, MCDOT, and the Office of Ag and other interested stakeholders uh, to look at these and that they can be incorporated into the executive regulations. Um, and also that priority, uh, they should determine what are the priority roads that farmers need to use during this process. Um, so that's really our recommendation that these should be incorporated into the executive regulations the tree trimming guidelines so in terms of the master plan it'll be a this will be as a statement in the implementation section or do you plan on getting this before this is all adopted oh th this would have to be in in the implementation section and this would have to be an ongoing process uh, we believe okay i'm okay everybody okay still good uh, let's, let's, uh, may I propose a hard stop at 4.30? Is everybody okay with that? All right. I didn't get that. Could you try again? No. <laughs> <laughs> My watch yes. didn't get it. Uh, you watch, I you cannot believe it. <laughs> it's smart. Okay, let's continue. So there, there's a section also discussing road surfaces um, that uh, roads... Uh, frequently have uh, potholes and that uh, some of the uh, dust from the gravel roads make it the, their crops uh, unsellable um, and that there's been a washboard effect on, on some of the rustic roads. Um, also a suggestion that um, uh, the Penn State uh, University program uh, for environmentally sensitive roads should be uh, included as best practices in the, in the plan. Um, and staff believes that the, the current recommendations adequately address the concerns raised um, and that um, it's important to, and there was also concern that uh, some of the problems raised, raised were operational and shouldn't be discussed in the master plan, but uh, staff believes that, you know, these plans should, these issues should be discussed in order to vet them and to uh, make improvements. Um, and we felt that in terms of the best practices, it's up to MCDOT to determine what best practices to use on um, 
rustic roads since they are the, the agency that will be maintaining them. Just let me be clear, does that mean if I have a, a washboard kind of road, it should be leveled or not? I, I'm asking it to staff, thank you. Um, I, I, no, I, I don't believe, I think that, uh, well, we do have MCDOT on, and they might be up there to ask questions or to answer the question, but um, I know, like, for example, with the image that we're showing here for Elton Farm Road, they come out periodically to, um, to work on the road when there's a heavy rain and that sort of thing. So they, it's something that they do on a, a periodic basis. They grade it on a periodic mm -hmm. basis. They grade You're right. Right. Correct. Yes. And again, I think this is something that we're hoping uh, to address as part of regular maintenance at the recurring meetings that, um, you know, DOT uh, in, in attendance with RRAC and any other stakeholders that want to attend the recurring meetings that we identify roads that, for instance, gravel road and any of the roads that would need maintenance issues that uh, we would establish priority and that DOT would maintain those roads regardless of what the improvements or what the repairs uh, would be. So, um, but did MCDOT want to uh, address specifically what you do in terms of a washboard effect and how you repair them? Is that is that what your question was? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, it seems to me the open issue that you sure. left in the staff report. Right. So Tim or Andrew, oh, there we go. Go ahead and let Richard Dorsey, who's uh, chief of our uh, maintenance division, um, kind of sh share with you a little bit about, you know, so, so all good the maintenance questions. <laughs> so good afternoon, Richard, Richard Dorsey, chief of highway services, DOT. So I wanted to make a comment. I had my hand raised earlier, but no one uh, called me in. First of all, we were talking about, you know, assessment of road. So we have uh, 5,400 lane miles of road. And uh, based on the road classifications, whether it's a primary road or a neighborhood road, we do assessments every other year on one of those classifications to get, you know, the pavement index, condition index. And um, with that, we, you know, the, the program that we use for pavement management spits out, you know, uh, repair strategies for us on all of these, all of our road network. So for rustic roads, we don't look at them any different than we look at uh, Randolph Road or Shady Grove Road. They're all within our analysis and, and they get the same uh, 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 review from us than any other road. Um, as for the gravel roads, when you see the washboard effect, yes, there is some of that and gravel roads have been a little challenge for us. We, we brought in Penn State, we brought in the uh, University of Maryland and the uh, Maryland State has a program addressing uh, uh, gravel and unpaved roads. We and most of them are talking the same language as it uh, um, relates to these type of services. We, we there are some gravel roads that desire a little more of our attention than others, and we are aware of that. and And we do our best to kind of maintain them, in, in a sense where you know they're safe. And, and travel for, you know, the farmers, you know, recreationists and, and the residents in those areas. So again, will, uh, if you have a washboard effect uh, and you find it, you would fix it every other year? 
we, we fix it as needed. I mean, oh, the, I the gravel okay. roads, like I said, they have a lot more attention needed, you know, a lot more frequent visits from us than, than other paid services. So, you know, based on the request and response from residents, we'll address um, okay. mention of Elton Farm, mostly uh, uh, following each rain, major rain event. We go there because we know, you know, what kind of effect, you know, trenchal downpours have to that environment. Thank you. I think everybody's okay with the recommendation. Um, the RAC mentioned uh, adding, strengthening the uh, drainage section uh, language uh, by adding the, from the 1996 plan, Rustic Roads Functional Master Plan, stating that uh, drainage is the single most uh, distinctive feature of the uh, character of rustic roads. Um, staff proposes not to change the language, not to add that particular section. Um, we feel that uh, drainage is a very important feature of the road, but to characterize it as the most distinctive feature, there are multiple distinctive features along uh, rustic roads, and we wouldn't want to diminish one versus the other. Um, so we propose keeping uh, the um, language as it is currently in the plan. I see no objections. I can't um, resist pointing out that one of the features you mentioned there is under canopy trees. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we agreed with you. <laughs> and uh, finally, in terms of maintenance, um, uh, some uh, farmers have said that drainage is insufficient along some of the rustic roads can lead to standing uh, water standing hydroplaning water. and icy patches. Um, and here are some, just some images of it. Uh, but uh, we don't propose any uh, changes uh, to the uh, text in the plan. Um, we believe that the um, executive regulations in regards to this uh, particular pretty much uh, uh, is pretty uh, 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 consistent in terms of what, what should be done. And in any event, you're opening up the executive regulations by your other recommendation. So that that is true. So there'll be additional comments on that if if need be. Okay, continuing on. This is over to me, Casey Rowan, Historic Preservation. <laughs> Um, so uh, this is another language clarification point. We have received a number of comments discussing our um, historic bridges and historic roads, and these resources are also referenced repeatedly throughout the plan itself. Um, we just want to clarify that there are several different ways that we're using the word historic um, in this case. So we are using it both to describe our designated historic sites and districts and resources that are simply old, um, but not designated as historic resources. And it's an important distinction because um, resources that are identified in the locational atlas or the master plan listed to the National Register of Historic Places or found eligible for listing in the National Register are subject to specific historic preservation regulatory processes that do not apply to old resources um, which may be, you know, 50 or 100 years old. They may have been surveyed in the Maryland Inventory of Historic Properties 
or in a historic bridge inventory, but they're not subject to those specific historic preservation regulations. And just to make sure that that's really clear in the document, um, we've made a recommendation here, which is slightly revised from what we had in the staff report, but just to go through and make sure that we remove the word historic as a descriptor for any non-designated resources where there's a chance that it's ambiguous or it could have a policy implication about the um, preservation and maintenance strategies that are applied. Here's a, the slight problem is one of the criteria for rustic roads is that it be uh, historic and visually significant without using the term as a designation within the master plan of historic places. So I, I think what you're really saying <coughs> is just make sure you use the word historic in a way that does not evoke the regulatory regime of, of the designation. And can you think of another word? Uh, I mean, or a set of words or something, but rather than removing historic, there, there's uh, something old and community significant a reminder of the ways in the past. How's that for not saying historic? <laughs> right, it's a struggle. <laughs> That's why, yeah, we've, we used it very often throughout the plan because it is, is the natural word that you would use to describe those features, and we think that's fine in most cases. We're just looking for those instances in the recommendations where it could suggest some ambiguity about the way those resources Couldn't you are define created. it in a footnote or, or a footnote. something that says when we use the term historic, we're not referring to historic, you know, something that has been designated historic through that, regulations? That was, yeah, I was just yeah. going to suggest the same because I, I think this, even this bullet is actually a little misleading because it says remove the word historic and then. That implies like we're going to remove it uh, from all, all over the place. I don't think that's what we were actually trying to describe. Correct. So I think, uh, uh, Commissioner, your, your recommendation is on point with what I, what I thought uh, we, we were really trying to recommend is that there would be some clarifying language so that um, it, it's clear that when something truly is historic, we will list it as to which uh, you know, designation, uh, et cetera. When, when not, it may be used more colloquially as uh, old. Okay, can I make a suggestion? Is this is this a place where historic and historical are useful? <laughs> oh. It may be. <laughs> right, because historic it, is sure. the actual fiber, mm -hmm. and historical is involving things involving history. Right? I think that's right, but I'm not sure that the distinction is necessarily you know generally understood. So that okay. I, I do think adding some clarifying language up top would be useful. And we have made as a point um, to. When we are referencing the designated resources, we've already gone through and said, this is a master plan historic site. That's already in the text. So we just need to add a sentence or two at the beginning saying, we've called out the designated resources. Every other time we say the word historic, we simply mean old. Yeah, that'll be fine. Or, you know, every time you hit a st historic resource, at least when we do it on, a, <coughs> on the web or something, it, it reads in red. And you say that in the beginning, so you say, okay, now I'm in a different regime. But that's editorial. But I think the, adding the clarifying words is better than deleting the word. Great. Thank okay. you. Everybody okay? Yes. Are we continuing on? Great. Nine so, minutes. Oh, go quickly. So we've also received a number of comments suggesting that we incorporate the Secretary of the Interior Standards for the Treatment of Historic Properties. Uh, to strengthen the language around bridge preservation. And so I just 
want to review those briefly. Um, the standards are specific guidelines that govern preservation work done by uh, federal agencies, the National Park Service, and the Department of the Interior. Um, and they are incorporated into our county executive regulations for the Historic Preservation Commission. They apply the rehabilitation treatment standard to designated historic sites and districts only. The standards are not used anywhere else in the county code, and they're not generally applied to resource that, resources that aren't designated or that haven't been found eligible for the National Register. Um, MCDOT and SHA may be required to apply those standards in cases where they're using state or federal funding, um, but compliance for those projects is regulated at the state level by the Maryland Historical Trust. Um, and it's overseen by professionals that meet the Secretary of the Interior Standards uh, professional qualifications in architectural history, architecture, various disciplines. And so because the standards have such specific regulatory meetings, we are not recommending that they be generally applied to the rustic roads and bridges, except where they, they do apply to these specific designated historic resources. You guys okay? Boy, I understand this one. Uh, I mean, it's a whole new regime when you get into the secretary's standards. Um, okay, everybody's okay? Um, so when we um, introduced the recommendations in, in the implementation section for bridges, we have a uh, paragraph that when we reread it, it looked like it only applied to historic bridges. So we just suggested a revision to the language to show that this is, we're talking about all the bridges on the roads in the program, even the ones that aren't rustic, I mean, necessarily significant features. Um, we just want to make sure that we include all of the bridges in these recommendations and not just the historic ones. Yeah, I, this is where you were going to talk about what kind of maintenance uh, is allowable or, or mm -hmm. changes to a bridge are allowable? Mm -hmm. Yes, we're, we're, we're going to get to that in a Oh, I'm jumping the gun? Just a little bit, because there was a lot to cover in this section. So, um, so what are you asking on this well, one? In this one, we're, we're asking just the, the rewriting of the introductory paragraph to, to make it clearer that we're not just talking about historic bridges. Okay. Um, and then there was this uh, discussion about the words reconstruct, rehabilitate, replace, um, and other words that may or may not have come from the Secretary of the Interior's terminology. Um, so we looked at the current plan recommendations after having read those terms, and even though we don't um, think that we need to explicitly reference the Secretary's uh, terminology, we at least want to be consistent with it. So we have um, uh, suggested some slight rewordings of these plan recommendations based on our new understanding of how to use these terms. Everybody okay? Yes. Um, and then there was uh, some suggestions, especially by the Rustic Roads Advisory Committee and Heritage Montgomery, that we refer to provisions in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act for funding of historic bridge preservation and rehabilitation projects, and um, MCDOT had suggested a clarification of the text to indicate that using a design that follows federal or state requirements is also possible when doing work on a bridge. Uh, the way it's currently worded, it looked like you either 
had to get a design exception or you couldn't really do anything. So we were um, trying to clarify the language to say that there is another option. Um, so if a design exception is not granted, the grid bridge must be designed to meet federal and state standards or 100% of the cost will come from the county's budget, which takes money away from other vital county programs. So are you saying to put that language in? or that That's the new language. Um, I didn't put the old one on the slide So here. whether you said that or not, that would be the case? Uh, yeah, the, but the way it was worded before is it, it looked like there was um, two choices, uh, one of which was not to just use a federally accepted design standard. So we wanted to make sure that, yes, you could also use a, a federally accepted design standard. But for oh. some reason, this is an aspirational. It's kind of negative, the way it's written. I think. Yeah, I think if you, you know, I think I think if you just in that sentence, uh, at the word budget, then is good. I mean, I, I don't think you know the taking money away from other vital county programs is kind of editorializing. So I mean, but the first part of the sentence is is to me um, factual. So. Uh, you know, I agree with that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, where else would it come from? <laughs> Everybody okay with that? Yeah, I would change the word "will" to "may" because we, we we don't tell the the county how to decide. You know, whether they want to put a hundred percent of the cost into whatever a bridge. Uh, I just. You know, will. I mean, that's like giving an order almost. Well, that's a statement of fact. That's that is. Fact. A that's the problem. See, it's a statement of fact. If, if it's not under federal or state standards, then there will be no federal or state money that comes along with it. And if there's no federal or state money, then, then it comes out of the MoCo big pocket. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that's the problem. I, I, but the county may be, may be against it. W exactly. I think it, it will come from the county's budget if it is constructed. Yeah. yeah. Is what, yeah. What, what you're really saying there. Right. Yeah. So, so and, and in that instance, may becomes and, relevant. And, and, yeah, I get right. it. Right. Yeah. So, but it's, it's better to say will because that, you got to, you know, the, you got the facts uh, and yeah. that's the facts. But they sure may not fund it. Yeah, they may not fund it. You could it. say would. It would. Yeah, that's right. How, how about just would there? Yeah. And then you don't need anything uh, other. It, it makes mm -hmm. it more, less declarative. Yeah. That's Two minutes. Um, because um, I don't know if we can get through um, the next three slides uh, in two minutes. Would there you is, like to stop there? Or? No, the last one I wanted to bring up because we were going to ask you if you wanted us to follow up okay, next week. Okay, go ahead. So there was, uh, at the last work session, you had suggested um, that county council needs to be clear what they mean when a bridge has been uh, in, um identified as a significant feature on a road. So when maintenance is done on that bridge, what do they mean? So um, we, we believe that what you're saying is that they should amend Chapter 49 to be very explicit in the language that, that covers this. Um, and so we haven't uh, drafted 
language to suggest how to fix it yet, but we want to make sure that this is what you're getting at. That is mm -hmm. what I was getting at, anyhow. May I comment? Mm -hmm. This is the first we've heard of this. What? Other than your comment at the meeting. I'd like to say our comment that you haven't seen that we submitted says, because guidance currently exists in the regulations, we don't consider this to be necessary. In addition, every bridge that's identified as unique, and including bridge-by-bridge bridge guidance, would be too specific for putting into code. That's our concern. We kind of work on a one-by-one -one basis on these with MCDOT. Mm. I, I thought there was was some issue with, with how a regular bridge would be handled that's on a rustic road versus a um, significant feature bridge. That was my understanding. Well, as we, most of them are now significant features in the plan going forward. And the, I think the concept was that we would work with staff and DOT to find some sorts of design features for bridges that have no particular real look to the railings and things like that where there's, you know, that sort of design. And I like more in code, so it's not a debate when we get down to the bridge. That's we, where we, I am. We can come back next week and debate this. I just wanted to make sure that this is what you said, whether it ends up being enacted, we can decide at the next work session. In my head was was a change to Chapter 49, but I don't know what's... Uh, there's nothing in anybody's heads up here at this time of day. <laughs> I, I can check on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's nothing here. Um, I, I think... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so do you want to wrap things up then? I, I believe uh, yeah, we were close. We, we had two or three slides yeah. left, but we can we'll bring, bring back. this back. Yep. Because we have to because talk about bridges Because everywhere. we have the other issues to bring back as well. Correct. Yes. Anybody else for the good of the order? We're okay. We're right <laughs> at 431. Uh, uh, I declare this uh, meeting adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you for your participation. Bye, all.